show hasn't started yet. We're late today. We're running late. We had some technical difficulties. It's going to be one of those days. And Ben Burgess is coming on later in the show. I sound okay, Dan, right? Yeah. Yep, you're good. You're good. Okay. Well, I'm not good. Uh, we're a little off kilter. It's the dead of August. I'm amazed anyone is willing to come uh, on the show today. We've got a good show. Ben Burgess is coming on at the end. And here is something you want to do. You want to go see Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, who's performing at the Thing Festival at the McCurdy Pavilion this Friday. That would be today if you're listening to this as a podcast. August 26th at 10 p.m., special guest from Jeopardy, Ken Jennings. If you live in Washington State near Seattle, go to the Thing Festival. I think it's in Port Townsend, Washington, and go see Triumph, the insult comic dog, live. A rare opportunity to see Triumph, the insult comic dog, at McCurdy Pavilion at the Thing Festival tonight, Friday, August 26th, if you're listening to this, at 10 p.m. By the way, if you're listening uh, to us right now on YouTube, the uh, or you're trying to find Monday's live stream, it's been taken down by YouTube. Uh, the audio is up. You can hear it, but we had to take it down because I showed a clip of last Saturday's UFC welterweight bout. Disney, which owns ESPN, made us take it down. There's copyright protection for mixed martial arts, apparently, which means mixed martial arts can only be seen in the context that ESPN and Disney dictate it be seen in. They won't allow me to show it in my context. I showed how bloody mixed martial arts is, specifically UFC. I showed a mixed martial out, mixed martial arts bout fight in which one of the fighters was mama birding his bloody saliva into the face of his opponent. It was homoerotic. I'm not sure it's a sport. I don't think it's a sport. I showed the kicks to the skull. I did so in an educational context with commentary. I was appealing to an audience's sense of humanity as opposed to an audience's thirst for raw violence. And it can't be seen that way. Mixed martial arts doesn't stand up under that kind of scrutiny. So Disney, which owns ESPN, and Disney, which raises our children, will not allow anybody to see UFC fighting unless they control the narrative. Kind of like the way the conversation is shaped when it comes to Medicare for all, unions, and any war that's being fought by Americans. The American people are not allowed to actually see the human suffering, because so many of us lack free health care unions, uh, unions that protect not just our financial health, but our physical safety and, of course, war. So we're we're not allowed to see body bags, the children hit by drone strikes. When there's a war, we only hear from ex-generals working as lobbyists for Boeing and Raytheon telling us we're winning when, in fact, we're losing this delivery system for facts that I'm swimming in is controlled. We all know that. We all know that. You're not allowed to have a real conversation uh, about mixed martial arts. You're not allowed to see it in my context. There's no substitute for facts. 
One of the substitutes that people try to foist on us for facts is anger, yelling, threatening, personal attacks. Americans have been trained to believe that through argument, we can arrive at a truth. And that is not true. There is a truth out there. And arriving at that truth involves listening to both sides, but not fighting, not arguing. Uh, and that argument, that discussion, not really argument about both sides, that should take place before you present the truth, not while you're trying to inform people. I don't like shows where people argue. I don't want to do a show where people fight over, over facts. I will present both sides to a story so long as it's about arriving at a truth and so long as people treat each other with respect. What I will not allow on this show is hostility and personal attacks. I could have a bigger audience if I did controversy. People love that. They, they call it human drama. I consider it a waste of time. People love to watch two people fighting. I'm not going to do that. Now, if you notice people who do come on this show and attack me and other guests, uh, they, they decide usually not to come back. They make it their choice. They think about it and they go, I don't want to do his show. I don't want to do this anymore. So the show hasn't started yet, by the way. So, uh, you know, I didn't like Monday's show. Uh, it upset me. There was something that happened that I don't like to be a part of. Let me make, since it's the dead of August, let me make some things clear to my audience. As of now... I am very, very, very left of center, very left. I voted for Bernie. I loathe the Democrats, especially Biden, Pelosi, and Schumer. I want free health care. Education should be free. I want a universal basic income. I wanted to fund the police, rebuild the police so they solve crime. And I want to make sure we're paying social workers to prevent crime before it happens. I'd rather see social workers making more than police officers. I don't think we need so many police. They're, they're, I want to defund our carceral state and spend money on a social safety net that catches people before their mental illness literally gets the best of them, as well as us, before it gets the best of us. I want free and comfortable housing that's safe and clean for people who lack the resources. I believe economic growth is anathema. We should measure our productivity by how much, by how much we help each other and the planet. I am not a Marxist yet. I'm not a capitalist yet. I do believe so far in democracy. I believe when everybody votes and I mean everybody, we all win. I believe for now in democracy and whatever that, and wherever that takes us, wherever democracy, where everybody votes, I believe in that, in true democracy, something resembling more of a republic, but I believe everybody should be allowed to vote. I believe voting should be mandatory, like in Australia. I believe people should be fined if they don't participate in their democracy. I believe freedom and justice 
can only be found in giving everyone the vote. I am confident that more democracy, not less, will bring about a more perfect union. That's what I believe. When businesses fail, and they often do, and they, uh, when those businesses are necessary, kind of like a utility, maybe like a bank, an airline, an auto company, then they have every right to come to my government for a bailout. But that bailout comes with strings attached to it. And that string is we're either going to own a majority stake in your company or at least a large voting share. Otherwise, you don't get any of our money. That's what I believe. I don't believe in totally wiping out our system. Our system is rotten to the core. But I don't believe in wiping it out, no matter how evil this system is. And it is evil. It kills millions and millions of people every day around the world. On this show, I wrestle with the alternatives. And I've asked some guests, what happens when we get rid of this evil system and what do we replace it with? And I, so far, have yet to see a path forward other than fixing this system. I I don't find another path forward that I find acceptable. I offer up a path on this show, if you listen, if you're stupid enough to listen to this show. I've made it very clear what our path is for redemption. And I think my way is the best. We find a way to fuse the populist rage on the right, with, uh, which is faux populist rage, with the genuine populist rage that you find on the left, and you drag it into the corridors of power, not just our government, but corporate America. And we demand that big business doesn't own our government. We need to find a way to get Trump supporters to give up their hatred for the weak and demand that, for example, when we bail out a bank, we own it. That when Starbucks and Amazon refuse, as they're doing right now, to recognize the National Labor Relations Board, which is essentially the police, when they refuse to negotiate with government-sanctioned unions like Christian Small's Amazon labor union, they just refuse to recognize it. The United States government does, the NLRB does. If if, uh, Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, refuses to negotiate with the Starbucks unions who vote to to go union, if Jeff Bezos refuses to negotiate with the Amazon unions, then you're not recognizing the government of the United States. And it is the responsibility of the government to shut these businesses down until they recognize the government of the United States. The NLRB is the police. We use the police for a lot of things, usually to hurt poor people. It is the police who come and evict us, not the bank. They use the sheriff. I want the police to start treating corporations the way they treat ordinary Americans. This is what I believe. This is my path forward that I'm offering on this show. And if you can present another path forward, I want to listen to it. I really do. I believe in a strong government, and I believe that the people 
still have a chance to take over the government. Now, you want a revolution? So do I. And there is a revolution in this country every two years. You know who said that? Newt Gingrich, who led the Gingrich Revolution in 1994, and he took over Congress. He was the, it was the first time Republicans had control of the Congress since, I think, 1954. And he led a revolution that we're still paying the price for. I believe there can be a Bernie revolution in our House of Representatives. And whether anybody likes it or not, including Jeff Bezos, Microsoft, Starbucks, if there's a Bernie revolution in the House of Representatives, suck on it. Because that's the law. That is the law. That's where I stand. Right now, I'm not too keen on replacing our economic system. I'm not so sure that's even relevant. Uh, and I'm not even sure what the economic system is. Nobody's given me a clear definition of what this is. Capitalism, autocracy, kleptocracy. You know, I have a feeling this economic system, we're just making it up on the fly. So I don't want to, you know, I love discussing our economic system. I'm not so sure right now with the expiration date on our planet uh, quickly approaching, I'm not so sure discussing our economic system uh, is going to save the planet. Yes, I know it's capitalism, but it's not really capitalism that's killing the planet. It's greed. It's greed. It's money. And we're not getting rid of money. Whether you like it or not, money is the lingua franca. Money is the language of the world. I don't like that, but that's the way it is, and there isn't time to change it. But money is the lingua franca. Money is, it's our words. It's a reflection, for better or worse, of what we're thinking, of our fears. It's a reflection of our fears, our love, our hate, and most importantly, our values. So take a look at the federal budget every year. There's a revolution in this country every year when we do appropriations of our federal budget. Like I said constantly on this show, 30% of whatever you want to call this economy, 30% is what the government spends. When you add up state, local, and fed, 30% of the economy is what your government spends. We don't have capitalism. We do not have socialism. We have America. That's it. In this country, we have America. And the fight, the dialectic, is over government largesse. Show hasn't started yet. So that's what I believe. I believe this is a fight over money. People are suffering in this country, and I believe the root of most, if not all, of this suffering is greed. Money is concentrated in the hands of the billionaires, and they have the rest of us fighting each other over the crumbs. If you raise your child in America, if you want to raise your child above the poverty line, you got to give that child something resembling a healthy childhood. It costs $300,000 to make sure that kid gets to 18. So this is a fight over money. That's how I see it. Do we give the police weapons-grade armaments? 
Or do we give our schools, our community centers, the financial resources they need so we need fewer police officers? Other countries seem to figure this out. They, they pay more uh, for their schools and their social safety net than they do for their police. And the more you pay for your schools and your, your social safety net, the less you need your police. Now, listen to me. In Citizens United, our Supreme Court ruled that money is speech. You want to get a constitutional amendment going to reverse Citizens United? You want to get you want to spend the next 10 years trying to get this country to agree that money is speech? Knock yourself isn't that money isn't speech? Knock yourself out. Okay, but the planet is dying. Money in America, whether you like it or not, is speech. And that means the people with the money get to speak a lot more, a lot louder and drown out those who don't have money. This is a fight for money. This is a fight over the redistribution of wealth. So I, you know, I believe in taking to the streets. I love a good protest. I, I can use the exercise, but I think if you really want to move things, then you take to the halls of government. This government, whether you like it or not, works perfectly. Let me re repeat, this is not a dysfunctional government. Our government is incredible and it works exactly the way it's supposed to. It's just working for the wrong people, the richest 1%. As Harvey J.K. says, take hold of your history Take hold of your government. Uh, now, how do you do that? You do what Professor Marianne Cummings does. You become a parks commissioner. You know, Professor Marianne Cummings comes on this show every week, twice a week, and she'll often say things that I find disturbing, shocking. And then I wait a couple of months and I go, you know what? She was absolutely right. I'm an asshole. She uh, often upsets how I frame my worldview especially when it comes to Ukraine. I don't argue with her. I listen. I question. I go read and I go, uh, yeah, she's right. I am not interested in who is smarter. Mary Ann Cummings is a particle physicist, Fermi lab. I'm not interested in having her on my show and then trumpeting to myself afterwards, she's not so smart. She forgot Lyndon Johnson didn't have a vice president in 1964 or whatever, so I could feel good about myself. I'm not interested in devaluing someone to make myself feel better or to establish dominance. That's not how I want to live my life. I don't like bullies, physical bullies or intellectual bullies, because that's, by the way, a contradiction in terms. You can't be an intellectual and a bully at the same time. We had a guest on Monday's show, and, you know, I'll be honest with you, I, I was hurt because I really do like this guest. Uh, and he accused me of being liberal, uh, being part of the petite bourgeoisie, and uh, he was trying to figure out uh, how to dominate me. And I was listening to him as he's talking. I'm saying, is this about figuring out a way to level the playing field for everyone? Or are you working out your anger issues to just crush me? So, look, the crowd, the, the ground is constantly shifting underneath me. But right now, 
this is pretty much where I stand. And this is what I know. And show me what you got, and I'm all ears. Okay? But don't make it about anger or personal attack. I'm not interested. I, I'm too old. Uh, now, look, the conversation was about mixed martial arts on Monday, and I don't approve of mixed martial arts. I don't think it should be outlawed. I get it. People have rage issues. And I, I understand that those rage issues are better worked out in the octagon than in their interpersonal relationships. I understand toxic rage and anger. I suffer from it. I understand it needs to be channeled, but not towards another human being or any living thing. I understand hunting, but I don't approve of it. I am a vegetarian, and most days of the week I'm a vegan. I understand why people aren't, but they're wrong. And I have yet to find anyone who can present evidence to the contrary. I, I don't hate you if you eat meat. I understand it, but you're wrong. Prove otherwise. Show hasn't started yet. Now, look, I understand why people box and play football. But as I try to explain on Monday's show, the science is in. Both sports, football and boxing, destroy the brains of their competitors. I remember as a child, before the science was in, I was watching Howard Cosell do the play-by-play -play of a fight between Larry Holmes and Randall Tex Cobb. It went 15 rounds and should have been stopped before it even started, but it wasn't. And I remember Howard Cosell yelling, quote, if ever there was an argument for the abolishment of boxing, tonight is the night. This was before the science was in on boxing, but we knew what boxing does to fighters. It was right after Larry Holmes fought Ali and turned him into an old man at age of 41. So don't come on this show and tell me Muhammad Ali got out of boxing and then went on to live a healthy life. He was brain damaged. And he left boxing. Many think his Parkinson's disease was caused by boxing. One of my listeners who's in the medical field sent me a study showing a, 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 a link between Parkinson's disease and boxing. By the way, we don't know what really causes Parkinson's disease. Uh, that's why there's no cure for it. So it's impossible to give a definitive answer as to whether or not Muhammad Ali got Parkinson's disease from boxing. But what is certain is he was severely brain damaged at the age of 41. So don't come on my show and try to argue whether or not boxing caused Muhammad Ali's Parkinson's disease. This place isn't some freshman dorm room. I'd have a much bigger audience and a lot more money if it were. Don't come on my show and claim Muhammad Ali's brain damage and, and the, coral, the relationship to boxing is subject to debate. By 1983, the Journal of the American Medical Association had written two editorials calling for the elimination of boxing. In response, 
Muhammad Ali was interviewed on camera in 1983, right after he quit boxing. And he was asked if he had suffered brain injuries from boxing. This was before the Parkinson's. Shaking, barely audible, only months after his retirement for boxing, he was asked if he suffered brain injuries from boxing. And he whispered, it's possible. It's possible. We know boxing doesn't end well. You get punched in the head, it shakes your brain. It's why my kids weren't even allowed to head the ball when they played soccer. Your brain needs protection. And sometimes there's no way to protect it. Like in football, helmets don't work. And it is settled science that football causes irreparable damage to the brain. On Monday's show, when I was uh, rolling around in the gutter with my guest, I made a mistake. In what was supposed to be a conversation, but instead turned into a rhetorical pissing match, I accidentally said 99% of football players show signs of brain damage when their bodies are submitted for autopsy. And then I corrected myself and said, eh, 90%. And I was wrong. I was wrong for correcting myself. It was uh, an article that I was quoting that I had read in Science Magazine back in 2017. And my memory was a little shaky from taking so many metaphorical hits to my head during Monday's segment. See, hostility makes it very hard to remember things. When there's noise in your head, it's hard to remember there's no value to arguing. It makes people nervous. What I said on the show to my guest on Monday was, quote, the science is in on the connection between football and brain damage, unquote. What I should have also said, not only is the science in, it's in Science, the magazine. This is from uh, Science Magazine. It's on the screen right now. It's an article I read back in 2017 by Meredith Waldman. Let's do a little internet literacy here. Science Magazine is published by the American Association for the Advancement of Science. It was founded in the late 19th century by Thomas Edison, and it is the world's oldest and largest general science organization. It is affiliated with 262 other scientific societies and academies around the world, and its research and writings are among the top cited in academia. This is where you go to quickly ascertain whether or not fossil fuels are responsible for climate change, which they are or if 9-11 uh, was an inside job. Okay, I'm going to read from Science Magazine. This is the article about the connection between football and brain da damage. The largest study, and I'm quoting, the largest study of its kind has found damage in the vast majority of former football players' brains donated for research after they developed mental symptoms during life. Of 202 former players of the U.S. version of the game whose brains were examined, 87% showed the diagnostic signs of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, a neurodegenerative disease associated with repetitive head trauma. Among former National League players in the sample, that number jumped to 99%. Okay. That's from Science Magazine. Show hasn't started yet. 
So I'm not interested in anecdotal evidence. It is a fact that boxing and football cause irreparable brain damage, as does heading the ball in soccer. This is from the Washington Post last month. Okay, this is from the Washington Post last month. Bruce Murray spent years heading the ball. He worries it took a toll. This is by Stephen Goff. The American soccer star now in his 50s is dealing with dementia and suspected chronic traumatic encephalopathy. That's from the Washington Post. Uh, The science is in. Football and boxing are inferior to soccer, assuming you don't head the ball in soccer, in which case soccer is also inferior to basketball, tennis, baseball, pickleball, and dare I say, golf. That's not an opinion. That's a fact. Now, for my guest on Monday to then say, then don't watch it, that's not good enough. That's like saying if you think cigarettes cause lung cancer, then don't smoke them. In the end, this is always about money, as I said at the top of the show. This is a fight over money. The cigarette companies wanted to keep making their billions. So first they suppressed the science and they also suppressed the conversation and make it about freedom and don't get the nanny state and government intervention. The same applies to boxing and football. There's millions to be made off of boxing and football, billions and billions and billions to be made off UFC and mixed martial arts. So first they suppress the science, then they suppress the conversation. It's about freedom. It's about choice. Well, it's also about misleading the players and the parents of those players who get involved in a game that has been normalized by people without realizing it's going to destroy the lives of those who play it. It is irresponsible not to pass judgment on any sport that causes brain damage. Players and parents of players have every right to know that boxing, football, mixed martial arts, I'll show uh, their studies that were sent to me since Monday, will destroy your brain and your life. Fans should know exactly what they're looking at. They should know exactly what it is and what it causes. Now, Am I saying outlaw mixed martial arts, UFC, boxing, and football? No. I am saying there is science that is out there, hard science, proving the skull is not hard enough to protect the brain from repeated hits and kicks to it. That is more important, more important than who wins the Super Bowl or who wins the welterweight UFC boxing title last Saturday. It's not good enough to come on this show and say, then don't watch it, don't play it, or don't smoke it. No, we are trying to create a civil society and football, boxing, mixed martial arts, and soccer do not exist without government. It is government that builds the stadiums for the professionals as well as the kids to play in. It is the government that often pays the medical bills for broken down fighters, football players, mixed martial artists. It is the government that pays for the domestic abuse, the self-abuse, the drug abuse that is so often associated with CTE. 
When CTE becomes a public health matter, which it is, then the government steps in, as in wear a mask. COVID is a communicable disease that kills people. Wear a mask or a helmet. Wear a helmet. Well, the helmets actually don't prevent CTE. And that's the problem with football. Uh, And there's a problem with boxing. And you cannot allow soccer players to head the ball because this affects all of us. You don't wear seatbelts, then your crash affects all of us because it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to keep you alive after you go through the windshield. So we pass laws mandating seatbelts. We pass laws limiting how fast you can drive. You're free not to wear a seatbelt, but not on my road. You don't want to wear a seatbelt? Go buy up your own land, build your own highways, Drive on those and go as fast as you want, but not on my highway. If you're going to use the roads built by the people, you follow the rules of the road, which over time have been written based on science. We go with the best science we have at the time. And money will massage that science to convince us otherwise. And we have to be careful because money... Is the, enemy, is the enemy. Automakers don't want to make safer cars because it costs them money. So they use their money to silence their critics. We are, whether you like it or not, communal beings. We die if we're not part of a community. There's a lot of loneliness right now in America. This country is dying because of hyper-individuality. Uh, We're dying because we've lost our sense for what is good for the commons. That kills your soul. It's killing America's soul. It makes you sad, lonely, depressed, and angry. And that anger often manifests itself in the enjoyment of blood sports like football, boxing, and now mixed martial arts. This is a new sport. This is a... My first exposure to mixed martial arts was as a kid through Bruce Lee, who died at the age of 32. Some say from an aneurysm in the brain. Others say the mixed martial artists mixed the wrong prescription meds. I don't know. I just know it's sad. It didn't end well for him. It also didn't end well for his son, Brandon Lee, who was accidentally shot to death, Alec Baldwin style, on the set of The Crow. The bullet was fired by one of the villains, uh, one of the actors who was playing the villain in the movie who was raping the protagonist's girlfriend. Sounds like an interesting storyline. Am I allowed to say that I personally don't enjoy violence? Is that okay? Am I allowed to say maybe these video games and action movies are at best a waste of time and at worst a trivialization of violence. Can I say that? Can I say that emergency room physicians say that gunshot victims of a certain age are always startled to discover how much getting shot in the leg actually hurts? Am I allowed to say that uh, I don't think children should be taught that might makes right and that conflict resolution is best realized through violence? Am I allowed to to say that I don't think that's the best message we should be sending 
our children or each other. Look, I try not to look at pornography, okay? It's hard. But I'm bummed. That's not what I was trying to say. It's hard not to watch pornography. It's all over the place. But can we at least agree that too much pornography, like too much violence, is not a good thing? Can we agree that it can become an addiction? And can we agree that that's problematic? Can we agree that a society inured to violence tends to get more violent, that maybe it's a good idea not to expose our society to too much violence, unless, of course, you want to turn them into warriors, which uh, this is a country that spends $1 trillion a year on defense that we know of. Perhaps uh, these blood sports are part of a propaganda campaign to get us to want to kill each other and people overseas. I find anger and rage addicting. I will have Dr. Hershenfeld on the show in a little while, and uh, we can talk about it. I suspect a psychiatrist would tell me that anger and rage create a narcotic effect. That's why arguments escalate. It feels good to argue and scream. It does. But it creates a narcotic effect, and narcotics are not good for the brain unless you need narcotics to relieve pain. If anger and rage and violence are narcotics, then they get addictive. And it means it's not good for the brain, it's not good for children, and it's not good for our democracy. Until you, my guest from Monday, can present science that proves otherwise, shut your effing mouth, you dim-witted poser. Boy, that that felt so good saying that. Shut your effing mouth, you dim-witted poser. Feels, really, I I wish I, I'm glad I didn't call my guest a dim-witted poser. But it feels good to think about it. See, the body, when you're angry and raging, it produces adrenaline, and adrenaline is addictive because it feels good. Makes you aroused and focused, so you want more of it. Your amygdala, your lizard brain, starts kicking your prefrontal cortex's ass. It takes charge. Your amygdala, your lizard brain, takes charge. Arguing, screaming, exhibiting hostility, and establishing intellectual dominance floods the body with delightfully resplendent hormones and chemicals. I've been there. The whole country is there. Rage and anger is the poor man's control. Let me repeat that. Rage and anger is the poor man's control. When we feel or know we have zero control over our lives, we have two choices, get depressed or lash out at the world. And by at the world, I mean somebody else. Doesn't matter who it is. And that makes you feel uh, like you're in control. Lashing out at the world, you go from feeling powerless to feeling you're in control. I can control another person intellectually in an argument, 
and I can control my temper. I'm in control. I, I didn't get violent. I, I'm still angry, but I won that argument. Even though he doesn't know it, I won. And then over time, a couple of hours, the hormones in your body, the adrenaline, it all breaks down and you're back to where you were. But now you've lost a friend or a lover and the argument. This is a serious problem for the right wing. That's why I was so disappointed to, to see this on Monday's show. This is a problem that I thought was endemic primarily to the right. Uh, so we need to be nice to each other on the left. We need to have civil discourse. And let's make sure that's just a problem for the right. Uh, I'd like to think if you're sane, by now you've stopped arguing with that crazy uncle who voted for Trump. You've probably figured out that your crazy uncle is fueled by liberal tears. His entire philosophy is resentment towards anyone in front of him. It's myopic. And he's been brainwashed to believe there's a limited amount of money out there and only those who bust their ass deserve any. You toss in a little American dream and patriotism for good measure and you've got this clown convinced that billionaires deserve all their money. He's been brainwashed, your crazy uncle. He's been brainwashed to believe that the rich are not paying their fair share to the government or their workers uh, because they deserve all their money. That's what he's been brainwashed to believe. In fact, he thinks they are paying their fair share to the government. He thinks they're paying their fair share to workers. It's the free market. And it can't be his fault. Nothing is his fault. Now, your, your crazy uncle, odds are, because money is getting concentrated into fewer and fewer hands, odds are your crazy uncle is financially insecure and he's terrified. And because of propaganda, He's been taught to blame somebody else for his precarity. It's not his fault because he works hard, which I'm sure he does. But he listens to propaganda, specifically training his brain to direct his rage at anyone other than the people paying for that propaganda. Most of that rage is directed towards liberals, then Marxists or socialists, then people on the left or Democrats. It's really quite brilliant how they manipulate the quite stupid. Your crazy uncle is stupid and he's filled with rage. And when you ignore him, which you should, he's left with fewer and fewer punching bags. And that's beginning to be a problem for the right wing. If we don't engage them on the left, then they have no choice but to eat themselves. That's how they ended up with Donald Trump, who is either going to destroy the Republican Party or America. One of the two, if not both, is going down. Let's hope it's the Republican Party here. This is this week, Trump 
Lashed at it, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said he has to be replaced immediately because he's a pawn of the Democrats. He also said that Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Show, is crazy. She served as Trump's Secretary of Transportation. I don't want to talk about uh, Elaine Show. The big problem with the right is they're feeding off each other. They're eating each other. And that's why I found Monday's show so disturbing. I had a guest on the show who came on looking for a fight over fighting. He was deeply offended and took umbrage that I don't approve of mixed martial arts. But instead of discussing it, he decided to just fight me. That's what he decided to do. He pretends to come after me because I think mixed martial arts fuels bloodlust. But instead of throwing that punch, he kicks me in the head, accusing me of conflating mixed martial arts with three cops beating a suspect, pounding his head into cement down in Arkansas. And then when I try to explain that I wasn't blaming police violence solely on MMA, I was merely saying that blood sports normalize violence. It uh, uh, UFC normalizes the notion that might makes right to the point where people watching the video of those cops in Arkansas beating the shit out of that suspect. Some people begin to identify with the oppressor, not the victim. I believe that mixed martial arts and boxing make it harder for people to look at that video and be appalled. I wasn't saying cops beat suspects because of mixed martial arts. I was saying the normalization of blood sports normalizes this kind of violence and makes it more acceptable. That's what I was trying to say, but my guest was more interested in beating me up. It was sad because I actually like the guy, but he was looking for a fight on Monday and there was nothing I could say that wouldn't trigger his anger. He wasn't looking for the truth. He was looking for a fight. And that's especially embarrassing for him because it proved my point. Fighting, whether it's physical, emotional, inter or intellectual, it's bad. It's bad for the brain. I know humans fight. I fight but I know it's wrong because fighting is failure. It is failure that humans choose a life of mixed martial arts. Fighting is failure. Boxing is failure. It is failure that human beings choose a life of boxing. We have failed as a society when Joe Rogan, as a child, feels the need for three black belts to protect himself from bullies. I totally get the artistry of martial arts, but mixed martial arts draws too much blood and involves kicks to the head. Like boxing, like football, mixed martial arts is not a good choice for kids or adults to play or watch. I will watch it sometimes and I will Enjoy it, but just like pornography or a lap dance at a gentleman's club, there is a level of exploitation we should all be aware of.
I'm not saying outlawed, but we should be aware of the exploitation and we should be aware of the long-term damage these things cause to the players, the performers, the audience, and society. I am not calling for censorship. In fact, I'm the one being censored. I try to show my audience on Monday what mixed martial arts really looks like, because you do have to see it in the right context to understand what it is, to pass judgment on it. But Disney, which owns ESPN and our children, Disney owns our children, they won't allow me to show it because they want to control the narrative. So obviously, I am opposed to censorship. I'm not saying ESPN should stop showing ultimate boxing or ultimate fighting. UFC is a new sport. It's more popular than boxing. People should see it. I'm afraid a lot of people haven't seen it yet. There are a lot of fighters getting kicked in the head. A lot of blood on the mat. A lot. Uh, I can pass judgment on a sport without wanting to ban it. I have values. I'm entitled to express my values without being told or accused of censorship. I'm allowed to tell you what I value. I value unconditional un, uh, love. I value forgiveness. I don't value war or violence in any manifestation. I find boxing and mixed martial arts violent, and I find it sad. And it makes me believe that society failed most of the people in that octagon, as well as Joe Rogan, who's doing the play-by-play, and the thousands of screaming fans. I think society failed everyone involved with UFC. And I think people who uh, promote the idea that might makes right are failing society. You want to come on this show and explain to me why I'm wrong? You're more than welcome. Go ahead. Uh, one of my listeners after Monday's show sent me some preliminary studies on MMA showing the long-term damage to the brain. More will come out. I can assure you uh, it's no different from boxing or football. You get kicked in the head once, just once, not good for the brain. Uh, in mixed martial arts, you get kicked in the head uh, a lot. All sports are not equal. All drugs are not equal. I can't stop someone from doing meth. All I can do is explain what the long-term effects meth have on your body, as well as our society. And I can tell you about the people who, because society has failed them, are forced to deal it. That's what you're participating in when you choose to do crystal meth or cocaine. Uh, I am not looking for a fight or an argument. So don't come on my show looking for one. Also, my guest on Monday, we're on the same side. So show me some tenderness. 
uh, and maybe some respect. I show respect for, for everyone. I deserve respect in kind. I never brag about my accomplishments on this show, but over the course of my career, and I'm not making this up, I was telling Leslie about this before the show started, I have peed standing next to Larry King, Don Pardo, and Hugh Hefner. So maybe you should listen to what I have to say before you jump all over me. Okay, the show is starting. It's true. I, I peed standing next to Larry King, another time next to Don Pardo, and another time Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner spit on the ice in the urinal. Hugh Hefner was the most disgusting pee pal. Don Pardo, Larry King could not have been nicer, although Larry King was a close talker in the men's room afterwards. He just, he's a close talker. I don't like to do close talking in, uh, in a men's room. But uh, I want a little respect for my McDuration accomplishments. I'm Dave, Jesus Christ. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 83 degrees and sunny. Well, I'm going to skip ahead here. Uh, yeah, we won't talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene. They're right. It is a slippery slope. First, you cancel professors for denying climate change. And next thing you know, they're canceling all that debt students are racking up. Where does it end? Joe Biden actually kept a campaign promise yesterday and announced he was forgiving $10,000 of any college loan with the Department of Education. That's only if you earn $125,000 a year. And if you receive Pell Grants, you qualify for an additional $10,000 of forgiveness, Joe Biden, on Wednesday. Both of these targeted actions are for families who need it the most. Working and middle-class people hit especially hard during the pandemic, making under $125,000 a year. Republican Minority Leader Senator Mitch McConnell said he adamantly opposes relieving the nearly $2 trillion of student debt, calling it, and I quote, a wildly unfair redistribution of wealth. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Uh, by the way, only 6% of people who owe student loans owe more than $100,000. So this debt relief is, it's significant. It's going to help a lot of people. It's going to relieve debt for a lot of people who can then use the, the relief to go rack up new debt. Jason Furman is a former advisor to Barack Obama. He was in the uh, White House. And this is what he tweeted. Uh, pouring roughly half trillion dollars of gasoline on the inflationary fire that is already burning is reckless. Doing it while going well beyond one campaign promise, that's $10,000 of student loan relief, and breaking another that all proposals paid for is even worse. That is Jason Furman. He is a former economic advisor to the Obama White House. He says 
this is inflationary, uh, giving uh, people in their 60s are still paying off their student loans. Giving them some relief is going to cause inflation. Why would he say that? Well, Jason Furman now teaches economics at Harvard. He is the Aetna, A-E-T-N-A, Aetna professor of the practice of economic policy at Harvard. The Aetna, as in Aetna Insurance, professor of economics. That's who pays his salary. Uh, he is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute, a corporate-funded think tank set up after the Powell memo in 1983 to promote the mythical free market. The free market doesn't exist. Uh, the Peterson Institute, where Harvard's very own Jason Furman works, has been described as, quote, the locker room of the team globalization and a free trade cheering squad. F you, Jason Furman. I guarantee you, by selling his soul to Aetna and the Peterson Institute, he doesn't have any student debt. California is experiencing one of the worst droughts in its history. The state is the breadbasket to the entire world, much like Ukraine, but it uh, California, because of the drought, is now leaving 530,000 acres of farmland empty because there isn't enough water. California is imposing water restrictions on its residents, but there are reports that important people like Sly Stallone, who just announced his divorce from Jennifer Flavin. I think her first name is Jennifer. Jennifer Flavin is a great Jerry Lewis name. Jennifer Flavin, Kim Kardashian, Wayne Wayne Wade, Wayne, Wayne Wade, Kevin Hart, and Sylvester Stallone have all been cited for exceeding their water budgets by several hundred thousand gallons of water each this month. Do you think they even know? Do you even think they know that their estates are wasting hundreds of thousands of gallons of water each day? Here's someone who's exceeding their their water budget, the owner of the boat My Saga, or Saga, which is registered in the tax dodge of the Cayman Islands, sank, went underwater in Italy. I hope you can see this. Uh, My Saga was built in 2007. She can accommodate up to 12 guests in six staterooms with eight crew members waiting on your every need. Isn't she beautiful? My Saga teak deck, a steel hull, and aluminum superstructure that will allow you and your loved ones to sail off to oblivion, assuming it doesn't sink. There we go. There we go. Oh, $8 million. Why doesn't Jeff Bezos? Remember Jeff Bezos used to, you know, try to salvage sunken ships? Why doesn't Jeff Bezos go, uh, go underwater for that ship and stay there? China is experiencing its worst heat wave on record, and government officials are warning it could have a negative effect on this year's harvest. In uh, 2006, China surpassed America as the largest producer of greenhouse gases. It is responsible for 27% of all global emissions. Meanwhile, drought conditions have resulted in the Yangtze River's lowest levels in 150 years, and that has uncovered Buddhist statues that have not been seen for nearly 600 years. 
This is incredible. Some interesting news coming out of drought-stricken or flood-stricken Texas. It's amazing, isn't it? Texas, uh, which sits upon the Permian Basin, which is causing climate catastrophe. It is uh, drought-stricken and flood-stricken. I believe the Bible would call this end times. Well, uh, Texas is also where Dinosaur State, Dinosaur State Park is located. Dinosaur State Park in Texas. Can we all agree that all of Texas is a state park for dinosaurs, at least in their thinking? Well, they found in a dried up riverbed at Dinosaur State Park uh, something that thrilled paleontologists. They discovered dinosaur tracks from around 113 million years ago. Isn't that, that is incredible, 113 million years old. It's almost as old as Governor Greg Abbott's views towards women. Earlier this week, the EU declared that Europe is experiencing its worst drought in 500 years. Nearly half of Europe is under drought conditions. The yield on summer crops is expected to be down by nearly 16% this year. Well, French President Emmanuel Macron, re-elected earlier this year, pulled a Jimmy Carter and leveled with his people. He actually told the people the truth. Macron this week warned, quote, that the age of abundance is over. He declared that the world is at a tipping point. He said it is the end of insouciance and that world leaders must speak frankly and clearly without, without fear-mongering. And he said the age of abundance is over because of climate change. Off the heels of last week's Inflation Reduction Act, which will reduce carbon emissions by 40% in the next 10 years, after, off the heels of this being signed into law, California's Air Resources Board voted this week to mandate cars powered by gasoline will be banned, banned by 2035. You can't sell. Jay Leno will still be allowed to drive around California farting carbon dioxide into the air or whatever uh, his car runs on. Uh, but you can't buy any new uh, gasoline-powered cars by 2035. This is huge because California is the seventh largest economy in the world, and automakers fall in line when California mandates a change in how they allow cars to drive their roads. The ban must be approved by the Environmental Protection Agency in Washington, which has already given the ban a go-ahead. So elections have consequences. This is not going to happen with a Republican president controlling the Environmental Protection Agency. Ah, that is some good water. Uh, by 2026... 35% of all new passenger cars sold in California must have zero emissions. In eight years, 70% of all cars in California being sold must have zero emissions. This is big. Traditionally, 16 other states follow California's lead on regulating 
automobiles. This is some good news, right? Uh, okay. Palestinian President Mohammed Abbas was greeted in Turkey on Tuesday by Turkish President Erdogan, who promised that Turkey has not abandoned the Palestinians, even though Israel and Turkey last week established diplomatic ties. Turkey expelled its ambassador from Israel four years ago when Donald Trump moved the American embassy to Jerusalem. Protests resulted in Israel shooting 60 Palestinian protesters. That was four years ago, Turkey and Israel have now established or reestablished uh, diplomatic ties. Imran Khan, the cricketer, cricketer star who served as the 22nd prime minister of Pakistan, up until uh, April of this year, appeared in court today as police investigate whether or not he violated Pakistan's terrorism laws when he delivered a speech on Sunday coming out in support of his former chief of staff, who was arrested for telling soldiers to disobey orders coming from the current leadership. Imran Khan will find out whether he is going to be officially arrested sometime later next week. The Indian Air Force this week announced the firing of the three soldiers who accidentally fired a missile into Pakistan back in March. Uh, really, just, just going <laughs> to... Uh, India and Pakistan uh, both have nuclear weapons. Uh, takes three months to fire these guys. Pakistan and India have fought three wars over the disputed territory of Kashmir. Uh, not good. On Wednesday morning, the United States launched airstrikes targeting Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard stationed in Syria. Nobody was killed, said a Pentagon spokesman. The strikes only targeted nine storage facilities, said a Pentagon spokesman. The Pentagon then said three American soldiers were injured today by two rocket attacks while they were in their housing facilities stationed in Syria. America responded by killing two or three, not sure, Iranian-backed militants who the Pentagon insists were behind the attacks on our soldiers. There are currently 900 American soldiers stationed in Syria they were sent there to protect Kurds from both Turkey and the Syrian government. UK, Ukraine's President Zelensky celebrated the 31st, I think it's the 31st anniversary of Ukraine's independence from the Soviet Union by declaring Ukraine will never give up in its war against Russian occupation. And Russia celebrated Ukrainian independence by firing rockets at a Ukrainian train station in the city of Chapline, killing 22 people, including children. It is now six months since Russia launched its illegal invasion of Ukraine. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, says we're basically looking at a war of attrition until, he said, Russia and Ukraine hit the bargaining table, as well as America. I've added, he didn't say America. Now, as we enter our seventh month of war in Ukraine, President Biden announced the largest U.S. aid package ever for the Ukrainian military. 
Biden is giving Ukraine $3 billion to spend, to buy from, hmm, who? Who would they be buying from? From us. Air defense systems, radar systems, and of course, bombs, 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 and more bombs. This despite the UN chief Antonio Guterres calling the war senseless. But it's $3 billion more this week for the military-industrial complex. Congratulations, David Rubenstein, chairman of the Carlisle Group, you effing piece of dung. Alexander Dugan, a Russian philosopher known for his ultra-right-wing fascist and racist worldview, he's been described by some as Vladimir Putin's Rasputin, well, on Sunday, a car bomb exploded near Moscow, killing Dugan's daughter, Daria, who, like her father, has been sanctioned by the United States. This week, Alexander Dugan blamed Ukrainians for the assassination and demanded revenge. The Pope was called out by the West for calling the assassination of Dugan's daughter sad and calling the war senseless, our Pope. Well, Tuesday was election day. In Florida, former governor and former Republican, now Democratic Congressman Charlie Crist, won the nomination for governor to take on Ron DeSantis, who had this to say about Anthony Fauci announcing his retirement this week. I know he says he's going to retire. Someone needs to grab that little elf and chuck him across the Potomac. Uh, Ron DeSantis is fat. Ron DeSantis is fat. Hey, he calls Fauci an elf. Ron DeSantis is a fat pig. Um... <clears throat> what was I talking about? Oh, well, Charlie Crist responded by making all of us wonder uh, if we're not pronouncing his last name properly. Go ahead, Congressman Crist. I'm going to beat him because I'm running on love and love always wins. Yes, more like Charlie Christ. What a great guy that Charlie Christ is. Love always wins. He's filled with love, Charlie Christ. I hope he wins. I hope he's governor of uh, Florida again. Last time he was governor, he was a Republican, but now he's a Democrat. He's a good man. He's a good man, Charlie Christ. He doesn't think he's a good man, though, and that's where the, the, the problems are. That's uh, where the problems are with Charlie Crist. I forgive, but I do not forget. In 2008, Charlie Crist, Republican at the time, I think he was the governor of Florida, I think. Uh, he supported an amendment to Florida's constitution banning same-sex marriage. Even worse, Back in 2008, that was just 14 years ago, he opposed same-sex couples adopting children. I forgive, but I don't forget. He's trying, 
and I'll talk about this in a second, he's trying to make us forget, uh, and that's evil. Uh, I forgive, but I don't forget Charlie Crist. In 2014, after he switched and became a Democrat, the LGBT community, LGBTQ community, forgave Crist after he gave an interview saying, quote, I'm sorry I did that. It was a mistake. I was wrong. Please forgive me. He, he apologized for banning same-sex marriage and trying to ban same-sex couples from adopting children. He added in his mea culpa, I made a mistake. I'm not perfect. Please don't hold me to that standard. Well, then don't run for office. If you, if you, if uh, perfection, uh, I forgive you. I don't forget, but I'm looking for perfection. He concluded, I understand when it's necessary to say I was wrong. That's the journey I'm on and I'm still on it. Well, does that mean you're going to reverse course? And, you know, we do have people opposing same-sex marriage. You know, we have Clarence Thomas after the Dobbs decision. So the Dobbs decision, I keep, after the abortion decision, saying we should re-examine Ogerfeld, overturn same-sex marriage. You're on a journey, Charlie Crist. You say you're still on it? You know, journeys start where you begin. Your journey started with you trying to prevent same-sex couples from adopting children. Where are you going on your journey? Back to the Republican Party? Uh, I forgive Charlie Crist, but I don't forget. Uh, the LGBTQ community forgave Charlie Crist, and they've endorsed him. They endorsed him for Congress when he ran as a Democrat. But he caused a lot of pain a lot of suicides. And whether you like it or not, when politicians want to ban same-sex adoption, they set the stage for emotional and physical violence. I forgive Charlie, but I don't forget. But you're trying to make us forget. And this is what I find so utterly offensive about Charlie Crist, who I hope beats Ron DeSantis. I believe uh, the Clinton machine brought him over to the Democratic Party. And I believe there are moneyed people, probably from the Clinton, the Clinton machine, who have helped, who have paid Charlie to scrub the internet I've been doing this show for 13 years. I remember Charlie Crist. When you Google the question, is Charlie Crist gay? Uh, there were a lot of entries. Google, is Charlie Crist gay? And I find rewriting history, scrubbing history, really offensive. Because, as you know, I started today's show talking about how we arrive at a truth, not through arguing, not through fighting, by research. 
And Charlie Crist obviously paid tens of thousands of dollars for somebody to scrub the internet of stories about his sexuality. Google is Charlie Crist gay. A lot of stories used to come up. Don't anymore. Back in 2009, HBO aired a documentary directed by the very well-respected Academy Award nominee or winner, I think he might have won an Academy Award, Kirby Dick. Uh, he's been on this show several times. I believe he came on this show to promote outrage, I think, but he's been on this show uh, a couple of times. He did the Woody Allen, Mia Farrow documentary on HBO, uh, kind of proving that Woody... You know, hmm. uh, Kirby Dick gets gets his facts straight, and he got his facts straight about Charlie Crist not being straight. And it was an important documentary. It's called Outrage because it was during uh, the fight for uh, equality. There was a fight for equality going on in 2009, marriage equality, same-sex adoption, and a lot of Republicans who opposed same-sex adoption, same-sex marriage, were closeted. And so the debate was against really sick men. Closeted Republicans like Ken Melman who was head of the uh, Republican Party in 2004. He was a closeted homosexual. They're sick in the head, and they're dangerous if they're Republicans lashing out at same-sex marriage and same-sex adoption. They're trying to destroy the, what they consider to be the beast within, and it's violence. And Kirby Dick and HBO performed a public service by outing these virulent homophobic politicians who were homosexual. Uh, I forgive Charlie Crist. It's actually not up to me to forgive Charlie Crist. Uh, but I'll forgive him. I hope he wins. I hope he beats Ron DeSantis. But I don't forget, and I really find it offensive that he spent tens of thousands of dollars scrubbing the internet. So when you type in, is Charlie Crist gay? Practically nothing comes up. Like I said, while he was in the closet, and I don't think he's come out yet, which he's free as a Democrat not to do. If you're a Democrat, it's nobody's business if you're gay. If you're a Republican getting gay people killed and you're in the closet, your mental illness must be exposed. And it was exposed in the 2009 HBO documentary Outrage. Kirby Dick, a great, great director. Everybody should just look up Kirby Dick. It's a great name. Kirby. And just see all his documentaries. When he was promoting outrage, 
He said back in 2009, quote, this is one of the real problems with the closet. When people vote against who they are for political gain or maybe to fight a rumor. Outrage focuses primarily on Charlie Crist. I hope I didn't say Charlie Kirk. If I did, I apologize. I'm Charlie Crist. I'm talking about Charlie Crist, the, the Democratic nominee for governor in Florida, who I hope wins. As I said, uh, watch the movie Outrage, where Charlie Crist is outed, as well as several other virulent gay bashers. And Outrage shows that Crist just wasn't a hypocrite. He was setting the movement back decades. Look, I forgive, but I don't forget. Charlie Chris needs to make good with America by telling the American people that the harder a politician fights to bash gays, the harder their penis gets when they see or think about a naked man. Same-sex marriage is not a given. It's just a decade old. This country is moving back backwards. I don't appreciate Charlie Crist scrubbing the Internet. He's seen the light. He's for same-sex marriage and same-sex adoption. I don't believe he ever came out of the closet. He doesn't need to. He's now a Democrat. But he caused a lot of hurt. And he needs to explain why he caused that hurt. He caused that hurt because he was trying to kill something inside of him to prove to others what he wasn't. It's sick, dangerous, and it gets people killed. And here's the real problem. He's running against Ron DeSantis. Trust me. In the next three months, this is all Charlie Crist will be talking about. You can scrub the Internet, but the Republicans, just like me, have a long memory. Wrong candidate, kind of like Joe Biden. Once again, the Democrats picked the wrong candidate. If, if... We don't, we being the Democrats, don't take back the House. I hope you get used to two words, Hunter Biden. Hey, you know what? Uh, Biden is putting numbers on the board. Not enough, but, you know, I'd rather have him than uh, Trump. I'd rather have Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, uh, but he is putting numbers on the board, but he was the wrong candidate. It was political malfeasance for Clyburn and Obama to pick a deeply flawed man like Joe Biden, a deeply corrupt man like Joe Biden. That laptop, you better hope, for the sake of this country, you better hope the Republicans don't take the House because... We're beginning to get things done. Not enough 
got the wrong guy as president to do it. We lose the House. It's just wall-to-wall impeachment. Representative Mondaire Jones will not be going back to Congress. Mondaire Jones, Congressman Mondaire Jones, was the first openly gay black member of Congress. Unlike Charlie Crist, he was uh, proud of how he was born. And Mondaire Jones is serving his first and last term. This will be his last term. Unfortunately, this is sad. Congressman Mondaire Jones, not going back to Congress, on Tuesday he was defeated in the Democratic primary by MSNBC darling Dan Goldman, who was lead counsel in the first Trump impeachment. Goldman, God bless him, not God bless Goldman, Goldman was endorsed by Donald Trump, a mischievous Donald Trump. God bless Donald Trump. Goldman's personal net worth, this is a Democrat, Dan Goldman's personal net worth is a quarter of a billion dollars. That disqualifies him. That disqualifies him to take on Mondaire Jones. He is an heir, Donald Goldman, uh, Dan Goldman, is an heir to the Levi Strauss fortune, like he ever wore blue jeans. He graduated from Yale and Stanford. Then again, Mondaire Jones went to Stanford and then on to Harvard Law School, so F the both of them. Good riddance to Mondaire Jones, although I think he's braver than Dan Goldman. But... uh, should not be electing Democrats, not helping electing people who are worth a quarter of a billion dollars. Just, just wrong. Uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman in Pennsylvania lived on his parents' couch until he was 50. Dr. Oz makes fun of him for that. Well, Dr. Oz is running against Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman to be the next senator from Pennsylvania. The seat is currently held by a Republican, but it looks like it's going to flip because Dr. Oz is a piece of shit. Some of you may not remember, but Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman left the campaign trail earlier this year after suffering a stroke. He's now back, and Dr. Oz is a a surgeon, a doctor, and he obeyed his Hippocratic oath by mocking his opponent for having a stroke. Not making that up. Dr. Oz told supporters that Fetterman is out of shape and then jokingly said Fetterman never would have had that stroke if he tried a vegetable. That's funny. And yes, of course, he's endorsed by Donald Trump, who loves vegetables, as we know. And by that, I mean he's endorsed the vegetables like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. 100 Pennsylvania doctors responded by condemning Dr. Oz, stating he endangers patients with misinformation. 
Dr. Valerie Arcouche, a medical doctor and a spokesman for Real Doctors Against Dr. Oz. I love that title. Real Doctors Against Dr. Oz. She said this. We're here today not as Democrats or as Republicans, but as doctors. Marking the beginning of an effort across Pennsylvania to make it clear to our patients and to all Pennsylvanians that Dr. Oz's run for the United States Senate poses a major threat to public health in our Commonwealth and in our country. And uh, it was revealed this week that Dr. Oz uh, working for Donald Trump, was lobbying the FDA to uh, use hydroxychloroquine uh, to, cure, to cure COVID. An email to Jared Kushner came out this week where Dr. Oz is singing the praises of hydroxychloroquine that we have to get it available because it will kill the virus, the proof. It's incontrovertible. The studies show. This is Dr. Oz writing to, I guess, Jared Kushner, who's also a scientist, that we, we've got to get hydroxychloroquine into the, into the marketplace. There is not a single study that shows that hydroxychloroquine cures or prevents COVID. More from Dr. Arkush. Today, we'll talk about the harm Oz has caused making his fortune as a TV scam artist, promoting reckless medical advice, and about how his extremist, anti-woman, anti-choice agenda would further endanger the health of Pennsylvanians. Dr. Oz is a fraud. He and will continue to put enriching himself above all else, even when it means endangering people's health. Not only did Oz promote and defend junk COVID treatments like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, but he called for reopenings during the peak of the pandemic, arguing that a two to three percent mortality rate for students would be worth it. Oz compared vaccine mandates to forced sterilization and lobotomies and said COVID vaccines weren't true vaccines like childhood vaccines. Oz simply isn't trusted by real medical professionals. Georgetown University researchers found that more than 75%, 75% of the recommendations he made on his show, quote, did not align with evidence-based medical guidelines, unquote. Wow. Uh, what was that, a two-minute soundbite? Uh, <laughs> I just, that's great. I love the fact that I can play two-minute sound bites. Maxwell Frost, I love that name, Maxwell Frost, a 25-year-old March for Our Lives organizer who 
got thrown out of a live event featuring Governor Ron DeSantis while he was shouting, guns are killing us, Governor, please save us. Well, he won the Democratic nomination for Florida's 10th congressional district on Tuesday, beating out my friend, Alan Grayson. Uh, Well, it is a solid Democratic district, and that means he's going to win the general and he's heading to Washington, D.C. That would be Maxwell Frost, 25 years old, endorsed by Bernie Sanders. Ah, Laura Loomer was also running down in Florida. You know who Laura Loomer is? This is from Mother Jones. Uh, she's a 29-year-old Republican, and she ran against Congressman Daniel Webster, in Florida, to the right, to the far right, she, um, it's kind of interesting, she hates Muslims, and she says she wants to fight for Christian nationalism. Uh, okay, problem is she's Jewish. So, just trying to unpack this. Jewish woman hates Muslims in Florida. Okay, uh, I don't condone hatred of Muslims, uh, but I understand that there are stupid Jews, so I can understand a stupid Jewish woman campaigning in Florida saying that she hates Muslims. But she then said she will fight for Christian nationalism. Okay, I again, uh, I don't think, I know there are stupid Jews, but I don't think they can possibly be this stupid, right? A Jew fighting for Christian nationalism, not too bright. Uh, she was banned uh, from CPAC, in 2019. She's also been banned from Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, PayPal, GoFundMe, and Venmo, but she hasn't been banned from the Republican Party and gave uh, Congressman Daniel Webster, Republican, uh, more of a fight than, uh, than she should have. She had a lot of supporters. Well, Laura Loomer, 29-year-old, is stupid, and she refused to concede. I'm going to play a clip of her, what should have been her concession speech. This is uh, obviously not a bright person, and you tell me if she seems a little unhinged. I don't pass judgment. We are losing our country because of big tech election interference. And I am pleading with the Republican Party to please start taking this issue seriously. Please. Because the American people deserve representation. And that's a... That's why I ran for Congress in 2020. It's why I ran for Congress in 2022. And it's why I'm going to keep fighting for all of you. I'm never going to... I'm never going to quit because this is... Nobody else will hire me. This is all I can do. 
Uh, yes. I, if you watch that video, you see that these people are bringing, there's another reason they're running for office. Something else is missing. And uh, when you discuss politics with somebody, you should keep that in mind, that they're bringing something else to the conversation. They don't want to move. I'm not saying everyone. I'm, I'm talking about a certain type of person does not want to move the ball forward. They want to get into the ideological octagon and make you bleed because they have rage issues. They're not interested in making this a better world. I have been conducting some experiments with old friends of mine who have gotten the Trump bug. And I'm trying to deprogram them. And it's fascinating. I will not talk to them on the phone. I, two or three of them, well, no, it, well, I'm down to one because they quit. Two or three of them, be, three of them began my inquisition, started it last week. And it's just a series of questions. Yes or no. And, and it has to be via email. You cannot uh, talk to me on the phone. I, I just want to know what you believe. And uh, I get them answering simple questions. Do you believe we are a Christian nation? Do you believe Jesus wrote the Constitution? Do you believe in Medicare? Do you believe in Social Security? Do you believe that uh, the free market can solve problems like poverty? Those kind of questions. And I get them. They, and they, each one of them goes off on a rant against Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, do you believe, I'm not arguing, I'm just asking questions. Do you believe that fossil fuels are the primary source of climate change? Al Gore's an asshole. Al Gore flew on a private jet. <laughs> like, no, just answer. But, and these are somewhat, one of them is a lawyer. And they, I, and they cannot answer the questions without going off and raging at me. They are bringing something else. That's who Steve Bannon and Trump have tapped into. That's who Richard Nixon tapped into with the Southern strategy. You tap into the insanity of the American people and you feed it. And it becomes about something other than a more perfect union. And why do you do that? To win. To win for whom? To win for the people who have all the money. You win by any means necessary. It's kind of interesting when, when, when Trump supporters who can write are forced to write down what they believe. They themselves are shocked and they get... Uh, they quit. They won't do it. You can't get them to say it out loud because, because the interpersonal dynamics, it causes ranting and raving and violence. If you just get them to write out their answers without arguing with them, just get them to say out loud that gay marriage is better left to the states. 
Okay, better left to the states. Okay, and in the state you live, would you allow, would you vote for gay marriage? What about abortion? It's better left to the states. Okay, in the state you live in, do you believe in abortion? Forcing them to answer questions uh, in their mind is an act of violence. Uh, I'm accused of taunting them by simply asking, what do you believe? It's fascinating. I'm thinking of writing the test out and offering it to people to deep, try to deprogram uh, your crazy uncle. But it's got to be written, and it, 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 you can't allow them to rant and rave. And if you can't allow them to rant and rave, they're not interested in politics. That's what Trump, that's what the Republican Party has tapped into. I'm out of time. The Hershenfelds are coming up. Professor Ben Burgess is going to be joining us later uh, in the, uh, he's coming on at the end. In uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, a jury on Tuesday convicted two men who conspired to kidnap uh, the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. That was two years ago. Uh, the FBI brought the case, and this has been described as uh, an attempt by these anti-government extremists to launch a civil war. The... Uh, they were found guilty of conspiring to obtain a weapon of mass destruction to blow up a bridge. But uh, there was a lot of marijuana involved. And a lot of people, including Peter B. Collins and Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Marianne Cummings will be on the show later, think uh, the plot never would have been hatched had it not been for the FBI uh, helping them along. By the way, Laura Loomer doesn't believe that Joe Biden is president. So how can you impeach uh, Joe Biden if he isn't president? Uh, let's see. Let me just quickly go through these stories and we'll play some Professor Mike Steinel. Uh, the federal government, Merrick Garland, is looking into the killing of Breonna Taylor. She's the 26-year-old emergency room technician who was shot to death when seven uh, plainclothes police officers in Louisville, Kentucky, burst into her apartment and uh, fired 32 shots at her boyfriend. And all 32 shots missed her boyfriend and hit Breonna Taylor, killing her. The federal government is looking into this. They say her civil rights were violated. And an ex-officer has pled guilty to falsifying the uh, search warrant for lying on the affidavit. That's what uh, several of the police officers, when they went to the judge to get the uh, warrant, they're being ac accused of falsifying evidence. Where am I? Oh, there you are. Okay. Remember Rayshard Brooks? He was sleeping. I think it was in a Wendy's in Atlanta. And the cops hassled him. And 
woke him up and harassed him. And I guess they were going to arrest him. He stole their stun gun. So they shot him. An investigation was held and the government will not be pressing charges against the police officers who killed Rayshard Brooks. This is uh, coming out of Florida, and then we'll wrap it up. A Bradford County, this is from the San Francisco Chronicle. <clears throat> A Bradford County, Florida sheriff's deputy pointed his gun, screamed at, and handcuffed a pregnant mother during a traffic stop for speeding earlier this month all while her three kids looked on. If you make any movement, it'll be the last mistake you'll ever make. Deputy Jacob Dessou told Ebony Washington, who is black, with his gun drawn after she stopped her vehicle. That's according to body camera footage from the incident. Uh, did I mention that? I think I mentioned that uh, Rayshard Brooks was African-American. I hope I mentioned that. Gavin Newsom has vetoed the safe inspection site bill. They were going to create areas. Well, they have them in San Francisco where you can shoot up uh, and in a safe environment. And it was passed in the California state legislature. Gavin Newsom, who's running... For president, obviously, vetoed it. And Paul Pelosi has been sentenced to five days in jail after pleading guilty to crashing into another car, car while drunk, and he got five days in prison. Why don't they get him for inside trading? Uh, and I'll end on this. San Francisco Chronicle. This is Nancy Pelosi's town. Poop complaints have swelled in all San Francisco neighborhoods, except this one. Which one? Well, uh, that's the wrong one. Is it this one? I thought this was it. Hang on. The Tenderloin. Uh, let me read to you. This is a serious problem in San Francisco. Homelessness. Uh, they've priced uh, anybody who's not a millionaire out of the market. You cannot live in San Francisco <clears throat> if you would. So people are pooping in the streets of San Francisco. This is from the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, at 1,465 feces related calls per 1,000 residents since 2008. So for every 1,000 residents of San Francisco, uh, there are 1,465 feces. So that means for every resident of San Francisco, there have been one and a half complaints about human feces. The Tenderloin has had among the highest rates of feces calls in the city. Uh, oh, my God. This is Nancy Pelosi. And so they've installed something called, where is this? Pit stop bathrooms. Uh, 
they can't give the homeless homes, but they can spend $100,000 to over $600,000 a year to operate a single pit stop bathroom. That's what they're willing to. It comes out to $28.50. I'm not making this up per flush. That is San Francisco's solution to homelessness, to spend anywhere between $100,000 to over $600,000 a year for a single pit stop bathroom that comes out to $28.50 per flush. The problem See, that's San Francisco. The problem, they think, is getting the feces off the street, not helping. They'll spend $600,000 a year per pit stop to get rid of the feces, but not help the homeless. That's Paul Pelosi and Nancy Pelosi's hometown. They're landlords and they're worth $200 million dollars. Uh, right. We will be back with the Hershenfelds. Professor Ben Burgess joins us after Professor Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky. Office hours every Friday night, this Friday at 8 p.m. Please join us and go to my website for the link. Sign up for my newsletter while you're over there. Uh, if you subscribe to my newsletter, it comes out on Friday that also includes the office hours link. All you need is Zoom, meet better people, come to office hours, back with the Hershenfelds. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there. By and by, as long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, and thirty-two thousand years. I know it's a long time, honey, to thirty-four thousand and twenty. But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. All I really need is a second job or a third. Lift myself up my boots and join that elite herd of the 600 billionaires in the USA who make more in a second than I do in a day. I'm on my way. Yes, I am. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there. Yes, I do, by and by. 
As long as I stay healthy and I never die As long as I stay healthy and I never die As long as I stay healthy and I never Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. And uh, go to my website to, to sign up. And don't forget, if you live in Seattle or Port Townsend in the state of Washington, this Friday night, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog will be playing the Thing Festival. This is, uh, it's not Bumbershoot, it's better. He'll be at the McCurdy Pavilion Friday, August 26th at 10 p.m. Special guest, Ken Jennings from Jeopardy. So if you live in Washington State or you're near Seattle, go to the Thing Festival and go see Triumph the Insult Comic Dog at McCurdy Pavilion in Port Townsend, Washington, at the Thing Festival, you will laugh till you uh, start laughing some more. Nobody funnier than Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. Although, our next guests come pretty close, I think. Ethan Hershenfeld is the author of Today Is Now. Do we have him? And we have Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, Freudian... Do you, do you see me? Yes, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld joins us. Okay. Uh, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld joins us. He is a Freudian psychoanalyst. I believe he's coming from Cape Cod today. Yes, exactly. Yes. I have a lot happy, to Happy to be here. Thank you. I, I have a lot to discuss with you. Okay. Uh, I, by the way, in answer to your question about why people believe these outrageous things that you were discussing before. Yes. This is not my idea. I read it. Somebody else wrote this, that the concept of right or wrong no longer exists in America. The only concept that makes any uh, headway is win or lose. So to win, you do anything that you think will help you win. Lie, cheat, steal, make up in cra crazy stories. There's something fundamentally disturbed, not with our entire society. I, I wouldn't go that far, <clears throat> but with important parts of it. Okay. I have a lot I want to ask you. So, it, By the way, is Ethan coming in? I thought he was. He's uh, out of town. He was just shooting a movie. Okay. Well, um, maybe going. he's still shooting it. I don't okay. know. Yeah, that's right. He, he got the part. So He got the part. Yes. Congratulations. Let's, let me ask you about discourse in America and violence and addiction to anger. I had a, and I told you this, about a month ago, I blew up and it felt good. And 
it became addictive and I just wanted to keep blowing up. And I wanted to ask you how that relates to something like mixed martial arts, boxing and football and whether or not blood sports play any part in uh, anesthetizing us or revving us up and inuring us to the realities of violence? Um, I, I can proffer opinions on this. <clears throat> Whether I'm right or wrong is a whole different matter. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, the Romans had the Colosseum. Well, we, at least we've progressed past having wild animals tear up our, the people we don't like as a form of entertainment. But I, I don't think you can point to any one thing and say, this is doing the job. I think that there's a... a um, to some degree, there's been a degradation in society. But has it always been there? Yes, it's always been there. We had the Crusades, for example. That was, you know, violence, mostly for violence sake. So it, it, I, I think it's a constant battle within ourselves and within society. Look at you. You're a primary case. <laughs> you apparently really enjoyed blowing up. Yes. Right? I have toxic okay. male rage. Yeah. So, and by the way, it, you know, to some degree, I, it goes with comedy. There's yeah. always some degree of hostility in any joke. If there's not, it's, it's just too bland. Right. You're poking fun at somebody. You're, 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 you're doing something slightly aggressive. With, with Don Rickles, it was, you know, 96% aggressive. People, <laughs> people still laughed at him, you know, right. that, he was funny, but um, Bob Hope, you know, was 3% right. aggressive. Did Freud say that comedy is saying what you're not allowed to say, or is that, was that attributed to, is that true? I, I remember reading somewhere that Freud <clears throat> said comedy is an act of aggression, but it's also stating what nobody else is allowed to say. Yes, it's, it's saying it in, a, in an acceptable manner. Like, you know, all the abuse I subject you to almost every week. You know, I, I can say, ah, just kidding. Right, but it's not funny that way. <laughs> if you say you're just kidding, it's not funny. And it wouldn't be true. So right. <laughs> going back to mixed martial arts, yes. boxing. 
Right. Have we failed society? The people who engage in boxing, have has society failed these people? Traditionally, that's what I, I always believe that traditionally boxing was a manifestation of where society failed certain people. Well, you, you could say that, but that form of, of violent entertainment has always been around. And it's traditionally been um, a way for the, the most disadvantaged people to try to come up in the world. It's sort of like uh, buying a lottery ticket. Mm -hmm. Your chances of winning are very slim, but the chances are there. Is it possible? So, I agree with you. Is it possible, however, that we're missing something? That that violent that that boxing or mixed martial arts is not about punching out of the trenches, that it comes from a, a, a love of the sport. They call boxing the sweet science, and I believe yes. it is a sweet science. Is it possible we're missing something? Where boxing uh, is, is a choice and it, it, it's not a reflection of poverty or societal abuse? Well, I don't know what the statistics are, but I would bet that the vast majority of people who are boxers did come from disadvantaged backgrounds. And in America, you know, it's been different ethnic groups at different times who were producing the boxers. Irish, Italians, Jews, blacks. Well, they didn't let they didn't let Jack Johnson fight white people. No, the same know. way they wouldn't let black people play baseball. Right. So that's that uh, for two reasons: racism and a deep-rooted knowledge that they would lose. Yeah. So. So. Violence in movies, yeah. uh, in sports. Right. Is it harmless for kids to, in your, again, it's not, there's no, it's, I'm coming to you for a recommendation. I know that there's no absolute answer here. If I were to come to you and I say to you, my, I have a, 14-year-old child who plays violent video games, watches mixed martial arts, and uh, seems to have, seems to relish violence. And I don't like that. Uh-huh. Would you tell, am I wrong for not liking that? Absolutely not. I think part of parental duty is to limit exposure to stuff like that. I don't think it's good for anybody, but 
the studies that I'm aware of seem to show that for vulnerable children, whatever that means, whether they're psychologically more vulnerable or have had trauma in their background, for kids like that, it does set off a chain of violent behavior. So I would say it's it's risky. Okay. If for, I, for any kid. If I were raising if I had a, a teenage son and I said I believe the world is unfair and in a perfect world there would be no violence, but we don't live in utopia. We live in the United States of America, and this is a kill or be killed culture. And if you don't know how to protect yourself, you're going to get killed. And I tell that to my son every day. And mm. we go to movies that reinforce the idea that it's kill or be killed and that in the end, might makes right that it doesn't matter what you believe, as you said at the top of your segment, it's who can win. And I'm coming to you because I have a child who is not doing well, but you can't convince me that uh, I'm wrong for, for telling my son that might makes right, get in the game, kill or be killed, and he's floundering because he's weak. He needs to get tougher. Would that be... If I came to you, what would you tell me? What would your... I would tell you, not this baldly, even though I'd feel like it, because it would really piss me off, but I'd, I'd try to get around to the idea, and it's a very hard thing to accomplish, <clears throat> that, that, sir... You are paranoid, and you are passing this paranoia on to your son, and it's not going to do him any good whatsoever. It's going to harm him in life. Remember the song, A Boy Named Sue? Mm -hmm. That's, you know, the basic attitude behind that. <clears throat> there certainly are a lot of people like that who try to raise their kids like that. How successful they are, you know, that's um, that that that's not going to be uh, determined except through time. Some of it is chance. Just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean your kid is going to be paranoid. Could. You're going to make it maybe more likely. Sometimes, often, kids right. totally revolt. Right. And they have a father like that, and they, you know, become hippie peaceniks. Right, right. So it's, it's you know, raising kids is uh, complicated. Right. Would you agree, though, that, Parents, schools, and society have to have, and I can't believe I'm asking you this question, but these are 
some things I've been wrestling with because of what happened on Monday's show. There was a conversation, and I am I genuinely am, am trying to. There, there are certain things that I've accepted that I'm discovering. Mm, some people don't agree with me, so would you? Would Freud say that the building block of civilization is teaching people that might does not make right and that neuroses come from that, but uh, that that you that the only way civilization can survive is if we instill in children and citizens that might doesn't make right. Isn't that a basic foundation of civilization? It is, along with uh, the judicial system, so that you have some awareness that if you go over a certain line, if you beat somebody up just because you feel like it, you're going to be hauled in front of a judge. That's that's part of... Uh, our right. civilized society. Right. Part of it is teaching. Part of it is religion. I am not religious, but, and I see all sorts of major faults in religion, in any religion. But on the other hand, I think very often it helps control some of these um, destructive impulses. Right. Maybe not in the best way. Maybe through the use of fantasy. Oh, you, when you die, you know, where do you want to be going? So there's, there's a, lot, a lot of problems with it, according uh, in, in my eyes. But at the same time, we have, to a large degree, given up religion, and therefore given, and, and we have not put enough effort into teaching some of these things on a secular level. Somebody wrote, just this past week I read somewhere, that politics has become our substitute for religion. I forget who wrote this, but somebody smart did. And that makes a certain amount of sense. And if you remember the Hundred Years' War and other such things in history, religion can get pretty violent. So maybe we're seeing politics get pretty violent if that is the substitute. Right. And our founding fathers knew this. So the yeah. First Amendment right. said, keep your religion out of the public square. That's in the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause. Uh, there's no, they didn't write separation of church and state, but it was implied. Yeah. Getting back to aggression. Yes. When I was growing it up, it's, it's in all of us. When I was growing up, my father was a World War II veteran, uh, served uh, with the Luftwaffe. We were very, no, uh, it's an old joke. Uh, my father 
came home from World War II, wasn't into guns, was a pacifist, uh, was against the Vietnam War. But when I got into fights, fistfights, he wanted to know who won. Sure. And he was disappointed when I came home uh, when Harold Diamond gave me a black eye because I was protecting Barry Grossman. Uh -huh. And he wanted to know how the fight ended. And I remember right. it vividly. I, I remember uh, Harold Diamond punching me, in, and I got a black eye, and I shoved him to the ground, and uh, he, he said, the fight's over, the fight's over. Like He, <laughs> he saw that I had a black <laughs> eye, and, and he wanted to end the fight. He negotiated his own victory. If you'll notice, Feldman, Grossman, and Diamond, mm -hmm. that's how yeah. those, those fights tended to end. He said something like, you won, but I had the black eye. And I, and I go home and I go, yeah, I got taken advantage of here. I'm the one with the black eye. Harold Diamond tricked me. And my father, I could tell, was disappointed that I had a black eye. And I tried. Because he wanted to have a son who would be a winner. That's right. That's that's normal. So I when my son, who I never thought would have a violent streak, I noticed he got aggressive as he was, you know, 11, 12. And I said to him, you walk away. I don't care. Who, you walk. You run. I don't want you to walk away from a fight. I want you to run away from a fight. Mm hmm. Uh, the only thing I'll be proud of is how fast, how quickly you ran from that fight. And I, uh, he still got into fights. Sure. I got into lots of fights as a kid. As a matter of fact, I think it says this in my yearbook blurb. That I was the guy to call when some local gang started beating up some of the yeshiva guys. <laughs> and there's a part of you that's proud of it, correct? Absolutely. Okay. When uh, the Nazis were holding their Bund rallies at Madison Square Garden, right. Meyer Lansky yeah. sent in the Jewish gangsters and they beat right. the crap out yeah, of yeah. The, the, the Nazis. Uh, and uh, you get a feeling of satisfaction from a story like that. So violence. Did you ever read, did you ever read Ironweed series? I, I saw the movie with Jack Nicholson and Faye, Faye Dunaway. Okay. So in one of those... It takes place in Albany? Yes, the Albany series. It's a bunch of books take place up in Albany during the gangster, Prohibition, um, Irish, mostly Irish heroes. So there was this one guy, maybe his name was Billy Phelan. He was living in a, an encampment of homeless people. 
and the locals, and they had little tents, and they had families, and obviously the locals, who were not very well off themselves. This was Depression era. So a bunch of guys attack this homeless encampment. And you can see why they would do it, because they were threatened. They didn't want, they owned probably their own little homes that were not worth too much to begin with. But this homeless encampment was going to make their own investments even worth less. So the, they attacked the camp. And this guy, I'm pretty sure his name was Billy Phelan. He's in there. He's living. He's homeless. Sort of by choice. He left his family and, and rode the rails for some reason. And these local guys are tearing down everything. And he had been a baseball player. So he grabs a baseball bat. And he swings it at one of the attackers, gets him right in the knee. And as the author says, for the next 50 years, this guy remembered that SWAT because he totally destroyed the guy's knee. Remembered and it whenever, fondly? What's that? Fondly. No, he was the suffering. The guy who got hit remembered it forever. Oh, oh, because I see. his 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 knee was destroyed. And every once in a while, I remember this, and I take a lot of satisfaction in it. That's great. He should be um, remembering his evil deeds. Now, on the other hand, you, you could see his side of it also, and uh, nothing is that simple. And yet you would never instill, I don't think, in anybody the notion that violence is a legitimate form of conflict resolution. Not at all. But... I can empathize with that. I certainly don't think I ever encouraged anything like that in my kids. I'm sure they got in their fair share of fights. We lived next to a mafiosa in Pelham Parkway in the Bronx. And um, I go ahead because I grew up with mob, the kids of mobsters. Go ahead. One of my kids got in a fight with little karma. <laughs> little karma. This is, hang on, go ahead. I love this. And Sonny came over nose to nose with me. And um, whatever he said. And Ethan's brother still holds it against me that I didn't poke one 
in in Sonny's eye. (laughs) (laughs) And whenever this comes up, I tell him, you you know, I could have done that. Uh, I was bigger than Sonny. But but you would not have had a father. (laughs) Past that date. However, one day I um, realized I hadn't seen Sonny for a while. So I saw his wife out on the sidewalk. I said, hey, where's Sonny? <laughs> Sonny's away. <laughs> you, you know what away means. He's at college. <laughs> Sonny was away three to five. Did she say, come on in? Uh, no, you know, no, no, no. I, I grew up uh, in a part of Bergen County where the five families agreed that their capos, their low-level lieutenants could raise their families and you leave all your problems uh, mm-hmm. on the, uh, the uh, west side of the, uh, the east side of the Hudson River. Like you come to you come to this part of New Jersey, it's uh, what was Rome during World War Two? What do they call it? Um, I can't remember. Open city. An open city. Yeah. So but there were definitely some sons of mobsters. And as when we were playing sports, uh, I didn't elbow. I could have played a better basketball game, but uh I didn't want to end up in a wood chipper, you know, his yeah. father is so-and-so. We always gave us an excuse not to get into a fight or play too aggressively at basketball. Um, yeah. Well, this little, this little neighborhood off of Pelham Parkway was called Pelham Gardens. Had very lovely houses, very well kept. And it was very well policed. So, for instance, I worked at Jacoby Hospital in the psychiatry unit, which is right across Pelham Parkway. And one day we had a young African-American patient, maybe 17 years old. He split from the ward, AWOL, and he's back in about half an hour. And turned out that he crossed Pelham Parkway, walked into this neighborhood, and a patrol car picked him up like in nine seconds and whisked him back to the hospital. So these people were very well taken care of. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. This was great. This was great. Yeah, but I felt like Abbott without Costello. (laughs) Oh, you talked about, uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. But he got the part. He, he sent me a note. He yeah, was up for a part. So that's great. Uh, well, you are the father of the author of Today Is Now. Which I am. It gets the Feldman guarantee if you go buy, okay. to, if you get, if you buy Today Is Now, uh, you can do, I have to plug it this way. Uh if you go to Amazon, we, we, you're allowed to shop on Amazon for Today Is Now, and you purchase Today Is Now, and it doesn't make you happy. 
I will reimburse you. Today is now written by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. That is Ethan's alter ego. Go buy Today Is Now. It's a hysterical. This, this is his, his T-shirt. Can you read it? Slapstick Comedy Club. The world's was, the World Series of Comedy. Yeah, yeah. Is that in Boston? His, his name is on the back. It's in some city. You know, if it's not New York, I I, I don't recognize this city. Sorry. When my marriage was falling apart, yes, I had in the attic three garbage bags filled with T-shirts from every club I ever played. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he they tell- went in the garbage. No, 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 no. Oh no! I was walking around, and I noticed a lot of homeless people. Uh-huh. played the same comedy clubs <laughs> in the 80s that I did. And I went, somebody went to the attic and right. uh, thank you, Dr. It happens. Yes, it does. Uh, next week. Next week. Thank you, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. That was great. Thank you, David Feldman. That was great. Goodbye. Goodbye. Ethan, uh, come back. It was great. It was great being with your father and uh, what a great family. The Hershenfelds. Uh, thank you, thank you. Oh, you heard me say that. I heard you say that. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, whether you like it or not. Probably not. And you're. Do you need me to turn you off here? Let me turn you off there. Stop video. There we go. Give him some privacy. Uh, office hours this Friday night at eight p.m. Please. Go uh, to my website to sign up for office hours. And while you're over there, sign up for my, dare I say, amazing newsletter. I send out a newsletter every Friday, uh, being diligent. It includes an invitation for office hours. But if you don't want my newsletter, just go to my website and the link is right there. Office hours, Friday night at 8 p.m. I'm going to take a quick break. If you don't mind, when we come back, the host of the PETA podcast, columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, will be joining us. But first, let's play a song by the brilliant professor, Mike Steinell, whose new book is Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. Go to SavingCharlieParker.com. And by Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. And one of the songs from Saving Charlie Parker is Turtle, written and produced and performed by Professor Mike Steinell, Rosanna Eckert, her husband, Mr. Eckert. And when he comes back on Monday, he'll tell us everybody who's playing on this amazing song, Turtle, which is featured in the book-on-tape version of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel by Professor Mike Steinell.
Nothing better than that. That is Turtle, written and performed by Professor Mike Steinell. We'll get the names of the other people who performed on that track. The Eckerts, Rosanna Eckert, I know her husband. I think her husband, I think her husband's playing the drums. I'm not sure. On Monday, I'll find out who's playing on Turtle. It doesn't get any better than that. Emil Guillermo joins us. Thank you for Hi. waiting. Let me just ask Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. We're running 10 minutes behind. Are we putting anybody on the grill today, oh, Quizmaster? Uh, no, we are not. Okay. All right. Thank you, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. You're. I was going to challenge you. Me? Yes, I was going to challenge you to... Feel free. Feel free. Go yeah, ahead. That's all right. Um... How are you, sir? Why isn't your name coming up? I'm just t tending to something. Yeah, something doesn't feel right. Here we go. Let me try it again. I, uh, oh, I see what's going on. Okay. Uh, I, I had my first mochi donut yesterday. Wait a second. Is that a Korean? Well, I think it's more a Japanese than Korean. Mo mochi is the sweet rice flour, right? Mochi yeah. that, that you make. And it's fun to do with a loved one, like say, you know, your amorous partner, you know, you know you're know, you on a lazy Saturday or Sunday, make some mochi, it gets sticky. It gets, you know, it's it's very tactile. It's, it's fun to make, but it's even more fun to eat. Mm. And some people, they get into mochi by eating because it's like that soft, doughy kind of thing. And, a lot of people know it from like mochi ice cream. They put they stuff ice cream in a mochi, and people it's available at places like Costco. Got real popular, but so I'm just uh, my daughter's visiting me, and she was telling me about mochi donuts. I thought mochi donuts. I mean, that, what are they? And then I'm walking around uh, or driving around this part of the the Bay Area where there are a lot of Asians, and there was a shop that sells. It's called. Um, you know, mo it's called Mochi Delicious. It's a small little place, hmm. but they what they do is they take the mochi dough, and then they fry it up like a like like a donut. So instead of that soft gelatinous kind of mochi thing, sweet rice flour, it's it's like a do donut, and it tastes better than a donut. And then they they do weird things like have a a matcha. Uh, kind of frosting or a, a black sesame frosting. I mean, it's delicious. I've never, and, and it's, it's still fried. I think it's, well, and there's some oil because it's fried. So it's not as vegan as I'd like it to be. Mm -hmm. but it's delicious. Mochi donut. I mean, I've been on a kind of anti-sugar, anti-donut craze. I, you know, I, I binged on cronuts for a while, you know, New Yorkers know cronuts, right? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I got... Uh, you know what we love in uh, New York City also? What's that? D's nuts. <laughs> Have you ever tried D's nuts? <laughs> Which when, nuts you come to New, <clears throat> when you come to New York, I'll treat you to some of D's nuts. <laughs> please, please. I Yeah. Okay, yeah. D's nuts. D's nuts, uh... I can, I, I'm, I'm down. I'm down. I'm down. Mochi donuts though. 
I mean, it's, it's surprising. They're surprisingly good. And uh, so I, I went in this place where they had the mochi donuts, which is Japanese, not Korean. They had, do you, have you ever been to a Ranch 99? I'm going to ask you that in a second. Dan Frankenberger, late breaking news from the newsroom. Please. Okay. Yes. This is who plays on Turtle. Mike Steinell on trumpet. Chris yeah. McGuire on saxophone. Ro- Rosanna Eckert on vocals. Pat Cole, Pat Coyle on piano and the B3 organ. Carl Hillman on bass. Bass. I, I knew I was going to do that. I knew. Kind of fish. They play a different kind of fish. I knew I was going to do that. And Steve Barnes on drums. Steve Barnes on drums. I thought it was Rosanna Eckert's husband uh, on drums, but I was mistaken. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So you went to what? 99 what? Ranch. But before you get to that, weren't you ever a a jazz DJ in, in college radio? No. Because I, I, at the college radio station I, I was at, I, I did jazz, and they tell you have to do the back announce and get all the instruments right, and that and you said saxophone, but now alto, tenor, soprano. I mean, you know, you got to get down to the details there, right? And the bass, you got to get the right. Fish. I got the right. I got kicked off WKCR. I was. Going to college, WKCR is one of the best jazz stations in the world. And I had a radio show, uh, a comedy radio show that I did with like five other guys. And the host of, there was a literary show that they let me host. Because it was like during spring break. And this was a, a, they took themselves very seriously. Yes, jazz. And they, they had professors talking about Chaucer and. Um, Beowulf, I'm sure. Yeah. Beowulf. And T.S. Eliot. And I interviewed the author of How to Pick Up Chicks. <laughs> That's a classic in its own right. This was like 1980, I don't know, 82. How to Pick Up Chicks. It was, yeah, a, it was a book that was advertised at, at the back of one of those magazines right. that you weren't supposed to read, but you did. And I figured, I'm, this place needs F, F everybody. I'm interviewing How to Pick Up Chicks. And <clears throat> I wasn't allowed back. <laughs> they threw me out off the station, the college radio station. That was a classic. I, I remember that book. And I, I've seen that guy go on talk shows. I met him. I actually was hosting a film festival in Napa Valley 20 years ago. And he produced a movie and he was there and he was very artsy fartsy. And he said, that book is still selling. And I said, I'm still a virgin. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, I was a virgin, and I thought, you know what, this place, the, F all this, all these books. We got to figure out how to get laid. This, what this college needs is how to pick up chicks. Yeah, I know. That, that well, <laughs> I had to drop out and go to Texas. That's what I did. Yeah. So, 
That's a true hey, story. And I did get banned from the radio station. It's a jazz radio's loss. Yes. So uh, David Ranch 99. So is that, uh, is that in Vegas? Well, is no. It Carson yeah. City? Is, is this like something your wife, a place your wife lets you go to every five years? Well, actually, I go to it. I end up going to it like every 10 years when I have a pang or a need to feel Asian. You know, Ranch 99 is if you can imagine your Safeway, your Kroger, your Tom Thumb, your whatever you go to, Harris Teeter, your A&P. And they usually have like one aisle dedicated to foreigners, right? The other aisle. This is where you're going to get them. You might find your matzo there as well as your tortillas, as well as your, you know, your, you know, your siphon or, you know, your different type, type of Asian noodles. Well, imagine an entire row dedicated to Asian-ness, to Asian. It's like an entire Safeway supermarket of Asian stuff. Like, and, and it's because it's not just food. You can get walks, you can get uh, you know, boom boxes. I don't know if they still sell boom boxes, but electric gad electronic gadgets and cooker cookery kind of things. It's just a a wild bazaar. And so I had some time to kill. I went into Ranch Ranch ninety. I want to call it Rancho ninety nine, which makes it sound like a, a Latino place, but it's Ranch ninety nine. It's an Asian place, and it was like I I just got in touch with my Asianness there. I mean everything, every kind of Asian imaginable can go in there, and it's like an orgasmic experience. Hmm. And and every single animal part that you'd want to eat. I mean, I there were animal parts I didn't know they had. I mean, I, I know when I was a meat eater, I was kind of into weird food. Are you one of those kind of meat eaters? Where I would eat anything? Yeah. No, yeah. If, no, not at all. Really? Okay. Well, I'm one of those that looks like everything looks like, uh, you know, anything weird I was, I was into. And so I happen to be in, in the, the meat section. I have never seen this part. And I've seen everything sold pretty much, you know, pig feet, pig ears. Have you ever seen a female pig part uh you know uh, 20 years ago i could have made a joke that was you not, you're not gonna, i'm sending you up you're not going to go for no not gonna but trust me 20 years ago yeah oh you would have been all over i would have been all over that maybe uh, 25 years ago yeah willingly you're going into pre-diabetic shock because this is yeah so what 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 is what, is, what did you eat well, I didn't eat it. I just looked. I just stared at it for and a, a while. As a female pig part, a female. I, I and it, you know, like someone with a, a labeler had to spell it out. Was well, it? A, is that what it's called? The la, uh, her labeler. <laughs> she had a labeler, but she they, they put it on the. the Seriously, case. Is, is this what you're? Did you eat? I did not eat it. I just looked at it, David. I was just kind of shocked. I I I'd never seen this before ever, and uh, and I on my show that I do uh, on amok.com show episode three seventy five, I called it a beef part. My my mistake. It was pork. I I know what you're talking about, and from what, what I understand, what? if you eat this properly, yeah, 
it makes its own gravy. <laughs> but you that's... have to eat it the right way. And it takes a long, you have to eat it very, very, very I... slowly. You have to be patient with I, it. I think it requires some time. It requires You'll... time. You'll think you will fail, but it requires. A you may want to leave the room, make a sandwich, come <laughs> back. This is, I'm telling you, I, I have never seen, you know, pig feet, pig ears, pig snout. Pig, I have never seen the female part of a pig for sale. And I'll say it because it's, it's more, it sounds bio, biological. And it, not not necessarily a gourmet treat. Hang on, but it, hang on, hang on. Just say, just do it like this. So you actually ate her. <laughs> no, I, I hear it tastes like. No, David, I just looked at it. I didn't even touch it. I I didn't even touch it. Okay, all right. You want to know what part it was? What part was it? Okay, it starts. I, I, I'm bleeping you. It's just, I, I, kids watch this show. I, it starts with a U. The uvula. I don't think it was the uvula. No, the, I, the I, uvula. I that, no, it wasn't the uvula. It starts with a U. Let me see if I can guess. It, it's a female body part. Female body part. I'll put you on, I'll put you on the grill. Okay. It, and it starts with a U. Her undercarriage. Her under. Uh, I think you you'll find that in automotives. That's aisle nine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's not undercarriage. It's not undercarriage. No. And this, <laughs> hang on. So this is. It begins with a U. Begins with a U. Okay, let's do the whole uh, charade. And, hang on for one second. And and it and a woman pig has it, but not a male pig. That is correct. I'm getting, this is the syllable sign for, I don't know, for. It's called the, it's, well, it, is, 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 is it UT? University of Texas? She has a, her own University of Texas? Yeah, no. Uh, and it's not Uranus because everyone has one of those. Uh, is, it, is it her uterus? Ding, 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 ding. Yes. A pork uterus, five ninety nine a pound at Ranch Market. No, seriously. I'm serious. A I'll you can buy a pound of pig uterus for five ninety nine a pound? Well, let's be refined. It's pork uterus. Pork uterus. Is that? No, seriously. I'm, I'm staring right at it. I had to take a let picture. Me, let me I see said, it. Let me see it. I'm going to Ranch 99 to buy a pork uterus. They'll say, oh, come on, Emil. Uh, aren't you vegan? Let me see it. Let me see it. Show it. Show it? I don't okay. believe that you can actually buy pork. You see it? A little down. You see it? Pork uterus. It literally... Five ninety nine a pound. I, I'm, I'm going to wait till it goes on sale. I'm going to wait till it goes on sale. Because that's just the kind of guy I am. Now, what is the uterus? I, I, it's, a, it's a body part that I take for granted, I know. But when, they, when it's gone, you miss it. And, you know, it's a sad day. 
I, I think it's important in terms of I, I miss is that. that where, is that where I'm being serious? Yes. Uh, is that where the daddy sprinkles <laughs> magic dust? <laughs> you know, I'm being serious. I, I know it's, you know, I'm I'm a Catholic, so I just like believe it's all the lights all, are out. How are we supposed to know? All God's work. I right. just know that when I see a pork version of this, I, I, I'm just besides myself. Does it come with like an amniotic sack? Did it come? Let me see how to take that phrase. Does it, does it, does it? No, it look, it comes in a, look, a, a little like, like, like you would buy ground chuck, except this isn't ground. It's whole. See, do you see that? I don't think you can show that on YouTube. We already we already showed mixed martial arts and got dinged. Oh. Now we're show, now we're obscene. This is this is the filthiest show we've ever done. This says USDA five ninety nine pounds seven dollars seven dollars and seventy. I think there's a special waiver if it's under ten dollars. You can say it. I see. That's got to be a, a pretty good job being a USDA inspector. Checking out the pork uteri. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Asians were big on like you know the chicken, you know, the chicken sexer stories, right? That the, the Asians, the what? chicken sexers. You know the chicken sexers. I, my son, is he a chicken sexer? No, he sends me from when he was in. He'd go. I've got my. You want to read my, my paper on? You know. Uh, Chomsky and I go sure send it and he'd send me a t an attachment and it would be a chicken sexer. <laughs> so it was a guy. To t at least tell me what the chicken sexer is. Well, a chicken sex. You know the 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 chicks. When you're in a, a, a oh, he sent me a guy having sex with a chicken. I'm not talking about. I'm talking about a real functional. Oh, job. looking for the cocks on the cocks. You gotta separate. Look, here's the thing: the baby cocks. You're you're worthless if you're a male. If you're a chicken, right? Only the hens win, right? So you gotta separate the hens or the young hens from the boys, and the boys go bye bye, and the hens they keep and they they. So what uh, do they do to the the cocks? The, the baby cocks? cocks. You know, I I'm they separate. I I didn't. I didn't really follow what what happens after, but they're. Do they're, they grind? I bet they grind them up. They they are made for feed. I I I would imagine, but so that's for the I, longest I, I, time though. So that's a reason not to eat eggs. One of the reasons, yeah. Uh, if you're vegan, you wouldn't. But Asian Americans. Well, well hang are, on for one second. Can you can you eat, <laughs> or do you only eat a hen? Does anybody say, you know what, let's let that to be, grow up to be a man and, you know, I'm in the mood to eat some. I, look, I don't even know. Look, I, I, I'm sort of sorry I brought this up because, look, I'm, I want to be a good vegan. I would never eat a pig. Well, now I definitely am disgusted. You're, I mean, Well, I just like if you look at it and look what it looks like. It looks like it could be, you know, like a. a
Come on, Dave, Dave, you got to stop doing that, David. They'll th- you'll think they'll they'll think I'm funnier than I am. So- <laughs> You're getting a quiz next week for sure. <laughs> You're, you know, I I just don't, I can't imagine though how you'd prepare this. Dan, Scott. Dan, he's gonna he's getting the Inquisition next week. <laughs> yeah, he's gonna try to stump the hump. Yeah. Okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. Look, I'm a. I, I'll play. The, I'll play your games. I'll play. I I glad. I I play along. I play along. All Look, right. David, Let's you, talk about student loans. Yeah. And keep it clean. Yeah, of course. Well, you know, uh, people studying. Excuse me for one second. Can we get a better picture, Dan, for YouTube? The, the brain scans. What do you think? Do you have something in mind? Uh, pig uterus. I'll, I'll send no, you no, this. No, 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 no. Uh, I don't know. I'll take care of it. Okay. Thank you, sir. Th- that was a theme in the moment. I know, but it might be. What did we talk about on the show? It was a. Uh, is it called TBI? T- TBI. What is that? The brain injury. Oh, oh. yeah. But uh, I have a feeling. I'll take care of it. Yeah. It's better if it's a person instead of a body part. I thought about that, and that's two people. But I will take care of that it. That is two people. But I, I think, like, who's the person we're talking about on the show today? I'll take care of it. You said body part? Thank you mean, you. like, like a... A pig uterus? You know, your mind is right where I want it. Just stay there. I have never felt more alive. David, you- it's all about being alive. It's all about what is alive. And, you know, do you know about nonviolent communication, you know, Marshall Rosenberg's thing? No. I know you're talking about getting beat up by the mafia in an earlier segment. Yeah. But if we communicated about what, what, you know, what is alive? What is alive in, in our lives and in, in the moment? And if we talked about what's real, what our needs are, what we're feeling. And I'm sorry that my feeling today was around pork uterus. I'm still wondering how to fix that. You know, like, is it in a stew? Probably okay. like a stew, I would think. Uh, let us talk about... Uh, student loans. Student loans. Look, I, I'm I'm appalled by the hypocrisy of the GOPPP, GOPPPP, right. because how many millions of dollars that even the Republican congressman, to you know, got in terms of PPP loans, and then were forgiven, right? Mm-hmm. Matt, four hundred seventy-five thousand. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, about $180,000, right, given to them. And what does Marjorie Taylor Greene do? She's not even on a committee. Marjorie Taylor Greene just, you know, yaps her mouth. Maybe she was given the money to keep keep her mouth open. I'm not sure, oh. but she got she got $180,000 and it, for PPP, and it was forgiven. So, you know, in Moscow, Donald Trump got a PPP on me. <laughs> he got something. Uh, well, I, it depends Uh I, I just know that the on the this student is, loan forgiveness thing. There's a that, reverend. I just want you to know yes. that we have an actual reverend who's about to join us. And you have taken it into the gutter. But that's where you want it, David. But, no, 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 no. This is disrespectful to the Reverend Barry W. Lynn to be, to be talking, to, to be in the gutter without him able to participate. 
There he is. I said the gutter, and all of a sudden, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Oh, it's am I up? <laughs> hey. So anyway, the 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 student loan thing is is really outrageous because number one, it's not just elitist; it's also racist because the people who are suffering from from you know student loan default and they've done the office of education has done a big uh, study with the brookings institute uh 43% of these loan defaults are are black uh, you know students some of whom with BAs and it only shows that even with a BA BA being the dream that you can achieve and you can go on and you know better yourself you know in society they still can't get past gatekeepers and still can't can't get past the barriers that that hold them down and that the loan that they can't repay is because there's a double whammy they got uh, some of them have some of them have BAs some of them don't they don't they don't even finish but they're saddled with this debt and it sinks them further it becomes the albatross around the, the a lot of people a lot of kids get the loan a lot of kids come from families that are living at or below the poverty line. The money comes in, and I'm getting angry. Hang on. The money comes in, and then there's a family emergency. Yeah. And who in their right mind would not turn over that student loan money, or, or, the, or if you can't turn over the student loan money, at least... You're working to go to college along with the student loan money. So you, you turn over all the money you make working to your family instead of living on it. This is and the lie being told to them is rack up debt. Trust us when you graduate, you'll be able to pay it off. How dare anybody be against student loan relief how do well, here's the thing david most of the people who get the student loans some of them are two-year colleges the public mm -hmm. the jc's the juco's the junior colleges but a lot of these people are getting their loans because they've been they've gained admission to the private the private colleges, right? The private for-profit colleges, like the kind that Betsy DeVos's family, you know, engaged in. Are you talking about DeVry? Uh, I don't know if it's DeVry, but she was, her family was big on a private college and she had a lot of family, a lot of friends, a network of people who were into private uh, for-profit colleges. That was the whole, you know, we're going to get you, uh, we're going to get you a, a certificate so you could be a med tech and that kind of thing. Right. And they, they made they, her Department of Education. They put her in yeah. the... Exactly. They, the, the, the hen house, right? The, the, or the... Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the, the, yeah. The, so, Fox so, guarding, right. uh, yeah. And she, the Fox Guarding. The Fox News Guarding <laughs> the hen house. So, so here, here are her friends, right, who are, are benefiting because there she is as the head of the, the Department of Education. And they're making the loans to all these kids, you know, saying, here's the promise. And they're, they're, they're getting them in uh, to the schools, giving them the loans, and then 
they don't get the degree or they drop out because of unforeseen circumstances or because they get the degree and they don't get the job that was promised. And then they have the degree or the certificate and they have the loan and they're stuck and they default. And who are the people who are talking against student loan forgiveness? The Republicans protecting their friends who gave the loans or who gave admission to these people who were forced to get the loans in the first place. You know, I got to tell you something about Joe Biden. Yeah. Uh, On this, he kept a promise. Six percent of a student loan debt in America is over one hundred thousand dollars. So if you get ten thousand dollars relieved, twenty thousand of you had a Pell Grant. That's that's a big load. That's a lot of money. Secondly, he's playing hardball. The White House, as you just said, released all the people who are against relieving student loans. And the White House is going after naming names. Yeah. Hey, there's a website you can go to. Who got Uh, PPP money. Who got PPP money. And it's it's interesting. Kurt Schilling. Yeah, there's a lot of people that you wouldn't suspect, but they got it. And, you know, we don't know exactly how they spent it, if they spent it wisely, but it was money that was forgiven. It was money that, you know, and so forgiveness is part of their vocabulary for themselves, but not for these students. It's it's really. This is great. Kurt Schilling, the retired baseball player tweeted at my body, my choice, your loan, my responsibility. This isn't low. This isn't loan forgiveness. It's a generation of lazy, unaccountable, uneducated children being covered by hardworking, debt paying Americans. So the White House revealed that he got uh, how much? Two point five million. How much did he get? The company ultimately the company produces Rhode Island taxpayers ate $75 million after he went bankrupt, uh, when his 38 studios went bankrupt. Mm. Yeah, Kurt Schilling. He defrauded tax. The the state went after him for defrauding uh, taxpayers, and and, uh, he paid $2.5 million on a $75 million loan to Rhode Island taxpayers. F you, Kurt Schilling. Good for the White House for going after all these effing. Yeah, well, this is the thing about about Biden. You know, when he gave that speech this week, he really showed that he is, he's not a blue blood. All all the money he made came after, you know, you know, by, from being a politician, which is in itself kind of questionable. But, you know, look, he was a, a regular guy. He tells that story about his dad having to tell young Joe coming in with his baseball spikes after practice, having to tell Joe Biden that he couldn't borrow the money from the bank to get him to college. I mean, that this is a real story. I mean, imagine, just imagine Donald Trump saying anything about student loans and forgiveness. He, he couldn't do it. He wouldn't. It's impossible. So there's there's something about um, Biden now. He's sort of on a roll, although a lot of people think, oh, you know, why is Biden doing this? He's given the Republicans an issue. I think it's good. It's not everything that needs to be done with student loans, but it's a start. 
and you know he starts he needs to look at the private colleges department of education have to have, they have to look at the private for-profit colleges and how they operate number one and they got to look at you know how people can pay back loans after you know based on what what they make because what they found in this study is that the defaults go up after the first 12 to you know 20 years i mean it just you know, people start paying back and then they, they, they default after 12 years. And so things happen. Things don't work out. And, um, and I, I just think that uh, we, we have to look at the high cost of college. We've got to look at these private, private for-profits and what they're doing. I mean, really, uh, I don't know. I mean, the books, the, the information's all the same. What's what's so expensive about the things you learned back when, you know, when we were in college and what they're learning now? Why does it have to be so expensive? And why couldn't it be, why couldn't the system be like a, instead of K through 12 ending in high school, why can't the public responsibility or the public obligation be K through 16? Wow. You know, at Four years. Forget the junior, junior colleges, you know, K through 14. Add the two years, make it the full BA, K, K through 16. To, for America to maintain its competitiveness. Yeah, we, we, yeah, yeah. We, we have to wrap it up, sir. Yes. Uh, okay, yeah. I, I just get upset about student loans. Louder with Crowder. Got a, a PPP loan of 70445 and they forgave $71,208. The interest, yeah. the Daily Caller. Is that, uh, what's his name's? Tucker Carlson. Yeah, old. they got a $306,000 loan from PPP. Uh, the government forgave 308000 nearly 309000 So they forgave the interest as well. Everyone's These on the door. MFers, the Reverend... Thank you, Emil Guillermo. We're running late. Is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Read him over at ALDEF, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Emil Amuck, Emil's Takeout. How do people watch Emil's Takeout? I'll go to amok.com. And if, if I will put up the picture of the pork uterus that you will not show. In front of a reverend. Well, I think it's a... I think it's a virgin uterus. You're disrespectful. What this man has been going through this week, he, he's been packing boxes all week, and you bring up a pork uterus to a man who has spent all week putting his hand in dirty, disgusting boxes filled with and and thank you, Emil. Thank you, David. Love you. Love you, too. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn is a member of the Supreme Court Bar. He is a lawyer. He ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State for nearly a quarter of a century. Besides being a lawyer, he's an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. He is having a rough week. This is a rough week you're having. He's, you've lost your voice. You're muted. Can you hear me? No, you're still mute. You're still muted. 
no, no, no reverend, no reverend. He's, he's moving this week. He is uh, moving to another state out of Washington, D.C., and moving is considered one of the most, uh, like going through a, a move is almost as bad as, uh, hey, if you live in Port Towns in Washington, if you live near Seattle, if you live in Washington State or Idaho, this Friday night, that would be tonight if you're listening to this as a podcast, Triumph the Incel Comic Dog is playing the, McPur- the McCurdy Pavilion, the McCurdy Pavilion, Friday, August 26th at 10 p.m. He's part of the Thing Festival. And his special guest will be Ken Jennings from Jeopardy. Go see Triumph, the incel comic dog, playing the McCurdy Pavilion. I promise you, big, big laughs. Is your sound on? Reverend, no, it's not. Uh, we're having one. We, we had to start five minutes late today because I had technical problems. Uh, do you want to try? I don't know what to tell you. You want to call in? Use your phone? Do you have a, a, a phone number? Dan, can you help the reverend with with the phone? Number the uh, the invitation that came in his email should have the phone number. Do you do you have the invitation in front of you, Reverend? Or I can call you. I have an idea. Why don't you? Why don't I play some much needed? Why don't I play the brilliant Professor Mike Steinell, and then you email me your phone number, Reverend, and we'll do it. With you on the screen, don't don't hang up your Zoom, and you'll call in, and we'll get to see you and hear you. How about that? I'm a problem solver, just like Josh Gottheimer. I get things done, just like Josh effing Gottheimer, my sister's congressman who doesn't do town meetings, because Josh Gottheimer is a piece of human. Oh, I don't want to go there. All right, I'm trying to pick a song that I... There's so many great songs from Professor Mike Steinel. So much. It's an embarrassment of riches. I have an idea. Let's first hear some Donald Trump. I started the civil rights movement, David, giving basketball to the blacks. Okay, I'm not really sure that's true. I gave them basketball and rap. You rap. Are you familiar with Sugar Hill, David? The Sugar Hill people, the gang, the Sugar Hill gang. Of course, Angle, Anglewood, New Jersey, the Sugar Hill gang invented rap. David, not even close, David. I invented rap. I gave the blacks basketball and I didn't just give them rap. I invented it, David. You invented rap. The freestyle stuff, you know. Hello, hello. David, Wonder you, Mike, Master G, Big Bank, Hank. They used to do work for my father. And they saw me sitting in the office. And there was a nephew on my mom's side who worked for us. And he, he was slow, David. Hmm. Can you say that word now, slow? 
I think he can say slow. Well, yeah. let's just say he had a bad stutter and a stammer. He had a stutter and a stammer. You couldn't mm-hmm. understand what the hell he was saying. His name was Lonnie. So naturally, I called him Lilani. Because he had a stutter. So instead of calling him Lonnie like boring people would, I called him Lilani. It's a nickname, David. Okay, I don't understand what this has to do with you inventing rap. I gave rap to the blacks, David. Okay, you told me that. I I don't understand. I invented rap, David, and I gave it to the blacks. I'd go, Lanny, and the blacks started making records, go back and forth, one by one, two by two. I mean, scratching. Back and forth, they would go, wicker, 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 wicker. Scratching, yes. We used to scratching. call it, he's scratching. We used to call it Lillanying. Then the white man, the white man didn't like that, David. He made it his own and he changed it to scratching. But believe me, David, it was Lillanying. And it made my father smile, David. It made my father smile. My father rarely smiled. Great man, but I made him smile. I was the only one who could make my father smile by making fun of his wife's stuttering nephew, Lonnie. And that's how I invented rap, making fun of a stuttering and stammering nephew of my wife. Of your mother, a little Freudian slip there. Of my mother, sorry. A Freudian, yeah, yeah, same thing, same thing. You know, mm-hmm. wife, mother, daughter, all the same. <laughs> yes, I invented rap, David. I invented rap. I gave it to the blacks. I think the professor, are you there, professor? We have no, I'm Sam. here. I'm here. You, you cured it. Did you? Now, let me ask no, you. No, I, I got an expert to come in. No, you did. You let. You're a reverend, and you yes. laid hands on it, didn't you? you uh, did. Yes, I did. Okay, I knew. I, um, I was having a debate with Cal Thomas, who, of course, was, I think, the second most read syndicated columnist in America for a long time. But initially, he worked for Jerry Falwell. And we were having a debate up at a college in Albany. And um, a guy came up to ask a question with his arm in a sling. So Cal says, just a second, heal. (laughs) Did he really? Yes, he did. No, he didn't heal, but he was... um, it was very interesting because when we were flying back the next morning, we were on the same small plane. Oh, back. I thought he had angel's wings. He actually well, he might have had angel wings, but he he um, we almost crashed into a weather balloon. the The plane dipped precipitously. I mean, just so quickly that the breakfast just kind of floated up to the ceiling. Was he and, able to uh, keep his Was he able to keep his comb over? He. He may not have had it at the time. Oh. He was a younger man. Oh, okay. But anyway, he, uh, so for years afterwards, I, every time we would be on some TV show together, he'd say, uh, 
Yeah, I remember that time we almost hit the weather balloon. And then I'd say, you know, I'm not sure if it's because you were on the plane or because I was on the plane that we managed to survive. <laughs> <laughs> but, now, Cal Cow's an interesting guy. He, That's he would great. Not, That's so he, funny. He, he, did he, he laugh? Off. Yes, he Oh, yes, he did. Cal Thomas actually, among conservative religious reactionaries, is probably has the best sense of humor of anybody. And um, he also didn't have, I remember the shortest appearance I ever made on Fox News was with him. The subject was hanging the Ten Commandments in school school rooms and so the host whoever it was says you know what do i think and i said this is a terrible idea she turns to cal and cal goes no barry's right that's a terrible idea and <laughs> the, the segment ended i mean i think it was probably two and a half minutes and it was over wow. so he he did not he also didn't like the politicking that churches were doing. We actually did a joint press conference once at the press club over the idea that churches were actually endorsing candidates for public office. And much to the surprise of many on the religious right, Cal Thomas thought that was a terrible idea and was even willing to, um, to be at a press conference with me, who also thought it was a terrible idea. But when I watched the tape on C-SPAN, I noticed that as he walked by me, he was sitting on my left, he put devil horns up. Ah. You see? And then I saw them and I, but now he was, and I got into a big dispute over, uh, this was something I did not on behalf of Americans United, but there, there are these itinerant traveling theologians who go around and debate liberals about various points of theology. So I was scheduled to go to a, um, a, a presbyt very conservative Presbyterian church on Long Island to debate the question, can you be an authentic Christian and also be gay, or as they put it, be a homosexual? And I knew it was sponsored by uh, right-wing talk show host up in Long Island. And, and uh, what I didn't, I, I said I would do this only if they allowed the audience to participate. That was the one thing I said. And I got to the church and I saw a lot of cars. There were hundreds of cars. There were a lot of people with bumper stickers like evolution isn't true abortion stops a beating hard, all of that. So we engaged in a, what turned out to be a two and a half hour conversation, a formal debate. Walking up to the front of the church, the guy who was hosting it said, oh, uh, we did have one change of plans. And I said, well, what was, what's the change of plans? Said, We're not going to allow uh, any audience participation. I, and I said, that was what we agreed to. The, and I said, why would you change it? And why would you wait till now to tell me this? And I should have literally walked back right. and not participated. But the justification was that they were concerned that uh, ACT UP, the you know, anti-AIDS group, would come in and disrupt the church, which I right. thought was incredibly stupid. But so... 
then he started to sell videotapes of this event. So I had to get a cease and desist order, which I did. And I got to hire a lawyer, intellectual property lawyer in Los Angeles and cost me a lot of money. But I did win. I was awarded $1, which was about one ten thousandth of the amount of money I spent on this lawyer. But when the guy couldn't sell it anymore, he started to complain about this. This Big free speech advocate Barry Lynn won't let me sell his appearance at our debate. And he called, he wrote to Cal Thomas and Cal calls me up and says, uh, "What, what is this all about? And I said, look, this is my performance. I mean, you can't steal my performance. And he said, Stop. He he said, I don't let anybody sell any of my speeches at all. So you're right. He's wrong. I'm going to tell him to go jump in the lake. Right. Which, but so there is a certain principle there. And I wish every conservative had certain principles, but many of them do not. Well, let's turn. Yeah. Let's talk about the election. Let's talk about what, what Tuesday, what did you learn on Tuesday? Well, I learned that in special elections where you have... Oh, excuse me for a second. Could you hear there's uh, any noise? I apologize no. if I, you can hear this. I can hear a little noise, but... Is it it's distracting? Not disturbing me. No, Dan, Dan, is it distracting? Nope, it's good. Do you hear it? No. Oh, maybe it's in my head. Could be. Okay. Go ahead. No, so in the special election in New York State, uh, there was a reasonably progressive Democrat running against what turned out to be a somewhat reasonable Republican conservative who wasn't really campaigning against abortion. And in those cases, and the other guy, uh, the Democrat, was talking solely about the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And he did win. And he won by a slightly higher margin than Joe Biden had taken that district in in the presidential election right. year. And so everybody was getting very, very excited about this. And this I agree Murphy? that it's a Oh, yeah. Oh, the commentators for two days did nothing but talk about how this could be a bellwether for the future and not to worry. And Democrats are feeling happy and they should be happy. But I I just doubt that in certain races, it's going to make much of a difference because you're going to find people who um, are in districts that didn't vote for Biden, who it's 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 an important victory, but it's just not, in my judgment, it is not enough to prove that there's some kind of a magic blue wave coming in the House. I still think it'll happen in the Senate, but I don't see it happening in the House. And it, it, even going back to the Kansas elections that everybody was talking about, here is an effort to amend the Kansas state constitution to allow the legislature to pass restrictions on abortion. And it was, you know, the whole thing was very complicated. 
whether you voted yes or no, people didn't understand how they were going to vote. And you, you were supposed to vote no, not to change it. And, uh, you know, they voted no. But I'm just not sure that either of those is enough to prove that everything is going to work out just fine for right. Democrats, not, well, particularly not in the that. House. But let me ask you about that, because I know everybody wants a horse race. I know that every election starts with, well, we were expecting a red wave and now we have a game. We have a game going. Mm -hmm. The Democrats have come on strong. I, you know, I, I want to ask you, I, I always say on the show, I don't like to horse race, but right. we are, you know, what, 80 some odd days away from right. the midterms. Elections do have consequences. I am worried that the Democrats are going to lose the House because there is some progress being made and there's no or yeah there's no opportunity for the squad or the progressive wing of the democratic party to pressure biden pelosi and schumer to lurch to the left if our side doesn't control the house of representatives i mean everything is shut down it's investigation rama Biden's going to issue executive orders. Some will stick. Some will be overturned by the Supreme Court. I mean, he issued an executive order extending the eviction moratorium and the Supreme Court shot it down. I need the Democrats to win the House despite all their flaws. You cannot move the party to the left, you know, and get things done if they're not in charge. So... What do you think? I mean, I, I do think that when you factor in Roe v. Wade and women in this country and men getting the shit scared out of them, yep. the thought of losing not just same-sex marriage, but contraception, Yep. a lot of people are going to be coming to the polls How with Congress, the fact that I think his name was Murphy in upstate New York, outperformed Biden in a heavily red district. Isn't that somewhat telling? Isn't that yeah. a tea leave that indicates yeah. McCarthy well, won't be speaker? I think it's a tea leaf, but again, it had a relatively small turnout. It was, by the way, although Biden won it, barely in the last presidential election when it was the Hillary Clinton Donald Trump election it went for Donald Trump so so that's important it, it is important and the other thing that i read about the midterms is traditionally you get uh people with college education showing up during the midterms it's a have you ever heard this that you get a yes, smarter electorate turning out for midterms. So that does not bode well for the Republicans because only an idiot would vote for the Republicans. Yep. I do wonder. I mean, I have heard that and I think there's a lot of there's some data to suggest that it's it's higher, more highly educated people that come out in midterms. But I just I kind of breathlessly wonder 
every day when I get 15 requests for, from politicians to send me money that um, I just, you know, people have to make choices about where they spend whatever limited amount of money they have to spend on political candidates. And if people are running against somebody that's truly awful, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, that guy has just gotten millions of dollars, mostly, you know, from people all over the country, not not who live in Alabama. But I, I just, I, I don't see a chance that he will be that she will be defeated. And there's a huge amount of money being sucked out of the economy of progressives to fight people who are distinctly terrible human beings, but, you know, probably don't have a snowball's chance in hell of actually winning in the general election this time. But hope springs eternal. And I obviously hope you're right, and you absolutely are right, that with, if the House goes into full investigation Rama, they'll start with Fauci. And there was a, um, there was a little thing on Megyn Kelly's uh, uh, podcast this afternoon where she went on this tear about Mar-a-Lago, and it was all because of Biden, and Biden ought to be investigated, and Fauci ought to be investigated. I mean, she's kind of a nut also, uh, but in a racist also. But she um, she just took it to a new level today. Uh, she's not a... Uh, I remember the, the first time I ever went on Fox with her as a guest, um, it was about National Day of Prayer. And she actually said to me in the course of the conversation, why... Mr. Lim, why do you think prayer is necessarily religious? I said, no. It's a wow. smart comment. Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was uh, the nuttiest conservative comment of the day from one of these organizations that used to put that out every day. But I was. Um, what are we going to do about these people? What do we do? Well, you don't you don't give them more airtime than they deserve. I mean, it's really I when I was growing up, you know, Brent Bozell, these right yeah. ultra right wing crypto John Birchers were freaks. And you would put them on late at night along with UFO nuts and they would talk about <laughs> Literally, they would be on of these course. late night talk shows because they were amusing and they were talking about <laughs> getting rid of uh, everything FDR gave us, you know, getting us back to before FDR. And you'd listen and go, well, that's kind of funny. And, and so are the lizard people and the, yep. the, the, the creatures who live <laughs> below the Earth's mantle, all, the, all that stuff. If you're trying to fall asleep at night. It's great for insomniacs. They have now become the Republican Party. Yes, they Do have. Do you talk yes, to them? Have. I've been talking to some, a couple of them, a couple of older friends who, mm -hmm. are, who are Trumpists reach out to me looking for a fight. Mm -hmm. And I ask them to answer some questions for me. 
And that is, what do you believe? What is your ideology? They cannot do it. No. It's fat. They, they, they last maybe five. <laughs> one lasted 10 questions. Yeah. All I did was ask <laughs> them simple questions. Do you believe the war in Iraq was a blunder? Just answer my questions. Yeah. And it's you're looking. They accuse me of looking for a fight. <laughs> I'm baiting them. Of course. Is climate change man-made? Simple question. Yeah. And they can't do it in a conversation. Like, I won't do it in a conversation. Because they go, well, let's talk on the phone. I go, no, 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 no. I just want you to tell me what you believe. Right. Can't, they can't right. do it no, without flipping out. It's fascinating. <laughs> it's absolutely it fascinating. Is. And it cannot it be is. done. It can't be done through conversation. Because this is because they want to bring volatility. They want drama, arguments. They they want yeah. the adrenaline rush. I'm just looking to find out what they actually believe. <laughs> they can't do it. It's no. fascinating. Absolutely, you're absolutely. And right. how is it possible, Reverend, that not a single journalist in Washington D.C. can can sit one of these politicians down and say? Ask them a hundred questions. Just, just answer me. What do you believe? Do you believe this or do you believe that? Do you believe this or do you believe that? Just tell me what you believe. Can't do it. Can't see it on TV. Can't hear it nope. on radio. Can't nope. even see it in main, you know, like the newspapers. I mean, the reason journalists in Washington don't do that is because they're afraid that they will lose the ability to have the same person on Six months later, for simply asking, for simply yeah, yeah. asking, what do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe Christ wrote the Constitution? <laughs> right. Simple question, because you of know course. Some, some people were saying that at CPAC. Do you believe yes, that? Were. I'm not going to argue with you. I oh. just need to know. Yeah. Well, well it's journalism used to be much better in Washington. And it used to be much better because people had trained to think about what it meant to get the news out to people. And even Ted Turner at the beginning of CNN really worked hard at getting people who knew the news, who knew Washington. He hired a lot of people from WTOP, which is, is a major news station to this day in Washington. But now it's just, it slipped into how attractive is the person, and it, in certainly more so with women. I mean, I remember being on CNN one night, having makeup done, when uh, Paul Azan still had an evening show. And the guy doing the makeup said, um, oh, look at this. We looked up at the monitor, and the camera just showed Paul Azan's legs. And he said, you know, if they've if there's taken shots like that, she won't be long for this network. And of course, she was she was gone. And very soon after that, I, I think we have to get over a couple of things. The image of people on on television, there is a thing called a Q rating, which is how appealing people are as uh, hosts on television. And they 
networks still do that. They still are looking for somebody. The CNN fired, I think, the best interviewer they ever had when she got a little old and she wasn't a, um, you know, she was not by a conventional standard an attractive woman. And they just simply let her go. And uh, I just, this, this appearance thing is really, really a problem. And you can't go, you can't get away from it because you can't say, well, if she was only hired for her looks, because mm-hmm. some people are conventionally attractive and really smart. But, you know, frankly, uh, I don't think the really smart part comes into play nearly like it should when you're talking about hiring someone as an anchor for the news. Right during the evening or at any other time. I was hoping we could talk about rape. Well, I was, this, I, go ahead. Today, trending on Twitter this morning was the phrase rapey McForehead, which of course is a reference to Matt Gates. And I thought, this is interesting. And here's So I thought, I'm going to read this whole chain of things. And these are some of the remarks made about Matt Gates, who, of course, has still not been prosecuted, although I understand there is an active continuing investigation by a very cautious U.S. attorney in Florida. And I thought, look at some of these brilliant comments made about Rapey McFarhead. Here's one. Rapey McFarhead sounds like a, quote, rejected McDonald's mascot for the 1980s. That was good. If you ever feel behind in life, remember that Matt Gates didn't get his first high school girlfriend until he was almost 40. These are good. Rapey McFarland, I always get him confused with drunky McRapeface with a picture of Brett Mm -hmm. Kavanaugh. Matt Gates, 2022 campaign bus. It's a purple van with the words free candy penciled in on the side in white paint. Right. And here... Matt Gates on a date, a picture of the Frankenstein monster and that little girl near the lake just before in some, but not all of the prince, Frankenstein's monster throws the little girl in the, in the lake and she drowns. But then I started thinking, is this, there's nothing funny about rape. And I don't, I mean, I certainly think there's plenty of evidence that Matt Gates committed sexual assault and possibly human trafficking also. And there, there's even but, worse that I've heard. Well, there's a lot. There are financial things that he's And there's stuff that went also. on in college. And stuff that went on in college. All that's true. You know about that. Yeah, because I, I, I think somebody did, maybe uh, Vice did a big piece about him fairly recently. Yeah, when I watch these people, Reverend, when I watch somebody like Matt Gates or this guy Charlie Kirk from Turning yeah. Points, yes. they're really good. They re I mean, they are. They learned their lines and I I watch them speak. I watch them grill. I watched 
Matt Gates grill our military leaders. Yep. They're really good. How does that work? Are they cornered by some kind of lobbyist who just feeds them lines? Because they're re- they know their stuff, don't they? Well, they know what they think they know. But I mean, when when Matt Gates starts to take on military leaders, uh, I'm not sure I'd agree with you that he does a great job. I think he's he makes a speech, which, of course, is what most uh, members of Congress do when they're supposedly asking questions of a witness. They want to pontificate. They only have five minutes. So they pontificate for four minutes, then ask a question. And then the witness has, you know, 30 seconds to respond. So I don't think they're that good. Uh, I think in the case of somebody like Ted Cruz, he's just he is incredibly good at memorizing everything. I mean, I think I mentioned some months ago, I had one debate at the press club with him and uh, you debated he Ted was Cruz. Yes. Yes. There were somebody was looking to do a rematch uh, of that. And I suggested that he probably wouldn't be be doing that. But he um, but he just is brilliant at memorizing. And think of this. The reason he did well in those debates when there were 16 Republicans running uh, at one time in, uh, well, eight years ago, he just, it's so predictable what they're going to be asked in those debates. You're going to be asked something about Israel. You're going to be asked something about a balanced budget. You're going to be asked something about abortion. And he just memorized answers. And he was very good. He was very good in this debate I had with him at the press club, where he just had perfectly good answers, all memorized. He doesn't take a scrap of paper up with him. He just has it memorized. And that's a talent that uh, a lot of uh, politicians don't have because he's good at it. He sounds like a learned person, unless you ask him a second or a third question, which, of course, rarely happens at presidential debates or anywhere or anywhere. Um, and Matt Gates, you know, he was the only no vote in the entire House or Senate against a, a sex trafficking bill. Right. And, you know, that's it doesn't prove anything except uh, just kind of how loathsome he really right. is. But so now he's running against uh, Rebecca Jones. Rebecca Jones is the woman who blew the whistle on the fact that Governor DeSantis in Florida was uh, failing to adequately count the number of deaths from COVID-19. And she was fired. DeSantis said she was incompetent. But if you listen to the evidence and you listen to her stories about what happens, they would do something like, some a child would come in with a um, a cough, and then it would turn out it was COVID, but they didn't count it as COVID. In one case, there was a guy who had uh, let me see he had uh, he had gotten pneumonia, then he got COVID, and they counted it as a pneumonia death not a COVID death, those kind of shenanigans. This woman was is an expert on statistics and on... Uh, uh, but there are charges, and I think your doctor wife would probably be able to answer this. There are allegations that people... Well, let me just say this. 
Yeah. When police departments need funding to battle uh, cocaine, they'll ask the coroner to look inside the bloodstream of somebody who died. And there's cocaine, barbiturates, alcohol. Say he died from a cocaine overdose. Right, of course. Of course. Because we're, we're fighting cocaine now. Right. And then the, but the COVID thing, I mean, to this day, DeSantis says that his policies were as limited as possible. Wearing of masks. Uh, he poo-pooed all this, attacked Fauci all the time. Um, but clearly, he, he was... He was nursing those statistics in a way that made it look like his policies of let's not get too excited about COVID worked out to the advantage. And I, I mean, there are people who think literally he, he just ignored half of the deaths from COVID in Florida. But I don't know that there's any evidence it's that high. But, but what Rebecca Jones talks about is very credible. She's running against Matt Gates. Of course, Gates uh, earlier this week uh, won overwhelmingly for the Republican nomination to keep his uh, his seat. And unless there's a sex trafficking allegation made pretty soon by the U.S. Attorney in the Middle District of Florida, you know he's going to, I think, waltz to victory again in November. Hmm. And that's a shame. That's that's a shame. Um, but then I thought, to what degree is the fact that people are making these jokes on Twitter about the issue of rape, is that is that okay because they're talking about Matt Gates, or is this something that ought to be taken much more seriously? by everyone, and maybe it really isn't a joking matter. And I really have been struggling with this ever since I saw this Twitter thing coming up uh, nonstop this morning when I was on the computer. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it is not funny. And maybe there's a point at which ridicule like this subsumes the fact that this just plain isn't a funny topic to talk about to even on Twitter. Yeah. What do you think? I well, if it diminishes rape, the severity of rape, it's problematic. Um but I mean, you know, well, Donald Trump has been accused there are credible sexual assault allegations, about 40 against Donald Trump. Right. So is calling him a rapist and making jokes about Donald Trump being a rapist trivializing rape or is it trivializing the trivialization of rape? Well, I mean, that that's exactly the question. And I wish I wish I was more comfortable thinking that that was the case. And since we are talking about rape, here's something else about rape. There was a guy who was on the Stanford University swimming team named Brock Turner. Brock Turner was successfully prosecuted. I remember the judge. 
Yeah, and the judge gave him six months in jail, of which I believe he's served three months. So he's now out, and he's apparently living in Ohio. And there's there's been an effort on the part of women living in Ohio to constantly notify people about where this guy is. And one of them said, if you see this guy, and she had a picture of him in a bar, tell the bartender who he is, tell any women you see uh, who he is. And this is a guy who went behind a dumpster and attempted to rape a, I believe, 17-year-old student, uh, which was the basis of this. Two people on bicycles, as I remember the story. What did the judge uh, say? He suffered enough? Yeah, he suffered enough. I mean, it was so unbelievable that but but I think when you take this into your own hands, when women decide that that this is something to be proclaimed, that you're not going to be um, you're just not going to be allowed to get away with this and with the ridiculous non-punishment that this effort at sexual assault and rape uh, was generated by Brock Turner. I mean, to me, that's the kind of thing that that really does empower a lot more than, you know, making jokes about Matt Gates. I don't know. The thing with jokes is people think making a joke is enough that it provides. Yeah. So as though laughing at the joke is enough to vote him out of office. I don't know if the problem, you know, I think the conversation about calling him Rapey McForehead, if they're going down and trying to get him unelected, uh, I think sometimes we in the joke uh, (laughs) making field sometimes think we're moving the needle. Uh, the reason the Republicans, uh, they're not in charge now, but they control the Supreme Court. Sure. They work on a granular level. They drill down state by state, city by city, congressional district by congressional district, overturning elections. They're not making jokes. They're making jokes while they're doing it. But sure. if all you do <laughs> is go with you know, go on Twitter, it's, you're not helping anybody. Um, we no, all so. laughed at Donald Trump in 2016, didn't we? Didn't we? Yep. Yep. Didn't we think when he came off uh, out of that bus with uh, the, the the TV commentator and talked about grabbing women by Billy their privates Bush. and so on, Billy yeah. Bush, that that was going to signal the end of the Trump candidacy. And of course, it didn't. And of course, he, although he didn't give a majority of the votes, he he's certainly used the Electoral College to his advantage and, and became a president who I hope and believe will go down as probably the most dishonest. Uh, but not the president. worst. Not, well, I think you can, you could say that George W. Bush was the worst. I don't think Reagan was as bad. As More damaging. 
more damaging in the long run. Yeah. I mean, well, there we, is. We don't, but see, we don't know that yet because when you and Emil were talking about the, uh, the student loan forgiveness, there's a very strong argument that will be used that uh, it is beyond Biden's constitutional prerogative to issue this kind of, of uh, school debt elimination. And the, the argument is after 9-11, they passed a, um, a bill, I think it was called the Freedom Fund. And the idea was to give the Secretary of Education the power without regard to looking at things on a case-by-case basis, deciding that a whole group of people should have certain loans forgiven because of the national emergency that was 9-11. And they've done it sometimes uh, after that. But if you challenge, it was never challenged, but if you challenged it now and said, look, that we're not in a national emergency, this is a power that does not belong to the chief executive. I think there are probably five votes on the Supreme Court to win that, to win that. That's why we don't know the damage that these people, the three people appointed by Trump to the Supreme Court will do on all of these issues, Mm -hmm. including this one. So I think what Reagan did uh, might end up paling in comparison to what Donald Trump's appointees have done and will continue to do as long as they are sitting on the court, which will be a long, long time. Tell me before you go how the move is. What advice, what lessons have you learned? A lot of people are are moving. They're being, I'm not, I was going to make a, people are moving. People are. I'm moving. You're moving. When, here's what I discovered. You know, I used to be on television a lot and I used, I would love ties. And I would, every time I would go to New York, at the time, I'm, I'm suspect is similar now, you could buy 10 ties for $10. I found 95 ties to give away, sorting through stuff I haven't looked at for years in my, the back of my closet. And I, I think the learned, if you collect things, seriously consider what the value is of collecting things. I collected postage stamps. I have box loads of postage stamps. I was visiting a donor at Americans now, United. Now, up let in me Cambridge. ask you a question. Yep. Hang, hang on for yep. a second. As a kid, <laughs> I collected postage stamps. And then I stopped because I couldn't afford it. Right. But I was told it's a great investment. That's how I, <laughs> I that's how I, like, you know, I, didn't, I was yeah. a kid. I was like eight. Of I course. And I said to my father, this is a great investment. And he went, uh-huh. <laughs> so I stopped. I don't know, like yeah. by the time I was 10, I still have it. Is it a great investment? Yeah, no, it is not. 
Uh, I was visiting a donor at Americans United who lived up in Cambridge, and he said, where are you going next? I said, I'm, I'm going to go to Harvard Square and uh, shop a little bit. And he said, hey, look, we'll drive you there if you'll just mail this package. And he, so he shows me the package, and it's filled with two and three cent stamps from the 1930s. Wow. And I looked at him and I said, aren't these worth anything? And he said, yes. Two and three cents. Really? Yes, they are absolutely worthless. There is, but they're beautiful. But they are. They're the. the, I know they're beautiful. beautiful. My father said, collect and find a country's stamps other than the United States that you want to collect. And so he and I started collecting stamps from Japan, which are even more beautiful. I have a Hitler stamp. I have a Hitler. A Hitler stamp. Yeah. I rem- as a kid, I remember buying a Hitler stamp. Well, now they got a Pete Seeger stamp, so uh, that's Same good. thing. What's the difference? Yeah. Hitler. What's the difference? He can't be alive and be on a stamp. Right. But he was alive when they... It was like when from, Hitler, well, yeah, with Hitler, I yeah, think he it was put a slightly different stamp. arrangement. Yeah. But, um, well, Queen Elizabeth I, is on the stamps, isn't she? Yeah, but that, again, that's another country. Right. I mean... Yes. Yeah, so, but in the United States, you cannot be on a stamp if you are a living person. Right. So your opportunity to do that is is pretty much lost. Um, okay. But don't, but don't collect. If you collect, I literally I called a guy that I used to use to uh, auction off comic books, which is another thing I collected. And uh, I said, do you ever deal with stamps? And he laughed and he said, there are only six people who collect stamps in the United States. And one of them died last year. <laughs> so he gets so, a stamp. They can put him on a stamp. stamp. They can put him on a stamp. But it's it, it, music and stuff like that. I have enormous collections of music. I'm trying to uh, give a lot of that away. My plan is there is a guy in upstate New York who used to have a a museum in New York City, and now he's moved in order to accommodate a copy of every piece of music that was ever produced in the United States. And if it was produced on a 45, and then it was also on an LP, and it was also on a CD, once all all of those. So I've been in touch with him because I, I tend to collect pretty obscure singer-songwriters from the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. And he was deliriously happy. And I've got box loads of stuff I'm going to send him by media mail before we uh, leave Washington. Great. We have to wrap it up. I just want you to know, I am going through my mother's stuff. Mm. And I... One of the things I realize about myself is I don't collect things i collect people and if the police ever find what's underneath my floorboard i'm in a lot of trouble you and john wayne gacy yes who who never wore white after labor day no who was the no no who was the ed, ed gein ed gein ed gein was who made the guy human, they made. who made suits out of yeah, Ed Gein. I think it's Gein, but Ed yeah, Gein. he was the subject of a fictionalized version in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But he would wear the one, skins two, of his victims, right? Yes. I, I was thinking of a joke this morning. He never wore white <laughs> after Labor Day, which is 
that was well, All right. well, and he never wore blackface after or before Labor Day. So I guess maybe we should forgive him. Yes, that's right. OK. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Go to BarryWLynn.com and see his sermons, his interviews on Firing Line, Crossfire, uh, Fire, in, I don't know. Uh, and... Follow him on Twitter at Barry W. Lynn. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. I'll, uh, I'll be happy to give you some more moving advice next week when I will still be moving. Thank you, the Reverend Kondo. Marie, the Reverend Marie Kondo. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, it's time now for the professors and Marianne. If I seem a little edgy, it's because... I live next door. Uh, I live in an air shaft, right? And what was great about the air shaft was it was quiet. But now the hospital has decided to add on because there's more money in skimming off construction than there is on MRIs. But do you hear this? The, okay, you don't hear that. Okay, good. I have a a gate, a noise gate on my uh, mixer, so maybe it's you can't hear it. Too bad they don't have noise gates for our ears. It would be so great. Professor Marianne Cummings, who I was talking about earlier in the show, joins us. She is a particle physicist. Professor Ann Lee teaches something so complicated, I can't... What do you... What are you an expert in, Professor Andley? I can't even pronounce it. You have to unmute yourself. Geospatial information science. Geoinformation spatial science. And you also blog over the daily. Sort of. what, what are you laughing at, Professor Hussein? What did I screw up? <laughs> it's dyslexic. That's all. Don't worry about yeah, it. That's all. What did I say? It was it was so complicated that you couldn't repeat it. <laughs> Geospatial. Geospatial information science, I think. Yep. Yeah. I did I said geospatial maps. 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 You teach maps. That's right. Maps. What uh, happened to good old cartography? That's just yes. <laughs> Straightforward. You got to do geospatial information science. It, it became equine, so the horse became before the cart. Anyway. <laughs> uh, Professor Bick teaches the Twilight Zone A and Star Trek. Did I pronounce it? At, at office hours. We didn't have you at office hours last Friday. You were at a Trekkie oh. convention. I'll ask you about that. And Professor <clears throat> Professor Adnan Hussein teaches religion at is <laughs> chairman of the religion department <laughs> at Queen's oh. University in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, I gotta ask Professor Bick. Uh, you went to a Star Trek convention. You're muted. I was doing field research, uh, David. Okay. So before we start, did you wait in line to, to get an autograph from somebody? 
You know what? I did not get autographs or uh, pictures with the celebrities. Um, By the way, we're doing FeldoCon next year in Vegas. And Professor Hussein and Professor Cummings and you and Professor Lee, you're all going to have a booth and you're going to have to be there for 24 hours shaking hands (laughs) and signing posters and books at FeldoCon. Every every day on the chat is like Feldocon. (laughs) (laughs) We got the religion going. We got the university, and now we're going to do Feldocon. So who who what did you didn't stand in line? No, uh, but I did. I did get to see them, and um, uh, you know, briefly talk to them when I ran into them in the hallway and stuff like that. But. Uh, What I really enjoy is, uh, you know, meeting people there and talking about their interests in Star Trek and why they're interested and, you know, how they got into it and all that stuff. Um, And, uh, you know, making friends. So uh, there are people that go back year after year and I really have become friendly with a number of them. So it's um, it's very enjoyable that way. And also. I have secured a very interesting guest uh, for your show. Mm-hmm. He's a uh, flight surgeon at NASA. Wow. And he goes there every year. And he um, gave a presentation on uh, uh, new developments in medicine. And, you know, he's comparing it to sort of the Star Trek medicine to what oh, they're really doing Oh, that would be great. Will you interview him for the show? Oh, sure. Absolutely. That would be fantastic. Yeah. By the way, I should mention, I don't think Professor Marianne Cummings is embarrassed. She goes to puppet conventions every year, ventriloquist conventions. She's a big fan of ventriloquists and dummies and... No? Okay. Uh. Probably, you know, explains all those blackouts I've had over the years. Uh, I don't know how I was doing I was random. Although I did used to go regularly to the science fiction conventions in Chicago, and they—they're some of the best science fiction conventions in the nation. WindyCon and CapraCon, and NASA was smart. They sent their best lecturers to these conferences because even though you got a lot of people, you know, dressed in medieval times to Klingons to whatever, but they're also mostly the professional managerial class, the older ones, with lots of. Uh, you know, discretionary income. And so uh, these, these, I was, was his name, Christopher um, Wright was a fellow that gave some fantastic, he was giving talks on the old Hubble, you know, when 20 years ago, when the first pictures came out on Hubble, mm-hmm. they were just fantastic talks. Professor Hussein, However, you have, you, you have a, you have a son, if I'm not mistaken. Have you, yeah ever dragged him to something resembling like what, what, like feeling this is what a father should take a son to that is a little quirky, like Comic-Con or Star Trek con or. I, I, yeah, I haven't done anything quite like uh, the sci-fi, but I have indoctrinated him in several of my interests, uh, which I think probably is unfair, but. Gives me company. Uh, so I indoctrinated him in fantasy, you know, genre stuff and Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and all of that. 
I mean, it's natural because, I mean, that's probably where some of my own medieval interests probably came out of, the sort of Arthurian legend, (laughs) all of that kind of stuff. So I have that sort of nerdy subcultural interest culturally, but we haven't gone to any conventions like or any society for creative anachronism type stuff. Um, and also my interest in in soccer. Now he's a big soccer player and he's more interested in it than I am. Um, but, uh, you know, there's always time for me to, you know, corrupt, uh, you know, uh, corrupt him or or I mean, it's already he's at that age where um, hanging out with your parents or doing things with your parents can be a deep embarrassment. Yep. Well, I'm wondering if I might be able to enhance that by taking him to something like a Star Trek convention and actually justify <laughs> if I'm going to get that sort of mood and attitude, I may as well. I used you know, to do what you know what I did to my kids. I would ask them to get <laughs> if I saw a friend, I'd say, go away. I, 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 this is a friend of mine. I'm embarrassed of you. When they were like 14 and 15, we'd go to the farmer's market in L.A. And I'd say to them, oh, there's my friend Jeff. Can you guys go away? I'm ashamed of you. But we want to meet your friend. No, you, you, I'm ashamed of you. Professor Lee, have you ever gone to some crazy convention that you... Uh, yeah, I, uh, my, one of my favorite memories is, uh, well, it's not a favorite memory. My, uh, roommate at the time, uh, wanted to go to a gun show. And, uh, so I got dragged to a gun show. And so just, I, as a matter of amusement, I, I decided that I would go up to the, every gun show has a, uh, usually a Nazi memorabilia stand. So. <laughs> I know. I, I I went over and started annoying the guy with questions about assault rifles. But anyway, yes, that's uh, because he was clearly uncomfortable talking to me. So I just kept on going on. I was very Feldo-like in that sense. Right. You know, uh, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, uh, who's going to be playing Port Townsend Friday night in Washington State. People should uh, go see him. Uh, in 2016, Triumph uh, went to a gun show in Iowa. Oh, God. And we filmed it. And I don't know if this made it, but we filmed, we, we had somebody, I think his name was Mo Amer, the comedian. He dressed up in full, uh, what, what people at a gun show would think uh, a Muslim look like in Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> and we got kicked, Triumph got kicked out because he was looking at guns with Mo Amer. I think it was Mo Amer. I'm not sure. I have to find out. But I think it was Mo uh, dressed as what a, uh, a gun enthusiast in Iowa uh, would think a Muslim when he, he was asking how much guns cost and looking at rifles and we were filming it and uh, we were asked to leave. We were thrown out and I don't know if Hulu let us air that, but it was uh, one of the funniest things uh, Triumph, the insult comic dog uh, did. In Sounds, two- 
Sounds classic. You should probably put it up on YouTube or something. I, I, I would have to ask Triumph, who will be at Port Townsend, the, the Thing Festival, Friday night. People should go see him. Let's uh, go around. Professor Lee, what have you been writing over at the Daily Kos? We are on the uh, sixth anniversary of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. Who's up? Who's down? Let's horse race this war. Oh, who, it's, had a good, it's, who had a good week this year, Zelensky or Putin? <laughs> I don't know if there are any good weeks in a war. But, I'm uh, trying to make this show a little more upbeat <laughs> now that I have a new mixer. Ah, there we go. Uh, it, uh, it, there were a lot of uh, uh, media reports on the six-month uh, you know, anniversary, I suppose, or monthly, uh, uh, whatever of uh, whatever monthly anniversaries are called. That's yeah. an actually an interesting question. Um, anyway, there, uh, it, it, uh, it continues on. And I think we're looking at another, what they were predicting is uh, sort of another set of Friedman units. We're going to get another six months of uh, war. And uh, uh, they're essentially to sort of even out the disinformation um, Russians, Russians had more people killed. They're having real trouble recruiting people. Um, uh, Putin's in it for the long game. Uh, more stuff is getting poured, as as you mentioned earlier. Uh, more things are being bought and financed, and uh, I think it is going to be a boost for the for the at least the U.S. military industrial complex because now a lot more uh, weapons are going to be sent one way or the other. Uh, it. Uh, it's actually quite fascinating to see the number of uh, uh, kind of reports at the six the six month, you know, sort of marker for the, for this war, and uh, it it looks all pretty dreary in that sense. On the other hand, there was a, a, actually a very interesting little uh, a report. Now that we see sort of uh, they can sort of view it with a slight distance, uh, uh, the initial attack on Kiev uh, uh, was described in the Washington Post, and they had some uh, uh, really interesting details about how how the Ukrainians managed to slow up, uh, you know, a, a, the attempt to essentially decapitate the Ukrainian government. And, and um, it was actually uh, it was actually very gripping in that sense. It's uh, a, a sort of a long form thing that was done um, in uh, in the post. The other thing I was looking at, though, is. Uh, 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 George Will, our favorite Cubs fan, uh, Chicago Cubs fan, uh, is uh, wrote a thing, and and it was really a throwaway. But then again, maybe that's all that George Will does <laughs> these days. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a, a museum that opened in June in D.C. called uh, uh, the Museum of uh, Victims of Communism, mm. and so it, it it's a fascinating little. Uh, well, it's a he did a little puff piece. But it raises some interesting questions which have been up there since uh, uh, the idea of a victims of communism museum has been around, which has been around for several decades, actually, um, and something for right wing folks to throw their money at. And uh, so there, it, it apparently opened a couple of months ago. It's very small um, in, a, I think, a landmarked building, uh, which probably is another reason why it got money. And... Um, it was more fascinating because uh, George Will decided that he would make a point of uh, uh, talking about victims of communism uh, and, and the numbers. Uh, 100 million is supposedly the number 
the benchmark for victims of communism. So the, the, the of victims course, of communism would be the uh, the millions who died in Laos and Vietnam from CIA bombs. Those would be the victims of, of communism. Well, that's that's where the misnomer is, you know, on, on the one hand. Yes, of course, there were purges and gulags and a bunch of other things. But there is no and and although many have tried to propose it and have some little interesting performance art pieces, there is no victims of capitalism. Right. There, there is no presumptive museum of the victims. I mean, you just assume that no one ever was a victim of capitalism. Uh the poor are not victims of capitalism, in other words. So it, that's just fascinating. That was very fascinating to me is that right. George Will could yammer on and talk about all those. Yes, with the Belgium Congo, with the millions of people who King Leopold killed. Are yes, they victims in fact, of- set, settler colonialism could rack up a lot of numbers. And uh, uh, there's hmm. several uh, op eds that have suggested that. Uh, Tens of millions uh, in each instance of settler colonialism died as a matter uh, of, of fact. I mean, in fact, the victims of capitalism could include, in fact, all, all forms of human trafficking. You know, every death are, from are human slaves? trafficking. What about the slave? The oh, slaves? and of course, yes, the, the, the true benchmark, of course, in the American context is slavery. And and uh, and of course, a uh, uh, trail of tears and, you know, the the killing of indigenous people, et cetera. So, uh, but they're never considered victims of capitalism or victims of mercantilism or victims of feudalism. <laughs> we never, we don't have, we don't really have museums for them. We just have uh, museums for victims of communism. Now, victims of socialism might be an interesting museum too. And I've been thinking of proposing that to them just, just to get their, get an amusing take from them on that. But right. anyway. Just to be clear here, because... Uh, you're not allowed to teach critical race theory on this show. I don't know if oh, you heard. Dear. Yeah. Well, I, uh, it, it could be just about technology. Uh, uh, cathode ray tubes. It's right. cathode ray tubes, the technology of ah, cathode Right. Ray. Slavery, that that was capitalism. They they were property. They were, they were auction blocks. They were traded. There's advertisements where they describe uh, female slaves and how many child children they think they could bear. They were insured. This was capitalism. Judah Benjamin, who was the secretary of state in the Confederacy, Jewish, by the way, I've wanted to do a movie about him. He made his name by suing, uh, to get, he made his name on insurance claims for slave ships that went down. This was ca- this was capitalism. Slavery was capitalism. They were they were property and they were insured. And anyway, I interrupted you. Sorry. No, no, no. I, what I would you like to best- talk about? I'm so hungry. Leslie made dinner and it's driving me crazy. It's like, watch. Oh, we don't have Joe in Norway. What the hell? Exactly. Oh. I was just going to say. Oh, that. my he God. Doesn't... Where's Joe in Norway? I'm sorry. He doesn't, he doesn't have a kitchen, David. He's traveling. There's no kitchen? No, no. He, there's no uh, AMSR today. ASMR. ASMR. What what do you, it's catching. Whatever I got is. 
you know, we're going to do something different. We're going <laughs> to, I'm going to regret saying this. We're, we're going to watch Joe go into the bathroom. We're going to just see. <laughs> I made Professor Hussein. I know somebody who has a 16-year-old son. That's the only is the father of a 16. Joe, you've shown us all the, the hard work going into the meal. Now we're going to look at the real and real. Okay. Uh, no ASMR. Okay. Joe, you let me down. I just want you to know that. <laughs> what would you like to talk about, Professor Ann Lee? Well, I just wanted to open with the Victims of Communism Museum because I, I do think that it's that's worth uh, talking about. But uh, We should do a, a podcast. Somebody should do a podcast. You should do a podcast called Victims of Capitalism. That would be a yeah. great podcast. I, I should talk to the local uh, uh, chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America to, to sponsor that. Yeah. Although then they'd have sub several subcommittees uh, fighting about <laughs> what counts as. Uh, but anyway. Victims of capitalism. What a great idea. Professor Bick, what would you like to talk? By the way, when, when somebody brings up a subject, feel free to. Re we can always return to it. I, I'm not sure I'm hosting this properly. Uh, Professor Bick. What would you like to talk about? So I wanted to talk about the um, uh, the debt forgiveness uh, that uh, President Biden uh, has announced this week. And I, I think uh, most people have heard that he, he plans to forgive uh, $10,000 in student debt uh, for individuals who earn less than $125,000 a year. Please tell and me this is good, that he did something good, please. It is good. Okay. Uh, it, it's better than nothing, which is uh, his my name for the Democratic <laughs> Party. Yeah. <laughs> better than nothing. That's, just, that's a great bumper sticker. Yeah. Joe Biden, better than nothing. <laughs> um, no, it's going to help a lot of people. Good. Uh, it should have, you know, he should have done something that helped a lot more, but it's going to help a lot of people. Um, and I wanted to respond to some of the criticisms that are being uh, floated out there in the media. And you'll hear this from Republicans and you'll hear from corporate Democrats and other people. But uh, there's an article on um, Yahoo Finance uh, that I think is emblematic of the general gist of these arguments that are critical of uh, this By the action. Way, general gist was one of the Russian generals who was assassinated. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure where you were going with that, but um, <laughs> okay. And um, I'll be quiet now. Uh, no, no, it's fine. So, uh, so the, for giving 10000 worth of uh, debt will wipe out all the money owed for about 12 million borrowers and reduce the balance for about 30 million others. And it'll cost the government about uh, $300 billion in foregone revenue. So um, this article, which was written by Rick Newman, uh, says it's a legitimate question of fairness. You know that that people who are critical bring up about this action, and uh, 
he says, he argues that, you know, it's going to add to the budget deficit. Um, and it's pretty much going to wipe out the $275 billion in deficit reduction that was included in the Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed two weeks ago. And he says that it might make sense to spend $300 billion on a social benefit. Congress approves such spending on a regular basis, but policymakers, starting from scratch with $300 billion at their disposal, would probably never opt for student debt relief. As uh, Wharton School of Business points out, the majority of the benefit will accrue to borrowers in the top 60% of the income distribution. The $125,000 income ceiling underscores the problem. Medium household income is only about $68,000, which means some beneficiaries of the debt cancellation will earn nearly twice as much as the typical family. Okay, there are a couple of problems with that analysis. Uh, first of all, what's wrong? Even if that were true, which it isn't, uh, even if that were true, so what? One of the main problems in this country is that we have too much debt. And this is one way to take away that debt without injuring anyone. Uh, you know, it's harder when debt is owned by uh, private individuals or private organizations uh, because one person's debt is another person's asset. But right. In the- right. Say that's really worth reminding right. people. Yeah. Uh, you know, every loan that is made by a bank uh, has a borrower and then uh, a creditor. So whether it's the bank or the bank takes that loan and sells it to someone else as a financial instrument, uh, there's somebody on the other side of that loan. Collecting interest. Collecting interest. And trading that debt and then making money. It's getting passed around and then they bet on the debt. I mean, there's... Uh, yeah, derivatives and, you know, that that is just out of control and, and the, why the, you know, our economy has become so financialized and it's uh, not really creating genuine wealth, not producing things of value. It's just trading uh, paper, essentially. So any, anyway, um, so that's one problem with this argument that... Uh, so what if it helps, you know, pe- people in the top 60% of the income distribution? It's also helping people in the bottom 10%. Right. Um, and in reality, uh, the, the groups that are the group that's going to benefit the most from this. And there's an article in the New York Times today that uh, underscores this is the middle class. And they are going to benefit the most because of the way this thing was structured. So the idea that, you know, uh, very wealthy people are going to benefit from this or people that went to Ivy League uh, institutions are going to benefit is nonsense. It's less than 1% of the people uh, who are going to benefit from this went to Ivy League colleges. Okay, so um, oh, there are a lot may- of people working in the Biden administration, from what I understand, yeah, will, exactly. be- will benefit, which is a problem, right? Uh, and a lot of people in Congress and in the courts, and yeah. 
So uh, Rick Newman in this article says, social programs that do the most good are typically targeted at lower income people who need the most help. The best economic return in terms of reducing poverty would probably come from expanding the child tax credit. Now, I agree with that second statement. That would have been a very, probably the best thing that Biden proposed was having, you know, expanding a a generous tax, child tax credit. Uh, It pulled 40% of people out of poverty for when it was in effect. Uh, It's it's very effective at doing that. Um, His first statement, though, that social social programs are um, the best ones are targeted lower income people. No, the best social programs are targeted at everyone. They are universal. So Social Security is nearly universal. Um, Medicare, for anyone 65 years or older, it's universal program. Those programs have made the most difference to Americans, and they are universal programs. And if you look at healthcare systems in other countries, they are universal programs, unlike what we have in the United States for people under 65 who are not in the military. So that statement is ideological garbage, Mm -hmm. which I would certainly expect to find in Yahoo Finance. Um, And it needs to be called out. So, uh, and he goes on, he says, well, what about people who didn't attend college? You know, and there's no benefit for college grads who worked their way through school or who took out loans and repaid them. Well, I'd be perfectly fine with refunding them some of their payments. Uh, But, you know, there's no easy way for Biden to do that without Congress acting. And Congress is not going to act because of the U.S. Senate and the way, you know, the Democratic majority. Or if chances are, if they were able to pay back their student loans... They don't need debt forgiveness. I'm sorry your neighbor has a beautiful boat in the driveway. Instead of being jealous of your neighbor because he belongs to a union, instead of destroying the union, try to unionize where you work instead of trying to make sure your neighbor doesn't have a a nice boat in the driveway. Exactly. I, I would agree with that. And, and he makes the argument, he says, what about some relief for people struggling with credit card debt at a 30 percent interest rate? If the hmm. government fails out. College- <laughs> oh, yeah. Like like no, never like, says like, oh, but it's OK. Like get rid of the effing 30 percent. And yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't see Yahoo Finance making the argument to do something about the outrageous, usurious rates of credit card companies. Right. Why don't you do that? Instead of saying, instead of using that argument to say student debt shouldn't be forgiven, go after the credit card companies who are killing people with these interest rates. Literally killing them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, he says, if if, uh, government bails out college grads, why doesn't it pay off my mortgage? Or my small business loan. Well, excuse me, you didn't hear of PPP? <laughs> why does Uncle Sam just buy everyone? A, why doesn't Uncle Sam just buy everyone a BMW? 
Now there, he's comparing a college education to a luxury automobile. Well, for Harvard people, that's the same thing. That is, <laughs> but but the talk about the PPP. An example of a universal program. BMW for all. For all, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's such a ludicrous comparison, right? So education is a social good. More educated people are, whether it's in a trade, uh, whether it's at college, the better off our country is going to exactly. be. And, and the more advanced our economy becomes, uh, the more education it requires in order to participate in it in a, in a meaningful way. Right. And people become better citizens as well. Exactly. Educated so, is better than uneducated. People, and that, and, and as Donald Trump said, we love the uneducated. He literally said that. Yeah, he did. Because that's what Republicans want. They want uneducated people. They're easy to control. They're easy to fool. Uh, they're easy to get to convince them that uh, a billionaire's interest is your interest. So right. public policies that are in the interest of billionaires are also in your interest. And here's a lottery ludicrous. ticket. Right. Um, <laughs> so... If, if uh, Now, I do criticize what Biden has done because and he raises another point in this article, and that is that this action does nothing to solve the higher education uh, problem in this country. It does nothing to bring down the cost of education uh, to stop the the crazy inflation that's been going on in higher education uh, for decades now. That's true. Uh, but why can't you do this and something? Right. Else? Uh, so my, I mean, if I were president instead of Biden, what I would have done would say, okay, here we go. We're going to freeze um, payments and interest on all student loans until the Congress passes a reform of the higher education financing system. And uh, if they don't do that by a certain time, a year and a half or two years, I'm going to forgive every cent of student debt. And then if, if you still don't fix it, as people take out more loans, every six months, I'm going to forgive those loans too. Got it, people? I think that would have convinced Congress to get it done, to solve the problem. But, you know, it seems Democrats just can't think that big anymore. Right. Well, they're paid to not think that big. huh? Uh, Professor John, I wanted to add a couple things to what you were saying. And I, I posted this article because uh, Sabrina Salvati uh, uh, was was going through this this week. Um, is astounding the the number the 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 group of people the demographic the, the demographic in this country that holds the average largest amount of student debt are black women. It turns out that black kids, when they get out of school, owe an average of seven thousand eight thousand uh, dollars more in average student debt than white kids. 
like 10 years later, that number like increases by like 25,000. Why? Because oftentimes people are making minimal payments and the rates are allowed to fluctuate. The rates on those, you're probably paying, and sometimes people are paying less than the interest, which means that's going on to the principles. So people can be pay, paying off their loans for 10 years and find that the principal has doubled. They're paying out a loan that was originally $15,000. They're now trying to pay off $30,000. Unbelievable. It's, it, that's a, and here it is in, from Investopedia. A sobering statistic in 2019, the last time they, they compiled this, the uh, Institute on Assets and Social Policies found that the average black borrowers would 95% of their original loan amount after two decades, 20 years, compared to white borrowers who, on average, had paid off most of their student debt. So really, you know, this is even just the $10,000, which, as you pointed out, I mean, Biden couldn't have done, could have done this day one instead of like nickel and diming, you know, having people worry quarter after quarter, you know, are they going to is are, are we have to be do we have to resume payments on this stupid loan? And a lot of people are out of work or, you know, have had disruptions in their lives from COVID. It's just astounding. But can't but, you at least hang on for one second? Uh, He's, he hasn't even been president for two years. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like. I don't know. I, 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 I you're right, but. He did do something good. Is there anything? No, I, I mean, it's like, you know, yeah, a doctor comes along and your two legs are broken. Well, I'll just fix one, sort of. But I. You know, it's, but, it's, but he could fix two, but he just fixes one. I mean, this is just the cynicism of the administration, the Biden administration. Biden, I, I, I don't even know what that guy comprehends anymore. But his administration just very cynically knowing that they could draw this out, they had to give the base something going into the fall elections. And this is what they did. And of course, you know, as somebody pointed out, a lot of this is going to be wiped out when interest rates get jacked up yet again to control inflation. And people find that, you know, their payments are bigger and the uh, the principal in many instances is going up. So no, I mean, this is something he could have wiped out on day one. I mean, it, it's just a tragedy for many reasons, that and many reasons that we didn't have a leader like Bernie Sanders might have been. We don't know. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's it just the lost opportunity. Well, P Professor Adnan Hussein. You've been a petty tyrant. You've had to manage. Show, <laughs> I think you, that's how you describe. Uh, can't you defend Joe Biden? Or are you completely... Any empathy? No time for Joe Biden. I'm sorry. No empathy at all for no. none? No. Professor Ann Lee, you have... An inner petty tyrant, don't you? Uh, yeah, I. Uh, but you know, in in uh, university faculties, it is like herding cats. So it it's uh, 
although most of us academics have uh, sort of our inner dark Brendan, you know, uh, <laughs> everybody's a, a Joe Manchin. <laughs> exactly. In a, in a faculty exactly. Uh, department, you've got like, you know, 10 Joe Manchins and well, 10, five Joe Manchins and five, you know, Kristen cinemas. Is there yeah. any, I, I think it was Dr. Martin Luther King who I, I first read said incrementalism is evil. Uh, well, I think since this is, um, you know, maybe this is the way we can get the red brown alliance going uh, here is, uh, you know, since this is a Christian nation, Judeo Christian nation, why don't we uh, declare a jubilee? And declare 2023 a holy year, you know, mm -hmm. and cancel the debts like they used to do. I mean, you know, there were certain rights or certain um, uh, obligations that were dissolved uh, every seventh year, sabbatical, the ten, you know, one of my favorite words in the English language, uh, a sabbatical, the seventh year where you rest, you know, Um just like this on the Sabbath. And so every seven years, there would be certain things that would be liquidated. Uh, and then every seventh sabbatical, so 49 years, um, you'd have a major decree that like de all debts had to be canceled. Um, slaves, of course, you know, there were slaves in pre-modern Near East and all these societies were uh, given manumission, their freedom. Um, you know, so... This is one thing that um, perhaps we can make a theological argument that we've not had, you know, a jubilee year. And we need America needs a jubilee. You know, we've had basically 30 years of neoliberalism. Most of the people who are, you know, angry or resentful that people will be getting, um, you know, a benefit that they won't be getting, you um, you know, there's a certain number of people, obviously, over the last 30 years who have been able to pay off their debts. Anybody older than that went, had the opportunity to go to a state university and pay very low tuition. You know, state university tuition soared in the 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. It used to be affordable because it was a goal. It was understood, just as Prof. John said, as a social good a benefit to have an educated population that you were investing in your state's economic and political and social future. Uh, it stopped doing that. We stopped doing that at the state level, jacked up tuition uh, and saddled people with debt. So anybody who went to university in the 80s or before basically had affordable education. That's what we're talking about is returning to a system that we enjoyed and that gener previous generations already had the benefit of. So I don't think that um, there's much basis for this argument. There's a few people in the interim period who have managed to, to pay it off. But uh, this resentment, I mean, for other people gaining a benefit, I find, you know, really disgusting. And it's a mm -hmm. product of the neoliberal, you know, period that, we, that we've been in, which is where we all understand ourselves very individualistically and we don't understand what is the larger social benefit. So what are the economic benefit oh, of you're, reducing you're the debt? Off. 
Professor, you're leaving off the uh, added social benefit for saddling kids with massive amounts of debt. Well, yes, obviously. By relieving that debt, it undermines one of our military's greatest recruitment tools. Yes, yes, that's true. We won't be able to get anybody to go fight our wars. You know, (laughs) banks or somebody, you know, shouting the quiet parts out loud said that. uh, Did he really? Congressman Banks said that? Did he? And he posted it on the on the Twitters. Well, see, that that goes to demonstrate something that I mentioned, um, I don't know, on a previous show at some point in the last few weeks, that, uh, you know, the military is the last surviving bastion of the welfare state. And so in this kind of uh, military Keynesianism, I mean, you've got, you know, uh, pumping up the economy of the military industrial complex and you feed the labor force for the military by you know, uh, providing social benefits. We'll pay for your college. You'll get health, you know, healthcare. You'll get a pension. You know, all these things that are being destroyed for the average American worker in the private economy. They're being preserved, but only in certain aspects of, you know, the government economy that is part of this military Keynesian welfare state. Um, so it just proves that that's kind of the way it is understood: is that you can. You know, we'll give you these benefits, not because you're a citizen and because there's a social good uh, to having a society like that. We'll give them to you if you're willing to serve U.S. empire abroad and fight fight wars for us. Right, right. I'd, I'd also like to point out the other function of student debt, which is to make them pliable for employers. Mm-hmm. That they are desperate. They have to pay uh, those student loan payments uh, every month. And they have to take uh, whatever work they can get. So it's another advantage for the employer, you know, another lever that they have over um, the worker. So it's only, you know, it's to their benefit. Uh, yeah, you but, can't go on strike. You're going to, you know, risk losing your job by trying to organize a union in your workplace. Uh, Maybe you even get that far and you have a a union. Are you going to go on strike and, you know, be without pay, um, you know, for two, three months and then be in default? And maybe they'll repossess the few assets that you actually have. I mean, ruin your credit for the rest of your life. I mean, this is the exactly as John is saying, this is a way of controlling the labor force. Do you think Biden has shown us what happens when you give the American people uh, the quiet quitting that's going on? We're seeing a labor force empowered. We're seeing capitalism exposed. We saw, I think the pandemic did that. You have Americans now who understand what a job is, what is expected of them. There's a brutal honesty. And I think, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to say management is suffering, but between quiet quitting, uh, getting people to do things for them, uh, you know, cheaply, they're, they're, I, I'm, 
beginning to think that labor in America is seeing the brutal truth about capitalism more so now than in decades. Is that my exaggerating? I think people see that, you know, how fragile the system is under an external threat, like a plague, like a, like a pandemic, and how unequal the outcomes are for people. You know, uh, as I said, the managerial class went on Zoom meetings. We couldn't go to our favorite conferences for two years, you know, but you know, people I know who are in the service industry, a lot of them had to radically change their lives. I mean, not, it wasn't all bad, as I said before, but I mean, they had to really think about, I mean, so people even sold their cars, they moved in with their parents or they moved to another, they, they moved to another town or even state. Um, some of them went back to school. I was just looking at the labor participation rate, labor participation rate for last month that it hasn't come out, of course, for uh, August yet was 62.1. That's low. That was down. That was down from a little earlier, 62.4. That was down from like before COVID hit, which wasn't great either. It was 63 point something. But Explain the what the labor, that, you know, tell us what the, that means, what the labor. Okay, so it's basically um, people who are 16 and over who are not institutionalized. You know, what percentage of them are actually working? And institutionalized means you're in the army or you're, you know, like institutional, you're in a mental institute or you're in a corrections facility or things like that. So you take all of those people out. If you're going to college agency uh, who could possibly be working. And I think that includes. Huh? Does that include people going to college? I, I don't You know what? It's not. I, it's not clear if it includes people. I think it just is. It doesn't even say that. I think it just, it doesn't, I mean, it it also includes people who are retired. So it's just, you know, a gauge. So it's never going to be a hundred percent, you know, because some popular fraction is going to be retired, but it's kind of a gauge on, you know, how much, how big your labor force really is. Whereas the unemployment rate can be, is one of the most gameable numbers you have in economics, kind of like the, uh, uh, gross domestic product. <laughs> I mean, how much of the gross domestic domestic product is finance, insurance, or real estate? You know, these fluffy sort of like house of cards, financial smoke and mirrors, and how much of it is real, as you said before, wealth building economy? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think that would be very sobering to find out. But right. I think that it's when you've made major adjustments in your life and people find that they can, uh, the idea of going back to some crappy job that's paying maybe $12 an hour, not minimum wage, you know, all the effort you have to put into just, you know, living makes, it made people rethink, you know, some of their priorities. Moving in. I I hate to be a Pollyanna. I'm not, uh, but there Something good is happening. Something, a, a, a little good is happening now in terms of people uh, waking up to what work is and maybe 
we always like to think there is, but then, you know, people fall right back to sleep or they get scared or something, you know, I don't know, you know, it is translating into, you know, in a scattered way into labor, a labor movement. It's not quite organized on a national level. I mean, I don't think there's anything happening with Bernie's political movement. I see no uh, change in Congress, really. I see there, there just doesn't seem to be anything happening. The squad wasn't disrupted really at all. But on the ground, the kind of rallies that Bernie has been going to, I mean, that's probably where he felt more, most comfortable anyway in getting people motivated, you know, in a, in a grassroots sort of way. Unfortunately, you know, it's the Congress that makes laws. And yes, it mattered that you had an FDR, you know, when uh, to get us out of the depression, then a second term of, uh, of Hoover. I mean, it just, it matters that you have some leadership at critical times. And it's just, we don't have real leadership. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you, trying to, I know this pisses off a lot of people when I do this, but if the Democrats keep the House and it looks like they're going to flip some seats, it's going to be a good election for the Democrats in the Senate. If the Democrats don't lose the House, what do you think the next two years would look like more of the same but because more they, they don't have to do nothing and people will come out and vote for them so i don't i don't know i don't see anything fundamentally changing let, let me ask you a question david let's say that the uh democrats keep the house maybe they i don't know if this is likely but let's say they increase their uh, position in the house Let's say they increase their position in the Senate. They get uh, p- they pick up two, three, four seats. Um, and having done that, they don't use that power. They find excuses. They find the filibuster. They're not going to reform the filibuster. They are uh, going to allow the Senate parliamentarian to decide what legislation can and cannot be passed in the U.S. Senate. Let's say they engage in the same things that they've been doing. Will you change your position at that point Well, in terms of what is going to be needed to be changed to this country? Because it's I don't think, and it seems like you agree with this position, that what we need to do is just elect more progressive Democrats. I don't think that's the answer. I mean, in and of itself, that you need some kind of a force outside of the electoral system that is forcing the people that are in those seats to vote correctly, to vote in the interest of the American people and not of the particular interests that fund them. Um, So my question to you is, would you change your position if again, the Democrats have the power and they don't use it. Okay. What I'm going to do is I, I, I want to go on. T- I don't want to keep Professor K waiting. It's August. 
and it it everybody's been generous with their time. There, I know you all have better things to do. Uh, let me let me answer in a. There, if you take, they've done studies of mazes, and they've put rats in mazes. They're to study their tolerance of frustration. And when the, when the maze is manipulated so the rat doesn't even come close to the cheese, it just accepts it. The closer the rat gets to the cheese, the angrier it gets. It gets violent. I'm comparing us to rats, the Democratic <laughs> Party, to rats. We have smelled some, some cheese, some government cheese. And I think if the Democrats keep the House, people like you, people like me, are going to demand more from the Democrats. It will create almost something similar to a civil war within the Democratic Party in the next two years. There, the, 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 there, there is too much pain in this world right now for Democrats to accept neoliberal more of the same. And I think if the Democrats keep the House, you will see very angry people speak in the Democratic Party demanding A lot more. And to say that Biden hasn't delivered anything, again, it's not enough. And I'm not, I don't for one second want to discount the suffering. We need Medicare for all yesterday. We need to raise the minimum wage 20 years ago. I'm not uh, making excuses for Biden. Um, but it sounds like I am, and I'm not. I, I just say, David, that I agree he has accomplished some things. The problem is that none of them address the fundamental problems. They are band-aids that allow us to muddle through temporarily. Okay. That's the problem. Well, we'll continue this conversation next week. I, it's the dead of August, and I really appreciate everybody taking time to come on this show. Professor Anne Lee, read her over at The Daily Kos, Annie Lee. Professor Marianne Cummings, follow her on Twitter, at Razor Girl. Professor Adnan Hussein is the host of the Mudgeless podcast and Guerrilla History with uh, Henry Huckamacki and Noam Chomsky is a guest this week. Who do you have on the Mudgeless podcast, please? Uh, my, my student, um, Muhammad Abdu, Islam and Anarchism. But great. do check out the uh, latest Guerrilla History. That was a great conversation with uh, Vijay Prashad. And I'm hoping that maybe Alan and Harvey will talk a little bit about the New York. I was going to talk a little bit about the New York uh, congressional primaries. And the 10th District was a very interesting 
you know, the contrast between the 10th district and what happened upstate. Um, you talking about Mondaire Jones? hanging their hat on about, you know, Ryan, Captain Ryan, I think, uh, uh, the, the Iraq War veteran who, you know, uh, won in a, in a, in a pretty conservative district. So they're, they're thinking that maybe the Democrats will do well. So I'd love to hear about that. My, was, you're talking about Goldman versus Mondaire Jones? Uh, yeah, well, it wasn't just Mondaire Jones. It was like a whole, you know, slew of of candidates. There were, you know, um, quite a few. And in fact, actually, most of the kind of progressives um, coalesced around Yulin Niu, who finished second um, very narrowly. Um, she has not conceded. Um because there are 7,000 ballots that have yet to be counted, absentee ballots. I, by the way, did not receive my absentee ballot. I'm in this district, still a registered Democrat uh, in the district, and I received about six calls from Dan Goldman's campaign over the last two, three days. I mean, clearly he sunk a huge amount of money into this. I hope he can afford it. Well, I think, you know, if you're a, a scion of the Levi Strauss family fortune, you you can. And um, the left split um, the vote. And um, there's some talk that that uh, you, Lin Yu, might run on the um, working families line. So I'm just interested what's going to mm. happen there. So maybe Great Alan question. and Harvey can. can well, I mean, that Great should question. be decided, actually. Um, so yeah, did you get that? I'll check right now. Well, she was on their line and she's talking about maybe running um, in November on the working families uh, line and challenging Dan Goldman in November, which I think would be quite interesting. So anyway, thanks so much, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. By the way, Professor Hussein, uh, are we set for Tuesday? Because Professor Harvey JK wants to get together on Tuesday as well. Are you in New York? I will be uh, this weekend, starting this oh. weekend. Yeah, I'll be in. Uh, you got my note then about Tuesday. I in the middle of the show. Yes, I mean, can you do Wednesday? You had already started the show earlier. No, I called it early in the. I called it the afternoon. It's okay. Oh, I, I was prepping. <laughs> I was drink. You know, I prep. It's like a colonoscopy. I got to drink the fluids and empty. What, what is Wednesday like? Me for you? Oh uh, no! Tuesday is my is my open day. Mm. When Monday and Tuesday, my wife and daughter go to the U.S. Open. Wednesday, I'm back with them. So Tuesday is the day. I didn't think of Monday because I know you're. Well, you can't introduce me to your wife, and you're ashamed of me. I am indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they 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 met you when you were when you were cloaking yourself at Michael's. Uh, right. Right. Okay. Uh, can you do breakfast? In because I think I'm going to drive up to see Professor Hussein. No, I, I'm not insulted. I'll be back in New York. No, sometime. can you do it? Can you do an early breakfast? No. Can you? Can you do? Uh, I said I gave you choices: lunch or or afternoon coffee and stuff. I mean, I'm I, I can't. Let me, uh, it's like Sophie's Choice. 
No, you know what? No, look, you know what? I'm not insulted. Hang on, I, it's Sophie's choice. You know what? I can't pick one. Take them both. <laughs> just kill them both. Um, I just want to let the listeners know that this is how history is made, folks. <laughs> where, where, where's Adnan going to be on Tuesday? I'm sorry. What? Where's it? Where's Adnan going to be? That well, you you, to- if I pick you up, will you come to Connecticut? Oh God, no. <laughs> No way. <laughs> disappears. Well, maybe Professor Adnan Hussein wants to meet Professor Hussein. This is great radio, isn't it? Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Would you meet us hey, in New York? You guys York? can actually meet with, you can meet with Yulene, and she did, Adnan was right, she won the winning, the Working Families Party line, so she could challenge. Maybe you guys can all get together and talk to her about that. And, uh, launch a challenge for the fall. Uh, well, for just a quick, quick, Professor Hussein, any chance you're coming into New York on Tuesday? But you're leaving on Tuesday, right? Yeah, I'm in on Monday, but I know you you are busy prepping for this right. highly organized uh, and choreographed show. So <laughs> I figured that would be impossible. <laughs> what about like a late night dinner, Professor Harvey J.K.? Okay. It never sleeps. I really thought it was safe to talk about Tuesday and Tuesday afternoon. I had no idea Adnan would be in Connecticut. You go ahead. Don't worry about it. Um, oh, so, you know. it's, this is horrible. I feel. Why not? I, I say think... stick in the city. If you want to come out and to Connecticut, David, come out on the Sunday. That's traditional. You know, Are you, go out to wait, the country this on the weekend. I'll be there on in, on Sunday, too. So take Oh, a wait, 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 wait. That might be doable Sunday. There you go. So Are you, you sure? Yeah, absolutely. So just uh, shift your day and and hang out with 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 Harvey in New York. Oh, on see that this is the, we this is a a a, a masterclass in negotiation and we solved it. Okay. Perfect, great. Take uh, care, everybody. Thank you. That's Take great. Care, so now we're we're gonna we can have a, our lunch date, Professor Kate. Shit. Now we are getting together. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Uh, I have to check. Leslie, the Sunday. OK, I think we're going to switch to Sunday. This is good. All right. Um, let's talk about. Call, call me tomorrow morning. I will. Let's talk about last Tuesday. What did you see last Tuesday? Was Mondaire Jones any good? Is that is that a long hand this over to Alan? I, I, I really ignored New York. My, once my candidate in the new 59th district withdrew, I just ignored the whole New York state. So I don't care. Let it, Alan can talk about was it. Was Mondaire, no jo- Mondaire Jones, Harvard Law and Stanford, first openly gay African-American to serve in Congress. Was is this a loss? Well, it's a loss because of who won. Uh, either Eulene or Mondaire Jones would have been good. The progressives have got to get their act together. This was very was much Was Mondaire Jones a progressive? Because he's a graduate of Harvard Law. Yes, he has He has a good voting record. And he, he aligned himself almost fully with the squad. Okay. Not, not, not as a member of it and not declaring himself to be a democratic socialist or anything like that. But his voting record was uh, really quite solid. Right. Okay. And in marked contrast to say Richie Torres, obviously Hakeem Jeffries. But yeah, very good. Okay. But no, I would say he was a leader on the progressive left, but his voting record was good. 
Uh, Yulene would have been excellent too. They got to get it together and only have one candidate in this kind of situation. We're talking with Alan Minsky, executive director of Progressive Democrats of America and Professor Harvey J.K., author of Take Hold of Our History, FDR and Democracy, and the British Marxist historians. When does that come out? It's published by Zero Books. When does I got notice today that the books are arriving at warehouses, which means that I don't know the books. I don't know beyond that, other than officially it's like September 30th or October 1st. Um, I, I go, I peg it to that actually. So, okay. Could be sooner, but I'm not sure. So Alan, uh, back to Tuesday. I, I just wanted people to know your CV. What my take on the thing, the whole thing in yes. that race. I mean, again, it's just a very, very conservative Democrat one. Uh, he, he was absolutely overwhelmed by the number of people who voted for much more progressive candidates. This thing happened in a Massachusetts district uh, where a former Republican won and the Democrats split the vote in 2020. And, you know, for a good 12, 15 months, everybody said, OK, we're going to get it together. We're going to unify behind one progressive candidate and we'll easily defeat Ashen Kloss in, in 2022. Well, it's not so easily done because these incumbents, especially conservative, pro-corporate uh, moderate Democrats get incredible war chests. Mm -hmm. um, and Austin Kloss also spent the last, you know, the first part of the the, the Congress um, positioning himself as uh, somebody who would be harder to challenge by progressives. But he is, he is not with us. Nobody thinks he is. Everybody understands he's a pro-business Democrat if you really follow it closely. But he's taken a number of votes that make him seem much better than he previously was. Chances are this guy will do it on things he doesn't care about. Or things and, that he but, knows won't win. Yeah, like that kind of stuff. And yeah. and uh, obviously it was a sort of somewhat unique cycle this time with uh, everything focusing on these huge, um, you know, uh, big bills um, in the Congress. Um, um, so, yeah, you know, it's um, um, it's bad, though. It's quite bad because uh, it would, of course, been good to keep Mondaire in Congress. But it would have also been really great to have you lean in, who I thought was really solid in the state senator in New York. And uh you know, um, I mean, I, I I know Harvey's close to Nomiki, the person Nomiki uh, did endorse when uh, she dropped out, did win Harvey, in case you don't know. Um, so yes, I think I, that, Yeah, I saw that. I mean, that's the only one I saw. Well, I saw also Nadler beating Maloney and all that. Nadler. But, you know, the, the real the real villain in this is, and this is, again, where, uh, you know, this people, the things people are writing in, in, in the chat are ridiculous about there not being progressives. Um, you know, clearly, U.S. Capitol thinks there's a difference between the progressives and the non-progressives. That's been the defining feature of, of this uh, election cycle. If anybody thought there was unity within the party, just look at the outlays that have been um, you know, put forward against progressive candidates. And they know damn well that we, we actually are, are, are a political movement that's looking to reorder the, you know, the whole political economic structure of American society back to the kind of uh, programs that Professor Kay has, of course, championed uh, throughout his career that have their legacy in, uh, in, in what would be now a fully inclusive uh, Rooseveltian, um, you know, lineage. So, yeah, um, you know, so hopefully we can get him out next time on the 10th. Uh, we had a big victory down in Florida uh, in that. Um, Maxwell uh, Frost. Yeah. We were, we, you know, we used to be very close as an institution. I wasn't the ED at the time. Alan Grayson, a guy I've met a couple times. Yeah. 
But, um, you know, and Grayson was, and is, is also, you know, let's, let's give him credit for what he was good at. At the time of the market crash, he was, you know, he could go, um, you know, uh, point by point with someone like Elizabeth Warren, fantastic analyst of the corruptions of Wall Street um, and the, the way it needed to be regulated. Um, and if he were to win, he would be very good at that in Congress again. However, he was running for Senate. A young guy named Maxwell Frost got into the race there. Frost had had gained a lot of prominence in Florida because he was he was not a, a student at the Parkland High School, but he was sort of the guy who took on the role of the organizer for the Parkland students uh, and and uh, helped facilitate their voice in in the media. And he was a Bernie supporter. And um, and, and he disrupted he Ron DeSantis. He mm-hmm. showed up and screamed at him. The guy's amazing. Um, hopefully, maybe we can get him for the show sometime soon. I think he's going to be one of the most influential voices in American politics. Uh, 25. In, in the um, yeah, yeah. I know Lynn's writing that in the chat. Um, and what? About, you know, Howie Klein, who I think is quite close to Alan Grayson. I love Howie, of course. But I did think that those were rather hollow um, critiques of uh, of uh, Maxwell, uh, he, you know, how we just declare him a fake progressive with nothing behind it. He did accept, uh, well, he didn't accept, uh, he didn't shun uh, the money that was spent in support of his candidacy by one of the crypto billionaires, but it was the one who created a pack for, um, what's it called, uh, pandemic preparedness. So uh, that was the one large IE expenditure in this race. Uh, and it was supporting Maxwell Frost uh, around. In, in defense you know, of Howie, he loves I, Alan Grayson. Yeah, and I, I love him. Howie, and I love yeah. Alan Grayson. Yeah, well, it's, uh, yeah, and Howie, Howie, Howie went to Bernie's high school, and he um, was in Chuck Schumer's class. <laughs> Howie's great, um, yeah. but um, yeah, no, and uh, um, you know what Grayson did, um, jumping in the race. Because there was a state senator who was very much a moderate corporatist Democrat. Alan was originally going to. Alan was running against Val Demings. That's correct. That's correct. Running running for Senate. That didn't get any traction. Um, And he jumped in the race, uh, a lot of self-funding and really went on the attack against Maxwell Frost in a really ugly way. I got to say, I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to give him any grief. You know, again, I I don't care about that shit. If people want to do politics like it's the playground, that's their business. I. I, I don't support that crap. Um, and if you do, you must do it with a good sense of humor, <laughs> you know. Right. So this wasn't fun or anything, right? And um, it, it was, um, uh, it didn't work. Um, and I do think he would have really harmed um, uh, Maxwell and could have brought about his defeat to this conservative state senator. But fortunately, the state senator had his own uh, candidate who should have stayed out of the race for his benefit, who was the indicted the former Congress indicted. She just got out of jail for like doing 22 months in jail, Corrine Brown got right out of jail and ran for Congress. And uh, that uh, probably pulled votes away from uh, the guy, uh, Bracey. So Maxwell won. And, and um, this is big. Know, it is big. Yeah. Youngest, he'll be the youngest member of Congress, first Gen Zer. And, um, uh, you know, anybody who's, uh, you know, and he's going to Congress. Him. This is a Democratic. Uh, Definitely going. Right. Oh, it's, it's a gerrymandered district. It's a very, very solidly put. Right. Chris versus DeSantis. Maxwell will help. Hmm? Maxwell will help. Now you have the most uh, most magnetic young uh, politician in the country can draw out 
um, the youth vote that can really help uh, Chris against DeSantis. I mean, DeSantis is hideous. So is Chris. I mean, he scrubbed his internet. He paid tens of thousands of dollars. You cannot find out about his personal life. Uh, I mean, you know, you're going to tell me that he's as vile as DeSantis. Oh, and, and in fact, again, politically, he might be, I don't know, whatever heck uh, David might be referring to, and maybe he doesn't know, he just knows a scrub. But look, um, Chris was never in, con he was in Congress just now, and he never was a guy like Gottheimer or Schrader or the guy out of Peters in San Diego. He wasn't in that clique of the most conservative uh, Democrats. I know he's a former Republican, obviously, but um, he really wasn't a barrier to, uh, uh, you know, when, when you did have an agreement for a set of progressive principles to go forward and build back better and such. He was not a, he was not a person who was blocking things. What is DeSantis, DeSantis is going full Trump. Well, not quite. He's a Yaley. Um, so, you know, of course I'm proud of him. My alma mater. He's, um, <laughs> um, yeah, he's, um, um, you know, he will, I mean, look, you got Musk, right? You know, I'm, you know, you know, I'm not saying he's, he's going to support him. And that's because, you know, he's not, is he a narcissist? Yes, probably. But he is, is he the, I mean, Trump is a particularly quirky and distinctive uh, type of narcissist. Um, and, it, you know, it's really, it's, he has sort of a stunted emotional growth down and around like the eight or nine year old level of like every single thing that gets said, you know, has to reflect positively on Trump or that's really what he's responsive to, you know, the Santa's isn't like that. Yeah. Right. Right. Professor K. I don't know. Shit's shit. You know, I mean, it's seriously speaking, we're talking about yeah, the, the people we're talking about. It, this is like truly bizarre. Yeah. You know, the Santas, Trump. So you're a historian. Give me forget the eviction crisis. Forget that we don't have Medicare for all. Forget the 50,000, 70,000 Americans who are going to die this year because they're underinsured. Forget that 20% of children in America are food insecure. Forget the rent crisis, that nobody can afford to live anywhere, and that 50% of everybody who rents lives at the lives at or below the poverty line. Okay? Forget all of that. <laughs> Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? That old joke. <laughs> from from a, 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 historians look at the grand sweep and they conveniently forget that Roosevelt interned the Japanese. Uh, in the grand sweep of history, how will Biden, if there is any history left, how will Biden be remembered? Somebody said he's almost like there's something Truman-esque about him, that we're comparing him to the wrong president. He's not FDR. He's Yeah, actually, that, that is a good point. Yeah. That, that, that actually is a good point, that we're... Look, the media, the 
centrist, centrist leaning liberal Dems. They all wanted to portray him as FDR because they, you know, they, they basically wanted to marginalize the progressives, I think, is what was involved. And the fact is that that was farcical, utterly farcical. And it was farcical both in the sense that Biden could would never become FDR by his own inclinations. Right. And also because it's absolutely true that the Democrats don't have the Senate that FDR had. Okay. Right. So maybe it would, in many ways, maybe it is the case to make Truman, uh, Biden, you know, more Truman-esque in, in character because Truman faced a very strong opposition. When you put together the Republicans and the Southern Democrats on key votes, then, you know, Truman could not accomplish. Actually, Truman has a, gets a very bad rap because of the, the onset of the Cold War and his own determination and his own willingness to pursue a, what they call it a, um, the the loyalty oath program, okay, but it is the case that right away when he st- stepped into the presidency, his messages to Congress always not always but on key occasions did actually refer to the Economic Bill of Rights that FDR had proposed. He did speak. He did seek um, unsuccessfully to pursue a national health care plan. He did launch the very first real civil rights commission. Um, he integrated I mean, he the army. A, he integrated the army, right? Pushed by a Philip Randolph, he he did order the integration of the army. It didn't didn't actually take off as quickly as the order should have made it take off, but indeed he did. It was a precedent was set, and there was no going back on that. Um, so so I mean, in many ways, he he tried to pursue as as best he could possibly do it, which he wasn't FDR and he didn't have the Congress that FDR had back in the mid thirties. But so maybe Biden is Truman-esque in a fashion. Okay. But it's also the case. Here's also the case that Truman was willing to go after capital when he ran again in four, when he ran on his own in 48, his speeches were at, in many ways as radical at times as some of FDR's best. Okay. In part, he had to because he had Wallace running off to his left. And I don't know if they, I don't know if they had already calculated that Wallace would be a disaster as a candidate in 48, which he was, although he said important things. Um, But they also had, of course, uh, Strom Thurmond running with the uh, states' rights folks. I mean, it was a very strange time, but it is the case that that Biden and comparison might be better off compared to him. But in that sense, to be remembered, look, you know, nothing ever comes exactly as you want it to come in politics. But it also remains the case that every one of these major bills that have been turned into law have, in many ways, sort of, they've been disappointing, okay? I mean, they've been disappointing. And this executive order for $10,000 I, mean, I actually sat and I thought, okay, so it's, it's you what, chart, 19, you, you, 19 months of his presidency. You you may, you are have always been proud of the students you taught. Yeah. Because a lot of them were first time. Yeah, first generation college students. Right. Yeah. And in the course of my 40 plus years at the university, what really was amazing to me that when I first came to university, these students had worked so hard so they wouldn't have to take out loans to go to college. That's back in the late 70s into the 80s. And over time, 
as tuition went up because citizens just wouldn't look if working people's wages didn't keep up their desire to pay the taxes for the university didn't necessarily right you know stay the same and as a consequence as a consequence the state of Wisconsin didn't fund higher education as it as it did previously. So I that's my experience of Wisconsin. It used to be a one-third, one-third, one-third rule. One-third tuition, one-third state taxes, one-third gifts and grants to the university. And over time, my students were taking on huge debts. I didn't even, I couldn't even conceive of the debts they were taking on relative to the actual cost of going to college. Because we're not an expensive state, but it was the case, you know, just to keep up, they were taking, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of loans. So Should a student... So, But all I'm saying is that $10,000 is ridiculous. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And the media said, could, up, it feels like it was, a, you know, one of those sales. You can save up to 50%. You can... You can right. basically have up to twenty thousand dollars of 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 forgiveness on your on your on your loans. I mean, just you know, just crazy. But I also I want to say one other thing. This is what I really pisses me off a lot. This has been pissing me off almost, you know, more than the ten thousand or twenty thousand. That is, nobody is talking about the need to pass a law prohibiting for-profit higher education. I mean that that is. So many of the folks who went into debt from to, from the beginning had gone to these utterly ridiculous sort of online institutions, which are utterly, really effing ridiculous. Okay. And, you know, so, but no one's talking about that. Right. And no one's talking about, have you heard this administration talk about, you know, free public higher education or at least free community? I mean, you just haven't heard it. So if they absolve debt now, in fact, that's the biggest thing. If they had absolved the debt, then they would have said in 10 years, well, wait, we're back to the same debt situation. I mean, it's like they're addressing it all at the wrong end as much as it does need to be addressed. I don't know if you, there was an article in Jacobin. Uh, it's entitled Biden is. I see Ben is here. Did he talk you into giving getting the last word in the night? Well, I, let me just you're interrupting me. <laughs> I told an, him you only allow comedians on at the end. There's an article Alan and me. I, I have, <laughs> a, I have a I have a. You're, you're, I'm trying to do something interesting here. Okay. There's an interesting article I read in Jacobin. Uh, Biden is canceling $10,000 of student loan debt for some borrowers. Borrowers, that's not good enough. And in the article, uh, at the end, it writes, uh, arguments about who's suffering the most and hence most deserves help rarely end up anywhere good. Instead, as with medical debt and other kinds of unjust debt, the right answer here on both moral and political grounds is very simple. Cancel it all. Please welcome the author of that piece in Jacobin, the pro-inflation <laughs> Ben Burgess. <laughs> what, what, what do you... Why do you want so much inflation, Professor Ben? I'm joking. People take me serious. <laughs> we're we're talking uh, about student debt, so I thought yeah. that you, we'll bring you in, and we have you, Professor K, Alan Minsky. Your thoughts on forgiving a student debt, and is it inflationary? Uh, Furman, uh, who used to work for Obama, 
now is saying that this is putting gasoline on the 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 fire of inflation. Detective Furman from the O.J. Simpson case. No, uh, this is some <laughs> some from the Peter uh, the Peterson Institute in Harvard is warning of inflation now. Well, I mean, I I have seen plenty of economists disagree with that, right? I mean, I'm not one, but I I I know that there's there's plenty of disagreement about that. That they um, and um, that there are you know people who have um, have crunched the numbers on this and said no, that's ridiculous. It's it's not inflationary. Uh, my big point about this would be that I like this concern seems awfully selective to me, right? Like with the sort of inflation. Um, it's like, oh, you can't, you can't do such and such because that'll drive, you know, that'll drive inflation, right? You know, we can, you know, we can uh, pour um, fifty-four billion dollars into the gaping mouth of, you know, Lockheed Martin and uh, uh, the military-industrial complex, and there's no worry apparently about that further driving inflation. I guess, I guess, weapons contractors don't buy things, um, right? You know, like, but uh, forgiving, uh, forgiving some student debt. Um, even though it's not even, we're not even in, in that case talking about direct spending, right? We're just talking about foregoing a collection of of debt that might or might not get paid at some point in the future. That there's absolutely no guarantee of it, right? I mean, like this is I saw the best point about this that Freddie DeBoer was making, which is just like, look, an awful lot of student debt is going to be forgiven one way or the other because the because uh, the holders are going to die. Uh, still owing it, right? I mean, that's 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 not a very kind way to forgive it, but mm-hmm. I mean, like a lot of it's going to go away that way, right? I mean, this is this is a much uh, much better way for it to um, uh, it to go away, you know. And and I think that I think that the real question to me is the one that that Harvey raised a minute ago, right? Which is um, about the connection to free public higher education, because that's the I mean, that's the that's the real core of the issue, you know, is like to me, because if you again, if you end up in the weeds with that argument about okay, you know who most deserves help, who's you know who's who's hurt the most, you know, um, I, I think that like that's just a recipe for all the like lots of people who lots of different groups of people who need lots of help turning on each other. Like I think the real question, the real core issue of principle, and by the way. Uh, student loan debt is not the only kind of debt this uh, this applies to, right? I mean, again, right. medical debt I think is a very obvious example. The real core issue of principle is: is this a kind of debt that should exist in the first place? Is this something that anybody should have had to go into debt for in the first place? I mean, and I would say you know it's the same as if we lived in some sort of dystopia where you couldn't go, you were charged tuition to go to a public high school, right? You know that the uh, that you know you could spend decades uh, paying off. Which, by the way, lots of people are high school students uh, when they sign the dotted line, you know, for uh, for the the student loans, uh, or you know, if if like when the fire department came to put out, you know, put out the fire in your house, you know, they charge you a copay, right? You know, mm-hmm. you had to go into debt to pay that off, right? Like, so I don't I don't care who you know who benefits from this exactly, right? To my mind, right. that's just not at all the point, right? That they have a the objection to shaking people down for a payment for something that they never should have been charged for in the first place is not that not everybody is going to be able to afford to pay it. Right. Right. I think Ben just put forward a very good idea um, that we should again 
get over to the folks. What's the Marble Foundation, the $1.6 billion foundation? Because that idea about fires, Ben, great idea. Let's set <laughs> fires, let's charge people. A little bit of perverse incentive there, but hey, you know, you got to you gotta pull yourself up by the bootstraps and pay your debts when they save you from fires. So. <laughs> and then we can, we, we can buy, get the first public offering on the, on the private fire companies. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was that was definitely. Yeah, that's another. You know, the other thing is really amazing is that if you go back, just go back to when I was in college. So we'll go back fifty plus fifty years or so ago. Fuck, fifty years or so ago. That's incredible. Um, it's it's a case that you paid tuition, but the, the cost of higher education was so much lower than public higher education. Decidedly, people just forget that. This is a this is two three generations that literally have been charged, okay, in ways that older generations were not. You know, I mean, it's just it's absurd. But there's no memory in any of this. I mean, California was known for its free free tuition. Mm-hmm. City University was known for its free tuition. Yeah, Rutgers, where College, I went, sure. Rutgers, yeah. where I went, the tuition was was low. How much of this is because of the 60s where they decided it's not a good idea to have kids going to college? They're disruptive. They take to the streets. They question the system. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's that. I, okay. I think it had to do with the fact that in the 70s, the very anything that was public became the target. And this has been going on for decades now. OK, it's it's class war against the public realm what it's been for 50 years now yeah yeah i mean i i think that's right i think that the i think that we um you know i mean i think we got the the new deal in the great society you know because there was a there was a a balance of class forces that let that happen right you know and that that's shifted in yeah. the wrong direction and so you know so they're they're going to take back everything that they uh that they possibly right. can right you know this is this is uh this is part of that right I mean, they, they like decline in state aid to uh for um you know, for higher education, you know, is, is, is part and parcel of that, you know, and, and it is, it is also really worth like maybe circling and underline. I know people here know this, but like that just publicly footed the bill, right. You know, just having, um, having college be like K through 12 public education, that you know, that it's, it's, um, it's a taxpayer, you know, a public good funded by, you know, uh, taxation, uh, we're not actually talking about, uh, you know, I mean, Bernie Sanders plan for that, you know, I mean, it was, was going to fund the whole thing through like a pretty modest Wall Street transaction tax, you know, like, like it wouldn't, if you actually went to uh, the people who could, um, you know, if you actually went to where the money is, right, you know, that it wouldn't be that much money for them, or, you know, what's a lot of money for are people who, uh, I say, as if this had nothing to do with me, right? You know, spend decades and decades paying this stuff off. <laughs> How do now? You're teaching at Morehouse. Yeah. Also at uh, also online at uh, at Harvey's alma mater, but yeah. And how do you? What is your sense with students? Is does this make a diff? Is this going to make a big difference in their lives? Uh, some of them. I mean, that you know, I mean, my understanding is about a third of uh, of borrowers. Uh, this is going to. Um, you know, like it'll wipe it out, but I, I think it is worth highlighting who it's not going to wipe it out for. So, one really striking statistic, um, you know, you mentioned Morehouse, is that 
uh, the average black student loan borrower owes uh, $52,000. So uh, more than five times more that has been forgiven here, right? You know, that's, uh, and, you know, obviously the average white borrower is, you know, is, is, is much less than that. But like that's, um, you know, the, you know, generally speaking, right? I mean, the, the less, um, so like, that is so unf- so much generational wealth was wiped out in the African American community yeah. after the financial crisis, and you you tell kids, well, you can rebuild your. You have to go to college. The, yeah. The only thing, you, you know, if you earn a bachelor's over the lifetime of your career, you'll make a million more dollars. That's what they say than uh, if you don't go to college. So, in, you know, invest this money in debt and it'll pay off in the long run. But as you say, and, and Professor Marianne said earlier, the, the, the interest rates, the debt doubles. You end up paying, right? You end up paying. Yeah, especially if you default. Yeah. Or you don't make payments for a few months. If, if, right. Uh, they're kind of- yeah, I mean this is this is uh, this is very true. I mean it's it's also just like again, um, I mean you're right. I mean it is ridiculous, right? I mean all of the same you know people who uh, who think it's terrible that you know we're not going to continue to hound uh, everybody for every penny of the uh, the student loan debt are all of the same people who say, oh, if you know, if you don't like working a minimum wage job, you, know, you should just go back to college, right? You know, that's, right. Uh, like, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about that. But I also think, you know, we don't want to, um, you know, I, I think it's a mistake to stress the upward mobility um, advantages of college too much, both because, you know, in practice, even in the society that we live in, right, there's some real limits on that. Uh, and that's also worth bringing up in the student loan discussion. I mean, there are plenty of people who are, um, you know, just because you got to you went to college, right? You know, it doesn't mean that you're a doctor, or a lawyer, you know, that you know you're making a ton of money. Uh, to put it mildly, right? And um, and also, even if you went to grad school, right? This this only applies to undergraduate um loans. Even if you went to some grad school, right? I mean, there's, there's like 18 percent of nurses have master's degrees. Um, over 50 percent of K-12 teachers have master's degrees, right? There are lots of people who have working class jobs, you know, who, who had to continue their education, you know, past undergrad, even in the society we live in, in the society we all want, um, it would have even less benefit because the only reason that college has labor market benefits is that it's relatively rare, right? The, the, more, um, the more people who go, the less competitive advantage that gives you, you know, so, which is why I think that you have to, as sort of fuzzy and hippie-ish as this might sound, I mean, I think you, you really just have to emphasize it as like, this is... You know, I want everybody to be able to go to college, not because that'll mean that everybody will make more money automatically because of that, but because I think it's a, a value, it's a human good, right? You know, that like everybody should get to spend a few years of their lives focusing on reading and thinking and, you know, spending some time trying to figure out what they want to do and all that. You know, I mean, you know, you're a human being, you can only live once. I think that that's, I think that that's something a decent society can can give everybody and you certainly shouldn't have to go into debt for it. Right. Biden is fighting back. The White House is listing all the right-wingers who oppose student loan forgiveness but got their PPP loans forgiven. Ben Shapiro, your friend Ben Shapiro, got a PP loan that was forgiven. Tucker Carlson, Marjorie Taylor Greene. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, People like Steven Crowder. 
I, I, I do have to hand it to the Biden White House. I mean, they are, you know, street brawling here. Um, I, I don't want to be a, I don't want to be an apologist for the Democratic Party. I really don't. Somebody well, has. Uh, to. Well, I mean, um, there are a few things here. First of all, it was, it was um, we didn't know that they were going to do the twenty thousand dollars for Pell grants, and obviously, once that's included, it's um, it takes uh, some of the um, uh, defangs to a degree. The Republican claim they were making that this was an incredibly class bias, uh, you know, um, uh, proposal. Um, obviously, that money and a greater degree of money is going to go to people who come from poorer families now. Also, by the way, Pell Grant recipients are disproportionately uh, from communities of color. So right. that helped with that. And that was that was. And then there are these two components inside the payment that makes the payment structure a little less hideous. But, you know, to what Ben was saying, though, absolutely, this stuff should can be completely universally um, erased because. What happened from the 1970s forward with education in the United States was a social experiment that completely failed. I mean, it left, you know, tens of millions of people basically in debt peonage. Um, and that's a, it's, a, it's really a core component of contemporary American neoliberal, the neoliberal social order. Um, okay, so Ben mentioned how cheap it is to fund, um, you know, a free tuition for um, public universities, it's lower than what I'm about to put in the chat. This is called the $66 fix. And it is so that we would have tuition-free uh, colleges at the university, state universities and community colleges in California, which is of course the most elaborate um, public uh, university system in the country and probably the world, and um, or has been. And of course it's become excessively expensive, uh, you know, still about, um, three and a half times cheaper for a California citizen than if you're out of state at the universities, the top level schools. Um, so the $66 fix is Christopher Newfield. He's the professor who's really central to this. Wendy Brown, uh, the radical uh, political commentators involved in the project, you know, Judith Butler's partner. Um, and so it's a very well put together study and it is not, I mean, they're very conscious of, okay, if they're, we're going to do this, we're going to make a big political push for this, that, um, we don't end up with um, a sort of McDonald's version of uh, education at the public university systems that they're really stripped uh, and they get uh, pared down. This is funding at the level that we would have a even a lifted up University of California system, which remains, you know, some of the great research universities in the world. And um, but so check it out. It's, it's an incredible document. And it's sixty six dollars. It's a pretty progressive tax structure that they have on incomes in California. So um, that's what the average household would pay is $66 um, for the whole thing. And, and while it does get higher because we have a rather steep curve on our progressive taxation in California, um, and of course what the average income is is quite low, right? Uh, you know, it's, uh, California is like everywhere in the country. Most of the money is being made by only a few people. So if you do have enough middle-class, uh, um, you know, livelihood, you're going to probably balk at how much it might be for your tax bill, but you know, fuck them. Um, <laughs> it's not that much for what you get for it. And in fact, you know, look, all of the, I mean, let's not go into the dark side of American history, but all of what has made California so, you know, absolutely uh, phenomenally wealthy and productive in this wealth over the past many decades, obviously it, it central to the generation of all of the digital culture around the world and 
the explosion of that you know, new industry in the past four decades that completely dominates our lives came out of California. And mm-hmm. there's no way, I mean, people at Stanford can take some credit for it, but it's all about the UC system yes. uh, and the California public education system is the anchor for all of that. And of course, it's defunded right across the board. And that's fucking $66 a year to provide that level of social benefit free wow. for all California residents. And, you know, it's, it's appalling. We've got some great allies in state, the state assembly and state senate who support this. Uh, we try to push it, but, you know, they get cold feet. Yeah. They, they do not want a level playing field. They love saying education, 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 but they don't want a level playing field. They want, as we've talked about on the show, students uh, terrified picking classes that are more vocational than liberal arts. They, they want frightened, compliant workers. And uh, interesting. I'll give Professor Harvey J.K. the last uh, do word. You, do you, I was just going to say, David, I mean, do you see the uh, Republican congressman who tweeted that uh, – Student debt forgiveness takes away one of the most important uh, recruitment t- uh, tools for our military at a time of uh, dangerously low enlistment. Professor Mary Ann Cummings mentioned that. Can you send me that tweet? Yeah. I, that is, can you put it in the chat? I want to post yeah. that uh, uh, for the show. Uh, that, that's actually the, that's a good last word. Jim, no need to add yeah, something Jim to that. Jim Banks. Uh, who I believe uh, McCarthy wanted on the January 6th committee, correct? Right, right, right. That's right. He's a piece of work. Uh, That should be, uh, Professor Lee, why is he going to be indicted? Mm, Banks might get indicted. Uh, let Let me just grab this. Sorry. Yeah, he's uh, uh, involved in some of the early, uh, uh, you know, Freedom Caucus conversations about uh, about uh, fake fake electors. So there's uh, there's a lot of folks who have not been included in the the larger scheme, but Banks was one of them as well. I mean, Gosar and the others were the major guys, but uh, Banks, uh, I think, was included. Wow. I'm just, uh, I want to, I want to, I can't believe, is, is he, and I don't know that much about him. He must be, is he a complete idiot to post that? Oh, he's pretty much like Chip Roy and all those other guys, you know, they have a position and they're just willing to say whatever they need to because they need to get reelected. Unbelievable. I just want, for the record, I want people to see this. Thank you, Professor Ben, for giving that. Uh, Student loan forgiveness. There it is. Student loan forgiveness undermines one of our military's greatest recruitment tools at a time of dangerously low enlistments. Wow. I mean, if you saw this on the West Wing, you'd say they've jumped the shark. I mean, if if, if you saw that in a movie... You'd go, no, no, you got to do better. You tell the writers, you got to do better. This is not believable. Well, I want to thank Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. 
I want to thank, hang on, Professor Ben Burgess, author of Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. It gets the Feldman guarantee. If you don't like the book after you buy it, I will reimburse you. It gets the Feldman guarantee, as does take hold of our history, make America radical again, written by Professor Harvey J. K. Yeah, I've written a few laundry lists recently, and, um, you know, so. <laughs> when are you going to write a book? I, I bounced that idea off of one of my recent co-authors, but, you know, we'll, we'll see about that. We might do that. What about a book, uh, Economic Bill of Rights, The Musical, by you? Yeah, book, there we go. book by Harvey yeah. J.K., Music and Lyrics, by Alan Minsky. I did, I did a musical called uh, Mr. Satan Goes to Wall Street. It played at Occupy Wall Street. Hmm. Did you really? Yeah, I did. Yeah, it's really good. It's good. Wow. Okay. Let's go to Mexico, where Rodrigo is standing by. Hello, Rodrigo. We'll wrap it up. Good with, to see you, Ben. I'll see. Yeah, I'll see you tomorrow, David. I'll see you. Yes, we'll talk tomorrow. I'll see you Tuesday. You uh, bet. Thank you, Professor Ben Burgess. Thank you so much, Alan Minsky. Thank you so much. Listen to Ben's podcast. Take uh, hold. Uh, uh, give them an argument. Uh, Professor Bick, you have a, a quick comment? Oh, I was just going to uh, ask you to uh, debate me. Um, I, I'm going to take the uh, position that uh, a cockfighting and dogfighting are, are positives for society. Well, they are. What's okay. The, what's the well, debate? I guess if we agree on that, then I'll just pass to Rodrigo. They, they create... How, how do cockfight? Well, wait a second. We just had Emil Guillermo on from the PETA podcast. How yeah. cockfighting, dogfighting? We don't. That's immoral. No, I'm I'm joking. Oh, I thought you wanted to argue. <laughs> no. Oh, do you know? Uh, I have to find the quote. There. This must have been twenty years ago. Where Oklahoma wanted to outlaw cockfighting. And there was a state senator, I remember reading this in The New Yorker, who, who opposed, it was a state senator in Oklahoma who was being paid by the cockfighting lobby. And he got up and he said, the first thing Adolf Hitler did when he took power was, <laughs> I swear to you, was he outlawed cockfighting. I swear to you, I have to find that quote. It, it must have been, 20 years ago in the New Yorker. It and, sounds like uh, Oklahoma. Yep. Sounds like Oklahoma. Rodrigo. Rodrigo. I, uh, I wanted to ask, uh, but they already left, but I wanted to ask them why price controls were not socialist when they happened in the 70s and 80s and now... You can't even say price controls without being accused of being a communist, but... Well, Richard Nixon did price controls, and uh, he did a lot of things that right now would be considered socialist. 
So between 1995 and 1996, the zero-expected family contribution of white college students was a bit over 10%. By 2008, it was 18.7%. And by 2012, it was 29%. What this means is that poverty has increased in white families over the last two decades not as much as it has among Black, Latin American, and Asian families, but it has continued to get worse for the people most advantaged by race. This doesn't mean racial advantages don't exist. This means we live in a system dedicated to exploiting everyone, which also props itself up by convincing white people that their ever-decreasing advantages are the responsibility of people with less advantages instead of the people with all the advantages who keep raising prices just because they think they can get away with it. I don't want to argue with Professor John, but as Nia Turner pointed out, the average student debt of white students is around 12,000 and it's a lot higher for everyone else. So setting the cap at 10,000 helps white people the most. People like David Feldman always seem to be talking about how crazy Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene is, but I want to remind everyone that she stepped down as CEO of her company to make it less public when her company received a $300,000 loan they never paid back that they will never have to pay back. People like Tucker Carlson, Ben Shapiro, and Ron DeSantis, who you were talking about earlier, are not stupid or crazy. They sign up to promote a project that is hard to sell without sounding either stupid or crazy. I want to point something out. Uh, during his previous rant, David implied that glorified violence makes systemic violence in the United States worse, but there's a whole range of issues where the United States is worse than the rest of the world, despite the fact that the rest of the world watches boxing matches, UFC matches, violent movies, and TV made in the United States. There are structural issues in the United States that can be directly linked to the overrepresented influence of rich people in politics that is much less in other rich countries. Even countries on the right-wing dictatorships are passing laws this year trying to move them and failing to move them to the right of the United States. If you let yourself get distracted by your hatred of violence, it's easy to conclude that the problem is violence in the media. But again, most of the world enjoys the same media and there's no evidence that violence is a bigger problem than capitalism. I would suggest that fighting capitalism will naturally result in less violence in the media since glorified violence is promoted because of the profit motive. And finally, I wanted to call you out again, David. I know you mean well, but you spent a lot of time in last episode making fun of Abbott for being disabled instead of talking about his evil slash immoral politics. You do this with fat shaming, ableist jokes, people who you have been told are closeted homosexuals, and maybe it's just me, but I'd rather have explanations of why this or that policy hurts everyone rather than picking on individuals for their physical characteristics. Thank you. Okay, stay stay with me on this. Don't don't hang up. Okay. 
I know Republicans. They never expect us to go into the gutter with them. And uh, I have no problem hurting their feelings because they are cruel and they they're shrinking violets when you give back to them what they dish out. So I called Ron DeSantis fat today because he called Fauci a leprechaun who should be tossed into the Potomac in front of his uh, his uh, supporters. He said that uh, if Donald Trump fat shames people as he does, I have no problem fat shaming Donald Trump because apparently he thinks fat shaming hurts. So I have no problem fat shaming bullies if they use somebody's physical characteristics. Uh, in terms of uh, Greg Abbott, you say I was making fun of him. Uh, I pointed out uh, I was cruel I, I, and I did feel bad doing it, but I spoke the truth. Here you have a wicked man who is confined to a wheelchair, who can't, who had to adopt because a tree branch fell on him, and he is punishing women in Texas, outlawing abortion. He is punishing women because he cannot get a woman pregnant. This is a wicked man who when he, when a tree branch snapped his spine in like 82 or 83, sued the, the tree company that was supposed to trim the tree and the owner of the tree. And he's made, I don't know, six, $7 million so far. But when he was attorney general, about 20 years later, he was an advocate, an enthusiastic advocate for tort reform. Caps on what he would have collected. He wanted to put a cap on the type of payout that he received. Uh, he also, as attorney general, fought the Americans with Disabilities Act. So that is important. That's important because this is an effed up human being. If you're in a wheelchair, you're supposed to behave like Franklin Delano. We're all supposed to behave like Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You don't deny people all the benefits that you enjoyed. So this is an effed up man fronting an effed up party that fronts the oil companies in Texas. So I have no problem explaining where his venality comes from. And I know it's cruel because I'm speaking the, un the unsaid. You're not allowed to talk about Greg Abbott being in a wheelchair. Sorry, it informs his politics and his politics gets people killed. Earlier in the show, I went after Charlie Crist and I brought up outrage, the Kirby Dick 
documentary that came out in 2009 where Kirby outed all the closeted Republican homosexuals who wanted to ban same-sex marriage, gay adoption, and hate crime legislation. These were all gay Republicans. If you're a Republican and you're gay and you're fighting same-sex marriage and uh, and uh, same-sex adoption and you're against hate crime legislation, you are not only fair game, there is a moral responsibility to call you out because you're effed up in the head and you get people killed. Most or, you know, too many closeted homosexuals are responsible for killing gay men, for for banning same-sex marriage and uh, and gay adoption. There is a serious problem in this country of effed up conservative Republicans who wake up in the morning with their underpants covered in semen because they had a wet dream about blowing another man and it haunts them. They know it's inside of them and they fight it every day of their lives, proving that they're not gay and they beat up other men and they vote. They're, they're easy pickings for Steve Bannon, Donald Trump and other Republicans because they're effed up in the head and you can get them to vote for things that are against not only their best interests, but destroy society. So I'm not running for office. I have a little show here. And, uh, you know, these people are cruel and mean, and they think we won't give it back to them. I had a boss who was a neo-Nazi, and he never thought I would give it back to him. His politics were completely to the I mean, prejudiced, and and he insulted people, and he and he never expected because he was in a position of power anybody to give it right back to him. So uh, I don't believe in violence, as you know, but I do believe that. If Donald Trump fat shames, you call him fat. When he goes low, we go lower. And as for violence, uh, I don't approve of violence. I don't approve of it. It's failure. You are correct that there is a systemic problem in our country of violence uh, that, uh, that exceeds that of other nations. However... You're you're more likely to get punched in the face in Great Britain than you are here in America. I've read some studies. Great Britain enjoys uh, violent sports, and uh, you're more likely to get punched uh, in Great Britain than you are in the United States. There's a lot of violence. Uh, around the world. We do it on a massive scale here in America. But I, I, I don't accept your premise that 
that uh, people are able to enjoy violent movies, violent video games, and violent sports around the world without that informing the way they treat others. I just don't buy that premise. If you can give me statistics, Rodrigo, but I, I don't accept that mixed martial arts where uh, people are getting kicked in the head, I don't believe that doesn't cause brain damage. And I think, I think it's toxic. And I think it, it coarsens uh, our culture. I don't think it's something to be proud of or to celebrate. I think anytime somebody goes into the octagon, we as a society have failed them. That's what I believe. I'll give you the last word, Rodrigo. Let me put it this way. Uh, all over Latin America, uh, young children used to dream of becoming boxers because that was their way out. And that means society has failed them. Yes. I mean, I'm not saying... That's not a good thing. Glorified violence is good. I'm saying uh, the system creates perverse, perverse incentives like uh, wanting to get kicked in the head for a little money. Right. But that's, it's not good. There's nothing good about getting kicked in the head. It causes brain damage. It's sad, and it's not to be celebrated. It, Let me go back to the other topic. Uh, by the way, in, that was another in, argument on Monday's show that that these violent sports uh, are not uh, the, the province of poor people who choose them because it's their only way out. That's what my guest was saying, that that's not true. Uh, and uh, I, I, I don't see any evidence that uh, the petite bourgeois or the richest 1% are encouraging their children to get kicked in the head for a living or kick somebody in the head. It is a, a function of, of oppression, poverty, and society failing people when they choose to uh, engage in boxing, mixed martial arts, and to some degree, to some degree, uh, football, to some degree, football. Your guest on Monday was also offended because you were comparing professional violent sports with police violence, which as you know, is a lot worse in the United States and a lot more racial in the United States than it is in other countries. I, I, if I were allowed to talk on Monday's show, but I was at the top of the show, I was accused of conflating mixed martial arts with uh, these three Arkansas... Neanderthals in the Arkansas Police Department smashing 
a uh, suspect's head against cement, right? They were wrestling him. And I showed that. And the, the point I was, that I made bef before he came on was the normalization of violence through boxing or mixed martial arts allows people in America to see violence and instead of when they now when they then see a police officer beating the crap out of a suspect the normalization of this violence uh, allows too many people to be thrilled by it to think uh, the suspect deserved it to have a, a, a blood lust for it and to support the police you, to identify with the oppressor, not the victim in that. I wasn't saying that mixed martial arts causes the police uh, to beat up suspects. I said, but you know I said, I said, I specifically said, because I rewatched it, I said, it's partly responsible that bloodlust from sports breeds bloodlust. And I don't know why that uh, is wrong to say that. But you know that cops have always done that, right? You remember the yeah, but they weren't videotaped doing it, and I was talking about how Americans see mixed martial arts, and they see police officers for the first time in world history. We are now seeing what police really do for a living, and. It's happening at the same time where this new sport, mixed martial arts, is being watched and boxing and football. And there is a normalization of, of violence in this country. And I don't think people are as appalled by that video of the three cops beating the crap out of that suspect as they should be. And I think it's partly because too many people watch and enjoy sports like mixed martial arts. I would argue that people have grown numb because... We saw the video about Rodney King in 94. We, yeah, in 2014, 2016, and so on. We've seen, well, we did see the video. Excuse me for one second. 19, okay. was it 91? We saw the video of Rodney King. It was incontrovertible. He it was a, a police riot, right? Did anybody think? That jury in Simi Valley was going to acquit those officers? They did. But did, did anybody who watched that video at the time, this was 30 years ago, did anybody really think 
those guys were going to get off. They did. And it sparked the L.A. riots. And a lot of people, uh, when those riots started, said, uh, this is unbelievable that, that these cops got off. Uh, 30 years later, there's a lot of people, there are a lot of people who, who look at that video and go, well, this has been edited. We're only saying this, but what, what did he do to deserve it? Nobody, very few people back then said Rodney King. There, there are always those people, but there are a lot more people now who will say, I need to see the entire video. What led up to the cops behaving that way? You know, being a cop is a tough job. We don't know what that suspect did. And I think there's a coarsening of this country. I think not primarily because of mixed martial arts, but I think there's some, I think watching violence on TV over a long period of time makes us, as you said, numb and immune, and we're less outraged when we see it. And I think that's dangerous. So go ahead. Uh, I'm hoping you'll reconsider this, but going back to the... Hoping reconsider... I'm sorry, reconsider what about mixed martial arts? That I should say it's a sport that we should all celebrate? And isn't it great? Should, Should I... Should I... Should I say that I think it's great that people uh, go into the octagon, kick each other in the head, make each other bleed, tens of thousands of people in an auditorium, in an arena are cheering this on, and it's a sport, and there's no harm here. No brain damage, no normalization of violence. It's, it's It's good for everybody. I should say that. No, but uh, we need priorities. And as I said earlier, uh, if we defeat capitalism, we're going to see a lot less violence in media because people in media produce whatever... Um, is cheapest, is easiest. No, whatever uh, uh, gets the most people to watch. Uh, they appeal to the lowest common denominator instead of what uh, 50, 80 years ago people believed that maybe we should build the audiences up rather than dragging everyone down. Okay, but this is part of. Let, let me let me get Davy Mamel in. I'm not disagreeing with you that that this is a symptom of capitalism. It's still wrong. Violence is wrong in our relationships and in our sports and in our arts. You know, and unless. 
Go ahead, Davey Mammel, please. Hey, I just, hey, can you hear me all right there? Yes. Yeah, yeah I'm coming through. I just want to uh, say that I think you're 100% correct in this matter. Um, I'm, I, I think some of the analysis might be off a little bit, but I think it's 100% correct to uh, make a direct comparison between uh, police violence and uh, and uh, sports and the, the, the kind of proliferation of sports in our culture and media. And I was really disappointed uh, listening. I, I wasn't there while it happened live, but I, I was encouraged by some of the members of the community to kind of go back and, and listen to that exchange that you did have with Jason. And I was kind of disappointed uh, that, that, that Jason as a socialist himself was not able to kind of uh, consider uh, the, 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 the research and analysis and critique uh, that uh, uh, people have been able to do as socialists uh, like uh, Adorno and Horkheimer and stuff like that. And, and the, so what, I, I what, what is that the, research? What, so what? The, the critique and analysis is, is a little bit different. It's not necessarily uh, directly uh, uh, examining the violence in sports and things like that, but it, it kind of like, Sports, as they're presented in America, is is extremely capitalistic in nature, uh, and and it kind of reflects uh, the the kind of myths of capitalism. The harder that you work, so the harder that these athletes work, the more successful that they will be in their sport, which isn't even necessarily true in sports. And 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 then that kind of passes that it, it even moves beyond the individual athletes themselves to um to to the viewers of sports. And it kind of acts as a, a, a distraction, as as a new opiate of the masses. The, these this mass media and and this uh, and sports being integrated into our culture um, it didn't really exist in the times when when Marx was writing. But if we look at if we examine it now, religion has kind of faded away. But 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 where's the religion now? It's uh, uh, Monday night football and stuff like that. It's everyone congregating at the. Uh, at the local local watering hole to watch uh, the new MMA match. It's it's an opiate of the masses. It distracts us from from what's really important. And just like and just like a cop pounding your face down into the road, it acts as a pacification for the working class. And I think uh, you're 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 fair to be making those points. Well, thank you. Hey, thank you. Thank you. I'll, hey, I'm I'm good to dance tomorrow night. Oh, I'm good. Feeling a lot better. I even have a cute little bow tie to put on for you. If oh, you like. good. Okay. But stick with it. <laughs> but when we do that, stick with the premise that it's your first time and you're very shy. I always, will, think, I always think it's very, it's always funny <laughs> when, when you start off, your, it's your first time at office hours. I'm very shy and I try to relax you and then I put on the music and you tear off. Uh, that's it Davey. is always very relaxing. Thank you. That's Davey Mammel from... <laughs> Uh, you're in Montreal, right? Uh, I'm uh, just across the river from Ottawa and Gatineau, but yeah. Okay. And Rodrigo is in Mexico. Thank you, Rodrigo. You realize that sounds like you're grooming Davy Mammal, right? Not, I am grooming you're him. You're putting on music and you expect him to take his clothes off? I, I'm a groomer. It, it, it's not grooming if if I'm willing, right? And I stand over him and eat the uh, the lice from his fur. <laughs> it's delicious. Have you ever groomed Davy Mammal, Rodrigo? Just pulled insects from his body hair. Still, it's delicious. Professor Bick, 
I just wanted to say that Davies lice are the tastiest. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, <clears throat> what I wanted to say was uh, that I think it's a, it, probably important to make a distinction between uh, violent sports and violence in art. Mm -hmm. I, I was uh, thinking the same thing when I said that. Mm, because uh, earlier in your uh, opening, you, I believe you said you wouldn't ban boxing or football or uh, MMA. Uh, I would. I, if those games cannot be played in a way that doesn't result in very serious long-term injuries to people, then I would ban them. You know, I, like in boxing, okay, let's ban uh, punches to the head. Mm -hmm. Right? You can still have boxing. You just can't punch somebody in the head. That's a, right. that's a foul. Yeah. You can't, uh, but you can't hit them below the belt. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, if, you know, if people aren't going to put up with that, well, then just ban it all together. But um, as far as uh, violence and art, that's a little more difficult because uh, having violence in television or films or paintings can be, uh, yes. you know, it can be, it can educate people. It can show the problems with violence, the, the uh, damage that it does to society. I, I hate revenge movies, you know, uh, because they, yeah, they glorify revenge and they don't show the, the, the terrible downside of it. That it just perpetuates a cycle of violence. Um, however, I wouldn't ban violent movies because it's hard to, um, distinguish between violence that has that is there for a purpose a beneficial purpose and violence that is gratuitous or somewhat yeah. gratuitous yeah i know i i i understand what you're saying they do call it mixed martial arts which makes me wonder if they know what they're doing also liam neeson very problematic these revenge movies that he makes even more so when he gave that interview talking about his friend, his female friend, getting uh, raped, I think he said. And then he grabbed a bat and started looking for the first black guy he could find. Uh, do you remember that? Yes, that's, uh, that's definitely not a good approach. Well, I mean, but, but that's, you know, if that's what Liam Neeson says... Uh, on a radio show, what is his uh, motivation when he's making these give me back my daughter, I have many skills movies? There, there's something underneath that's uh, very ugly to these movies. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying ban them. I think people should know what they're looking at. Yes, I think it's important to discuss them. Yeah. And to say, you know, why it, these are bad uh, influences on society. Yeah. And, uh, you know, alternatively, that uh, when violence is shown to be bad and, and, and the uh, 
you know, the outflows of violence, the, the repercussions of violence down the line, uh, when those are explored in film and art, uh, the two uh, to praise that yeah. sort of approach. You know, I'm an old man, and I think societies should parent. I think we're a civilization, and I think there's much value in older people parenting uh, younger generations. Now, my generation destroyed the planet, and we deserve all the disrespect that's coming our way. That being said, uh, the baby boomers are the worst, the worst. Uh, but somebody has to tell younger people that certain things are wrong. Violence is wrong. I'm always amazed that I have to remind people that violence is not a, a, a resource for a conflict resolution. It, it, where did we lose that? Where did we lose that? I know, Vietnam. I, I know. We're, I, I, I get it. But uh, too many people think violence is a path forward. Uh, I don't know. I Anyway, I am going to wrap up the show. This was a good ending. I love talking to this studio audience. I really do. Uh, thank you, Professor Bick. Thank you, Rodrigo. Thank you, Davey Mammel. We missed you, Joe, in Norway. Uh, no ASMR for the eyes. I want to thank all our guests today. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, Emil Guillermo, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, the professors in Marianne, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Ann Lee, Professor Adnan Hussein, and Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Harvey J.K., Alan Minsky, and Professor... Ben Burgess. I think I got everybody. Today's show is produced by Dan Frankenberger, along with Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, Hannah Feldman, Grace Jackson, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, and Professor Jonathan Beck. We're going to do a production meeting next week. I was a raw nerve yesterday. It was hot, and I was raw. Uh, all right, Benji, you got anything before I go? Florida man? Okay. Uh, that's the show. See you all at office hours, 8 p.m. Uh, we start at 8 p.m. And then uh, if you want the invitation, go to my website. And uh, the, the link is right there. Or sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday. I'm David Feldman. Uh, oh, and don't forget Professor uh, Mike Steinell for the music. Thank you, Mike Steinell. I'm going to end with some new music. Not new music, something I haven't played in a while. From Professor Mike Steinell, I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. <laughs> I'm up.
porcine gourmand of the art of romance. I'm a maestro of the boudoir when I take off my pants. All of this is true, all of the above. I wouldn't lie to you, cause I'm a pig for love. Rapacious, but my capacity is dim. I seem so audacious, some call me Gentleman Jim. When all is said and done, and push comes to shove, I'm second to none, cause I'm a pig for love. Others won't come close Cause they think I'm suspicious Please pardon me If I'm somewhat repetitious Like a hand in a glove I'm a pig for love Yeah, I'm a pig for love He's a pig Rodrigo, I love being criticized by you, just so you know. I, you keep me honest. Thanks. You keep me honest. You really do. And, it, and it's a civilized conversation and very thoughtful. And you give me things to chew over. So I, I appreciate your criticism. And uh, let me end the show. I try.